Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by the fine members at GrandTheftWorld.com. You'll notice that I'm on the road this week. We're on family vacation, and we're a little late getting started. We had some tech issues tonight, still having some tech issues, but we're doing the show anyway because we've got so much news to cover this week. We had, as you see in the thumbnail, Marjorie Taylor Greene go before Congress and show off some of the things that were on Hunter Biden's laptop. And the things that were on his laptop are so salacious that they're probably not for most viewers but it's an attention grabbing screenshot the thumbnail for this show i screenshotted while she was doing that and i said this needs to go in everyone needs to consider the bifurcation in our legal and justice system in the investigatory uh, special agencies like fbi who take all these things that are criminal over here and they're like there's no big deal and they take all these things over here that aren't criminal and they're like that's a big deal and there's a huge uh, divide being created artificially through this not so equal justice system. So we're going to need to look into that story. And it's followed up by new evidence that Biden bribed or was bribing, paying bribes, receiving bribes, $5 million from Burisma. Now you take that little piece of information that we got this week and you add it to him already admitting it. And then the text saying they're doing it and the email saying there's like four or five points of verification that this is going on. And yet not a whole lot of investigation. But on the flip side of that story, they're about to indict, arrest former President Donald Trump over January 6th, which uh, is also a bigger conundrum for the country because there's been exonerating evidence for January 6th out there for a long time. And it has been covered up by the same people who hide Epstein's client list and hide Hunter Biden's business dealings from the American public. If it wasn't worth hiding, they wouldn't be hiding it. If it was out there and would have no causality, they wouldn't be hiding it. This has causality. These are some of the biggest stories of this century, and they're being suppressed systematically using your taxpayer dollars through government to play with the play footsie with the social media companies. Other stories this week, uh, Ireland had to kill 200,000 cattle because of the global warming. So they have successfully brought the meme to life. You know, they've convinced you that the cows and all these natural things are the threat and that these big giant corporations that are taking over the planet, they're your friends. Had to be really nerdy to have that sort of thing go on. Now they're bringing it to TikTok. It's going to be everyday uh, type of uh, service. Uh, they're going to serve this up daily. They're, they're, it's just growing momentum because the, the producers are being encouraged to be the NPCs and it's encouraging their audiences to kind of facilitate that whole uh, slippery slope to idiocracy. You know, I feel like I should be sitting across from Dr. Lexus and getting uh, the examination right now after seeing the news from this week. Uh, one other story worth mentioning, they're going to ask you to take three new vaccines this fall because they got new products and this is their sales plan. So without further ado, let's go to Luke Radowski of wearechange.org and thebestpoliticalshirts.com and let's kick off uh, with his report from earlier today. We'll get a little summary and then we'll dig into the news from the week. Hang out. It's going to be a lot of fun.
Holy freaking cow. Imagine having a baby and trying to bring it to the hospital like that woman was and some blue-haired statist yuppie tells you no. You can't because you didn't give enough of your money to the government to make the weather gooder. Ah, welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. My name's Zerkadowski here of WeAreChange.org, and there's a lot of absolutely crazy news to get into today. Not just, of course, the latest developments surrounding Hunter Biden and the junkie that also is his lawyer, but... Also, a lot of the frightening news when it comes to the larger geopolitical picture and perspective that made Henry Kissinger, of all people, who is 100 years old, literally go to China for an emergency meeting. Now, what was the meeting? What was really going on here when it comes to this larger specific convergence? Well, we're going to be talking about that plus a lot more all here on this independent media broadcast. If you like the shirt that I'm wearing, you can get it on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. And the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast that was absolutely infuriating originally came from at censored man on Twitter highlighting just stop oil protesters that are preventing a woman from taking a baby to the hospital. Yes, you heard that correctly as of course they thought that their protest was more important than the safety and well-being. Look at the smug look of these fart smellers. Self-indulged, self-righteous, egotistical narcissists that believe that they are way more important than anyone else since of course they're doing everything that the establishment wants them to do as they knowingly regurgitate billionaire state-run propaganda that of course is all a part of a larger effort and in my opinion a bigger eugenics operation, but that's another story here as of course it also looks like the major institutions giving out the calling cards and orders for the NPCs and normies are in big trouble as of course a huge sector of the corporate media is dealing with a lot of financial burdens and pain including of course the Washington Post, a newspaper that has been gobbled up by Jeff Bezos and is known for their very lucrative connections to the Central Intelligence Agency that many times uses them as a direct hand puppet to push on whatever controlled psyop and narrative that they want on the American people. This, as it's being estimated that the Washington Post is set to lose $100 million in 2023. Gee, gee, I wonder why. As many of the puppets there, excuse me, excuse me, journalists there that repeat everything that they're told to do or they're just overworked to actually do a real good job at anything soon might be replaced with artificial intelligence as the new york times wrote an article today about how google is already testing out ai tools that will help machines write news stories for you because what other way would we complete a technocratic takeover of our society than have literal robots telling us what we need to know about every single day? 
All of this is happening as, of course, many online publications like the Daily Mail already use a significant amount of artificial intelligence. And even as an independent media organization, we kind of played around and used it ourselves. What role? What will the robots be telling us in the future? And more importantly, what will they not be telling us? Is something that, of course, I think should be a topic of discussion as many of these new technologies are moving forward without any kind of form of democratic participation, feedback, concern, or input from anyone other than the people profiting off of them. And just like we saw with the Hunter Biden laptop story, if something's inconvenient for the powers that be, they'll just call it Russian propaganda and punish anyone else from talking about it on big tech social media by absolutely censoring the story. This as a few days ago through the House Judiciary Committee, we found out that the FBI knew that the laptop was real, was legitimate, and still decided to go around social media companies and push, extort, and allude to the fact that it was, quote, Russian disinformation. As of course, the clear, illegal, illicit activities of the president's son is, is very present in everyone's purview, as now even the Burisma chief came out from the Ukrainian national energy company and said that he was, quote, coerced to pay Joe Biden and, quote, stupid hunter in the latest bombshell allegations that are rocking Washington, D.C. and proving that, yes, it is filled with as much corruption as you think it is. That plus uh, probably a lot worse to be completely uh, frank and honest with you. As even Hunter Biden's lawyer is getting in on the fun, as of course meeting with Hunter Biden, at the same time his lawyer Kevin Morris is seen on videotape smoking something out of a large bong. All of this being extremely ironic since of course it was Joe Biden that was the major foot soldier of the war on drugs that of course put a lot of innocent human beings in jail for victimless crimes. As of of course, for some reason, still in, in some kind of way that he's, he's running to be president in 2024. And that's why we decided to launch some campaign shirts for good old Biden, like this one, highlighting how he's a rich white guy and a cop, a favorite of the woke liberal SJW mob that, of course, really loves and supports him. Although, personally, I am hoping that he does replace the cop, Kamala Harris, with Mr. Fetterman, which uh, I think would be a, a, a more appropriate running mate. That shirt also available on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. Now, continuing our conversation here, specifically uh, about a, a very surprising trip that is raising a lot of eyebrows recently and that of course is Henry Kissinger at the age of a hundred years old risking his personal health well-being and life and deciding to fly halfway around the world from New York City all the way to Beijing China in order to have what looks like an emergency meeting between him and Xi Jinping now, now, obviously, the photos from this meeting clearly highlight Henry Kissinger's inability to uh, walk around. As, of course, this man is 100 years of age. Why is he doing this right now during this very key moment? Well, this has led to a lot of speculation online, specifically when it comes to the possibility of the Tisidious trap being played out right in front of the world where China and the United States face a very dangerous situation against each other and could potentially soon be at war with each other. And that is, 
a real possibility. Historically, when one superpower takes over another one, there's a conflict that precedes that one overwhelmingly. And when you look at recorded human history, this overwhelmingly happens more than it does not, as it's also important to note here that Kissinger has been a friend of China since the 1970s, when him, Richard Nixon, and David Rockefeller flew over to China and, quote, opened it up to the rest of the world. Now, that's the PR saying, we just, we opened up China. Yeah, we're great guys. No, in reality, they took blue-collar factory jobs from the United States, gutted the middle class, and replaced them with Chinese slave labor. So all the industrialist and multinational corporate interests that the Rockefellers and other businessmen had could, of course, profit off of cheap labor while sending back cheap consumer goods to the United States, while creating more of a consumerist economy in the Western world and not one that actually produces anything. And this highlights the larger problem that we're in right now is, of course, the American and Chinese economy are coupled. The interests of the Chinese and the Americans are different, highlighting clear problems that are unfolding right now because there's a lot at jeopardy here, especially when it comes to the larger financial ramifications that uh, looking at the numbers and, and trying to, to, to calculate look like absolute dog crap because there's no way an economy could just keep borrowing more money, printing it, pressing zeros on the computer keyboard, and then expecting everything to be hunky-dory, and it's not hunky-dory. It's absolutely crap. And the other speculation that's happening right now that this meeting is specifically happening because there potentially could be a U.S. bond crash that it is important to note that the Chinese have been preparing for the last few years. Henry Kissinger's welcome to the Chinese state was also very interesting to see as, of course, the Communist Chinese Party rolled out the red carpet for him more than they have for many important U.S. officials, as even members of the White House are coming out and saying that they regret how much access and better access Kissinger has to China than current U.S. government officials, as clearly Henry Kissinger is respected a lot more than many other members of the U.S. government. Now, this trip by Henry Kissinger is allegedly a private visit by a citizen, but it's absolutely a lot more than that. As Politico writes that this meeting between Kissinger and Xi Jinping had something in it for both sides. And what is Henry Kissinger wheeling and dealing? What is he deciding here? What is he talking about? What is he negotiating? Is he doing this for the best interest of the American people? And I would argue absolutely not. This is a self-interested man that, of course, has a lot of connections to the business world that, that predominantly caters to them and not to the American people. You look at his foreign policy, it has helped a lot of people in the military-industrial complex. Not a lot of poor people. Quite the opposite of that, actually. Which leads us to speculate some more sinister motives here, as, of course, it's also been the Biden administration that has been flip-flopping on a lot of their very strong policies against China, specifically dealing with Taiwan. It's also the Biden administration that recently announced that they're stopping the funding towards the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which they decided to restart for some reason. And... Um, 
Recently, the Biden administration cut funding. Is this related to it? Well, that's a, a, a micro issue comparatively to the larger, bigger potential of a proxy war between the East and the West that's currently unfolding in many places around the world. I think foreign policy played a bigger role here. I, I think the economy also played a significant role here as we are headed towards some very turbulent times as the United States is doubling down on Ukraine, as even documents from the Department of Defense are coming out saying that they can't really track trace anything that they really sent over to Ukraine as far as the military aid and packages there, a part of a larger proxy war that is creating a lot of instability on the world stage. Did this meeting have anything to do with this? Well, I, I think it definitely had to be centered around foreign policy, as of course, Kissinger also didn't just meet with the Chinese president, he also met with the Chinese defense chief. Why is Henry Kissinger meeting with the main military figure in China? Well, that's an important question, especially after the Chinese spy drone was, was caught over U.S. territory. As the South China Morning Post just released an article talking about how the U.S. may have a, quote, sense of urgency to improve military ties with China, as many people are expecting China to make a very significant strong move against Taiwan, which the United States has been quietly and also in very overt ways, in some instances, been slowly decoupling from. Now you mark larger instability with foreign policy, with, of course, financial burdens and problems ahead of us that absolutely make no financial and mathematical sense at all. And I think we have a recipe for disaster here, as many people are warning about an imminent financial crash but uh, it's also important to note here that we've been hearing about that for many years now, and yet it has still not happened. Are they prepping and building us up for something right before the 2024 presidential elections? Well, that's kind of unlikely with the financial situation. What kind of deal is China making with the United States? And more importantly, the military industrial complex and the corporatist interests that truly do run the United States that is represented by Henry Kissinger. That's something that I think we should know. And I think it's fair to say that this man absolutely has way too much power, has absolutely wielded it in some very nefarious ways. And him being in China is probably not in the best interest of you, but I think it highlights some very clear, unstable times ahead of us, especially after this emergency meeting as the world stage is becoming more fragile and unbalanced than ever, according to my own personal opinion. What do you think the, the purpose of this meeting was? Let me know down in the description below. Yeah, what do you think the meeting was, Tony? What do you think they got Heinz Kissinger on a private plane to get massaged all the way over to China for? Do you think he, you know, maybe he's nice. doubling up with some medical treatments, right? There's other reasons that he would want to go over <laughs> to China, you know? And they're like, he had a meeting. I understand. Is he getting a blood transfusion? And how are they keeping him alive? Like, what's that? What's that operation like? And does it synergize with things available in China these days? Um, otherwise, I would think he'd just appear via Zoom or something, right? They don't have to fly people around. They have holograms, right? Ten years ago, they had Tupac beyond the the grave <laughs> participating, and uh, Heinz Kissinger. <laughs> Yeah, that was me realizing Chinese I still have some glaring sure. audio delay. <laughs> no, it's all good. I'll just give him more time for the, the speech to catch up. No, I mean, uh, he went over for obviously the, the Chinese ancient Chinese herbalistic medicine. 
And of course, the acupuncture and stuff like that. That's the only reason why he's over there. He's not like the one who literally orchestrated and uh, was instrumental in opening up Western capital to China and the East in general. He's not part of that at all. He's not part of the tri wasn't part of the foundation of the Trilateral Commission and all that sort of stuff. So we've gone into that more than many no, times he had on the show. With the so it's just a brothers. continuation. <laughs> no, nothing at all. Nothing at all. So that's uh, why he's going over there. We can only speculate, but considering that he's been an or he's been a key orchestrator of much of uh, political American international political statecraft for now over fifty years. I mean, the fact that he's still in that that um, within that scene is very disturbing. At a hundred years old, that he's flying in on in person, not utilizing the medium of technology to be there to discuss these that that means he must not trust the technology in order to have the type of discussions he needs to dis, to have with what is it the top chinese military brass that he's meeting over there and probably many others their finance minister maybe xi himself i'm sure i don't know some pictures probably with him and xi uh luke showed there so i don't know if they're older or from this trip but the point is yeah uh he must not trust the medium of technology and all the various spy agencies that exist out there and all the people that could, and also hackers that could listen in and potentially leak that sort of information, especially I guess after what happened with him and Zelensky or the fake Zelensky <laughs> that we showed last week, I think Paul Joseph Watson. <clears throat> all right. So Cody's trying to help me get my video aligned with my video. So I'm about to like do this little experiment. I'm going to do it live because I figure why not figure this out with the audience, right? So if you have a video delay and an audio delay, I'm going to go into the broadcast or I'm going to lower it to like 2000 minus 2000 milliseconds. He's telling me that if I just hold down the arrow key for like a minute, it'll work. So I'm going to try that. Let's do uh, <laughs> minus 200. And then Tony, just go ahead and talk while I'm doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of other things that Luke mentioned that should be mentioned as well, beyond just the Hunter Biden situation and the Biden White House in general, obviously Burisma, but there's also Chinese energy companies, I believe, that were also implicated in sending millions of dollars to, to Biden's extended family. So let's not forget about that. It's not just corrupt Ukrainian officials, which now a recent Ukrainian uh, official ended up getting his daughter ended up buying like a $5 million home in France, but nothing to see there. You know, what's all that money going to again for the United States? I'm just, you know, asking for a friend, this whole situation with this potential bond crash and a financial crash, that seems to be a continuous red herring as anyone who understands banking knows they can, they can kick the can down the road, so to speak with modern monetary theory, as long as they want to. And that's one of the big issues. And there's a lot more nuance to the ideas of fiat currency uh, which is a government-backed currency, legislated currency versus other types of currencies, com commodity-backed or not, that makes it so they can manipulate this game for a very long time. I've seen other evidence that uh, nations such as China are scrambling to get dollars because there's not enough active liquidity, which is one of the other incentives behind the scenes no one talks about as to why they're dropping the petrodollar. A lot of things going on, very difficult to understand what's going on there. I agree with Luke that we shouldn't rest... Uh, rest our hats on that assumption, especially as we move to 2024. The number one thing they like to do is drum up a lot of fear, and then they never give the payload. And said they gave a bunch of straw men, typically, and also red herrings, more specifically red herrings in this case, um, which are fallacies of misdirection. What are they misdirecting us from all the time? Let's see. Um, there's continual fall to the COVID vaccine, especially new studies coming out uh, talking about long-term uh, immunocompromised immunocompromised individuals associated with the COVID vaccine. Uh, that's a Jeffrey Jackson report we might get into a little later. 
they're faking more climate data and also trying to bolster this idea that there's the hottest days on earth taking a essentially um what do they call it but the the heat zones and various like uh, urban heat environments and they use that to try to scare the public and that we're in the Has hottest summer ever and all these sorts of things with the sun <laughs> no not at all right the, the lowering magnetic field more incoming uh you know, so more incoming particles of the solar wind. And, you know, it's not like the sun is the giver of life and possibly the taker of life in this earth. Yeah. So, yeah, more particles from the sun. Okay. So, Cody, in, that has no effect on the jet streams. Sorry, go ahead. I got it to minus 950. I was trying to take it to minus 2000. It won't go beyond minus 950, even with that method. So, instead of me trying to type it to him in the Discord, now he's in the show. And his mom's online too. She's listening to the show live too. <laughs> Hi, Megan. So we're good. Yeah, right, so I mean, we'll keep trying. Point, I'll just give a longer delay. Yeah, we're good. It's a little bit better, maybe. Not really. I'm not sure. We'll find out. So doing it live is entertaining. I must admit, this is great entertainment for the audience, right? So, but what were some other things? Uh, I had a couple of things on the note card here. The Chinese situation, obviously, we had Vedmore on a couple of times talking about his article in regards to... Um, those who actually trained Kissinger himself. I mean, it gets into elements of like the foundations of the deep state, the origins of the OSS, where like the CIA foundations through the OSS, which leads back to MI6. This goes back to World War II. We talked about that more than many times, but let's not forget how and why he was trained. Kissinger is a trained internationalist, uh, specifically to set up essentially a program that was set up to train someone like a Kissinger. Oh, no, he was the one who orchestrated that trade in, at Harvard. Uh, a sort of mini World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders platform, at which I think a young Klaus was trained or something of that nature. It's, you know, we went over that before. So let's not forget the type of internationalism we're talking about when we're talking about Kissinger in regards to also the concepts of limited war. And all of a sudden, this Oppenheimer film, my conspiracy mind can't help this. I mentioned this earlier on, but at the time we're on the precipice potentially of uh, a nuclear war. They're also propagandizing the uh, this whole idea of Almost like a predictive programming with nuclear warfare historically without this film Oppenheimer's come out that all my friends are raving about and talking about. I'm like, why now? Why now? Especially when we're on when, uh, we're on such shaky territory with what's going on internationally um, with Ukraine and Russia specifically, not to mention the continual corruption of Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine Zelensky is jailing uh, even his own reporters and uh, that are speaking out against the Ukraine war, or at least reporting more honestly about the situation in Ukraine, specifically front lines, what's happening with the men on the front lines, the lack of food, the disease, the lack of water, the lack of basic amenities, including power for much of the, um, many of the major cities in Ukraine that no one's talking about because it's just, you know, Russia bad, Russia bad, Russia bad. A lot of very strange situations going on in regards to the uh, the predictive programming out there in the culture, that sort of tacit agreement they're trying to get out of the public for what may or may not happen in the future. So something to be aware of, I think, um, in regards to all those avenues. And let's not forget, China seems to be picked to be the transhumanistic technocratic future. Forget the transhumanism, it's certainly a technocratic future. The social engineering of society through technological means that was opened up from the West through first uh, Kissinger and Nixon. And then it sort of was taken on, a, taken to a whole different level when we got to Brzezinski and the Trilateral Commission. So once we got that, then we have a whole different situation at play in regards to it's a, we had the cultural revolution that Rockefeller funded. Let's not forget. So they had a, a clean slate, a tabula rasa. Of course, it was done through bloodshed, a massive amount of bloodshed. 
And once you got the tabula rasa, now you have the situation you can bring in a perfect, uh, the impact of science on society type of civilization, Bertrand Russell style. It took, it takes connecting, disconnecting people from their cultural roots and having a sort of blank slate, a forced upon through the use of violence, black blank slate in order to institute a progressive through progressive education, which they adopted. That's something Gatto talked about. And then through technocracy, the implementation of, um, technocracy or technology in order to socially engineer society. That's the social credit system. That's the constant surveillance. That's the forced vaccination for every citizen in the country, so forth and so on. What do you think about that, Rich? Well, also after the, after the second world war, you have the creation of NATO, which is like a, a military force for these banking conglomerates, right? These, uh, these internationalists or globalists, but David Rockefeller said they, he was a proud internationalist. So you let's use his vernacular and David Rockefeller's student was the Brzezinski. And that brings in like the, uh, the bookend for anti-Soviet activity. And then he also Nelson trained Kissinger. Now what's the, what's in common David and Nelson, Nelson, especially they like the Nazis. Who else liked the Nazis? The British liked the Nazis. The bankers over there that were funding with the British, they funded the Nazi projects, right? And Anthony Sutton builds this out in the Wall Street trilogy. They also funded Soviet communism. They also fu- funded Chinese communism. They also funded the Nazis, and they funded themselves on FDR through Wall Street as well, right? And this is not Wall Street. It's the city of London bank, right? Uh, banking cartel. But so you've got some people that funded Nazis, and then they create their progenitors, and Kissinger is one of those. He's tied to all the people that were covering up the Nazis. You know who else was like uh, interested in that? That guy, JFK. And the Nazis killed him. And that's pretty provable at this point, because when you look at who set up CIA and OSS, it's all the same small group of people, the same coterie of people that are Fabian socialist, technocracy, transhumanist, uh, depopulation, uh, kill off everyone in the world except for them so they can inherit the world and, and act like God, right? So there's this whole cascading waterfall of history that goes back to the at least the beginning of the 20th century. And I have a presentation that maybe we can play tonight during intermission called The Underground History of America. And it shows uh, this thing called the East India Company and the British Empire having a worldwide narco-terrorism monopoly. And America kind of broke away from that for a little bit, but not all the families stopped taking the opium money. That Eastern establishment block, that is the Anglo-American establishment that Quigley talked about. And he worked with the people who constructed, orchestrated, and covered up Kennedy's death. So when you take into context Quigley writing Tragedy and Hope during the time that he's hanging out with the Georgetown set and Cord Meyer and Angleton and all those people, it's a really... God, Cordmire too. Detailed, That's sketchy more as realistic. Wow. Yeah, picture of what's going on. Yeah, That's crazy. I mean, when you think about the Georgetown set, let's not forget. You know, I keep seeing this pop up on so many different videos. Obviously, um, True Stream Media. Shout out to Melissa and Aaron Dykes. They did a great uh, video summation on CBDCs. Most of our community already knows about this. But then Greg Reese had a follow up, speaking to a bank, uh, high level bank whistleblower. Uh, talking about how CBDCs will be implants. Now, what was the big thing Quigley talked about is they were going to control it through financial means. Um, In other words, they wanted to be able to control, the central banks of the world wanted to be able to have full control over everyone's transactions. And this is something to, so Lester basically mentioned in 
strategy and hope itself, as they're going to do it through financial manipulation itself. Obviously, it taken it's taken on another uh, taken on another life in regards to uh, now they have the potential for a biological control. At least they believe they do through these invasive mRNA nanotechnology type procedures, um, which is so we're still dealing with the fallout of the mass human experimentation that took place. So it would make even the worst Nazi scientists uh, foam at the mouth of what the the Fauci, CDC, World, World Health Organization crew was able to achieve. And actually behind them, the funding, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi, which is another Bill and Melinda Gates uh, situation. So let's not forget what the, the real game is. And that leads back to one philosophy. What's that philosophy? Uh, eugenics. Just throwing it out there. And so eugenics is the one that set up and helped to fund, or at least those who believed in eugenics, helped to set up and fund the Nazis, as Rich pointed out, and the communists around the world. Mm -hmm. huh, it seems like those were technocratic experiments. It's not like technocracy just like all of a sudden emerged. Of course, that's something that Patrick Wood pointed out, that 1930s Columbia paper. I think that was the first mention of the term. So the idea of social engineering through technology precedes World War II. Let's put that in perspective. So they already, so when we get the, the Macy conferences, uh, in the late 1940s, and 1950s, that's just the culmination of the advancement of technology. And then you get, you know, um, what ARPANET, you get Stuxnet, you get uh, essentially the Navy and the U.S. military through DARPA working no, on Stuxnet essentially was a digital a zero communication day, platform. Uh, it was a Stuxnet. Stuxnet was a it's not like ARPANET. Stuxnet was a sorry, zero day uh, Trojan horse created by multiple nations. It's a very interesting thing, but it's a more recent thing. But they with those nets. No, uh, more, yeah. I just lost I'm all thinking my computer of here. What the thing that came before ARPANET, all my screens just went out, bro. That came out for I just can't remember the name of it. it starts with an S, but it's not sucks that. Anyways, Dude, no, you're still there. there. Well, let's go to the next clip, see if we can oh, work out some of these tech issues. Yeah, well, I'm well, LD was pointing out too. So Since for those of you at home that are struggling mm -hmm. watching this show, we're struggling producing it because Zoom is Zooming us at the drive-thru this week. I just used it as a, a, a verb. So maybe they'll get the point that I changed the word from fucking to Zoom. <laughs> They're Zooming us at the drive-thru right now. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's a bunch of off with the video and audio between us too. It's not just like my transmission out there. It's LD's experiencing it on his end and Right now, I just have blank screens in front of me, which is a great time not to make an excuse to stop doing the show. I say we just keep going until it doesn't go anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think it may have been the Sage systems. Uh, I that's from Sage plus ARPANET. Yeah, no, yeah well, you, you know, you started talking about ARPANET. There's what... all this AI technology in between us. I thought it was. Anyways, I'll figure it out. Let me do um, Point is, yeah, just look up ARPANET and it'll give you a good task advanced research projects agency. But then the idea for the military to be able to communicate with each other instantaneously or as quickly as possible across the world in a way that can be done either clandestinely or to make sure there's private communication, secure communication between those entities in case action has to be taken. At least that was the that was the story they gave the world. But with that, would you like, should we go to a clip real quick or what would you like to do there? Yeah, let's go to some clip selections so I can continue trying to tweak on tech. <laughs> that works. Let's, uh, we just mentioned NATO. So why don't we go to this 
Mm, let's go to this Kim Iverson clip. Rand Paul tries to rein in on NATO war powers. Just mentioned NATO, so let's see what's going on in that theater and sort of get a general update maybe on what's going on in the Ukraine-Russia situation from a standing senator that, according to BlackRock... And the gist is, uh, before we see the video... buy for $10,000. Uh, so the gist is, uh, real quick, NATO, since 1991, uh, it, it had said originally to to the Russians when they brought down the wall, they said, uh, we're not going to encroach not one inch. That was a quote, right? And now they have encroached 13 countries surrounding Russia to provoke them into this Ukraine war, which didn't have to happen. The people in Ukraine that are dead, that whole generation of men didn't have to die. And it's being artificially constructed and supported from on high. And now the Washington point, to your point there, Rich, the Washington Post pointed out that, quote, dead Ukrainians don't matter, end quote, says the Washington Post. That's another one that's tragic. And but it tells you the story of what, you know, what this war really is about. And that's from, a, I don't know, this op-ed on the Washington Post. Jimmy Dore covered it. But let's go to Kim Iverson. Then we'll come back and see if uh, see where we're at with uh, the tech. And I'm not going to be able to mute Paul Tony. So actually I'm trying to bring congressional war powers back to Congress. He actually wanted to halt the ability for NATO to declare war without congressional approval, brought the amendment to the NDAA. That is the um, National Defense Authorization Act. That is where they decide on uh, the government, you know, uh, defense budget spending. So he wanted to add this amendment to this year's NDAA saying that NATO needs to uh, NATO just can't declare war because of Article 5. Yes, NATO has Article 5 that states that if any country inside of NATO is attacked, uh, that, that all of the countries will come to its defense as if we ourselves have been attacked. That's Article 5. What Rand Paul wanted to do, Senator Rand Paul wanted to say, okay, we've got Article 5 in NATO, but still it doesn't matter. NATO cannot just wage war on behalf of America. We still have a constitution, and that constitution says Congress must declare war. So even if it's in NATO, even if it's Article 5 uh, in NATO, Congress still ultimately has to be the ones to declare war. We can't just allow NATO generals to march us into war. This was voted on today in the Senate, and it failed. It actually failed. Uh, we're going to actually watch the arguments here. This is Rand Paul, and so this is Republicans and Democrats arguing about whether or not Congress should be declaring war rather than NATO. Watch this. My amendment reasserts that Article 5 of the NATO Treaty does not supersede Congress's power under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of our Constitution to declare war. According to our Constitution, we resort to war only after the people's elected representatives deliberate and determine that it is in our best interest. My amendment is also consistent with the NATO Treaty. Article 5 of the Treaty commits allies to respond to an attack, but allows each ally to determine whether to engage in military hostilities. Article 11 of the NATO Treaty states its provisions are to be carried out by each country's constitutional process. We cannot delegate our responsibility to NATO, nor are we expected to. Let us reaffirm that Article 5 does not supersede Congress's responsibility to declare war. Mr. President. The Senator from New Jersey. I rise in opposition. Senator Paul's amendment 
is both entirely unnecessary, but worse than that, it's dangerous. There's no question that like any other treaty, the NATO treaty does not supersede the Constitution. However, specifically calling out Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty here erroneously implies that there is a tension between it and the Constitution. This sends a damaging message about the U.S. commitment to the alliance at a time when support for NATO is as critical as ever given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Further, by only referencing the NATO treaty, Senator Paul's amendment erroneously implies that other treaties may supersede the Constitution, a proposition that no senator would accept. Because Senator Paul's amendment is both unnecessary and harmful at a critical time of our engagement in Ukraine, I urge all senators to vote against it. I reserve the balance of the time. President. Senator from Kentucky. How much time do I have remaining? Minute remaining. I think it should be an easy vote to affirm the Constitution. To vote against affirming the Constitution actually places doubt in the Constitution. The power to declare war is the most important power and the most important vote that any legislator will ever entertain. Why is this important? Because in 2001, people voted to go to war, and this body still thinks that that vote binds us to war with no further vote. We do need to reaffirm the power and the necessity of declaring war because we are ignoring it by continuing to be involved in military activity and war around the globe without ever having voted on it as we are mandated by the Constitution. Mr. President, is there any time remaining on our side? 53 seconds remaining, Senator from Ireland. I will be very brief. Uh, my understanding of the War Powers Act, the President of the United States may initiate hostilities for a limited period of time until Congress can act. This proposal, a sense of Congress, would come into question what the War Powers Act authorizes, and that is a constitutional provision. It's been held constitutional. Oh my gosh, this is just absolutely unbelievable. I mean, look, it is Congress's job to vote on whether or not the United States goes to war. It is, yes, a treaty inside of NATO, Article 5, but that doesn't negate the fact that Congress would need to uphold that treaty with the vote. That is an argument that could be made when the vote goes to Congress, right? When, let's say, one of the NATO allies is invaded and Article 5 is triggered, Congress then, members of Congress could then argue with each other and say, we made a deal. It's a treaty. We must adhere to it. We are, our, our promise, the American promise is good for what? And they could have that argument and then they could vote. And my guess is they would vote to go to war and uphold Article 5 in NATO, but it shouldn't be automatic. And by the way, there are a lot of treaties that the United States has signed that are not honored by Congress. It's not automatic. I mean, these Democrats are arguing that Article 5, because it's a treaty, it's automatic. That's not true. Look at all the treaties that we made with Native Americans that we don't adhere to at all. We just throw them by the wayside and act like they don't exist. We ignore treaties constantly. So, I mean, it happens on a regular basis. So for them to say, well, no, we made it, it's a treaty, we've got it, it's Article 5, it automatically triggers. That is not true. Congress should absolutely vote on this. But instead, Congress never wants to vote on going to war because they know it's political suicide to take Americans into war, especially if Article 5 is triggered, triggered for a country like Montenegro. Do you even know where that is? Suddenly you're sending off your young men to, to war 
in Montenegro and you don't even know where that is. They know it's political suicide, so they don't want to have to put their names on it. That's why they ultimately don't want to vote. They'd rather leave it with the generals, leave it with the president, and keep it out of Congress. That is why Congress is the most ineffective branch of our government. They're just bought off worrying about campaigning all the time, worrying about keeping their seats, and it's ridiculous. And also with Article 5, it does need to be debated with Congress because what is an attack? There have been times when NATO countries go at it with each other and they're they're attacking one another. This happens with Turkey, Greece and Turkey. What so that, that we we must have the debates. We must have the discussions. There needs to be nuance. What constitutes an attack? What if it's very small? Is that suddenly we're going to war? What if it's these are the types of nuances that need to be debated in Congress. That's why it should go to Congress in it is built into our constitution and yet here you've got a bunch of Democrats and a lot of Republicans wanting to dismiss the Constitution. In fact, the vote record, it was 16 yeas to 83 nays in the Senate. All 16 were Republicans. So there, you know, what happened to the Democrats being the war, the anti-war party doesn't exist. Instead, it's Republicans who voted for this uh, measure that, that Congress would need to vote to go to war. And it was a bunch of Democrats and some Republicans who voted against that. Um, you've even got Democrats or independents like Bernie Sanders. He voted against this. Bernie Sanders, of all people, voted against this. Warren Elizabeth voted against this. So did Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. So there you go, a bunch of warmongers. I never thought I would see the day Bernie Sanders would be a warmonger, but here he is. He usually was the one you could count on to always vote against all this crap, and yet he's just fallen in line. I don't understand it, but um, so... Yeah, I mean, there you go. If Article 5 is triggered, there will be no congressional vote. The American people won't truly have a say. We didn't have a say when they added all these countries into NATO. We had no say in that. They added them in one by one, countries you've never heard of or even know where they are on a map. And now um, we, can, we just end up at war and there's no congressional vote. What's the point? What's the point of even having a constitution at this point? When it comes to just censor everybody and march us into war, what's the point of having a constitution? <laughs> All right, I want to tell you about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically good proven book. to quickly relieve and effectively... That's a good call to action she's got there. That's a good call to action. <laughs> all right, so for the benefit of the audience, we're trying all sorts of audio uh, shenanigans on the back end. And then if this doesn't work out, I have another backup plan. So we're going to keep trying and we're going to keep playing clips as we go through because this is how we get the show done. Um, commentary on that is she brought up a lot of good points about how NATO has been encroaching, how the American public does need the vote to go to war. You can't just have these ongoing wars for 20 years over framed bad guys that really just lead back to the guys that are waging the wars in the first place. So it's very inconvenient to their narrative to have these sort of facts being put out there. And uh, there's a lot in the, the Ukraine situation that is draining American resources, draining American uh, personnel, draining American ammunition. Now, I know they're just using the old ammunition so they can order new stuff. And this is one of the proxy you know, ploys that the military uses is they send their old stuff to these other countries like Saudi Arabia and all these other countries that are the allies in the in the in this whole thing so ukraine is not getting the best of anything except you know the people we're sending we're sending old equipment is the point we're not sending them the new stuff 
And uh, they might try out some new stuff that we haven't used on other people yet, because that's another thing they do in war is they test out new weapons. They test out their uh, drones that are weaponized and all these other things that they got going on. So uh, as that. Of the uh, the military industrial media complex. Yeah, I mean, the uh, yeah, now we're sending them over, sending over cluster munitions because we're essentially out of all the, the stockpiles of the more modern munitions. What a surprise. Um, yeah, I mean, everything you said is, is spot on. Obviously, Article 5 at this point, <laughs> unfortunately, the Constitution seems to be a historical memory. Uh, it's sort of uh, one of the greatest political philosophic achievements in history, but seemingly nothing more than that at this point. When they continue to equivocate, when men of that lack any form of principle that are fundamentally unscrupulous and belligerent and wanton in their behavior. So, you know, don't stand up for the principles they believe in, regardless of financial gain, regardless of social gain, regardless of whatever forms of power that they want to achieve, since they've all embraced the pragmatic doctrine and the pragmatic philosophy. This is what becomes of it over time, especially the population itself which liberty requires consistent conscientiousness. We have to be aware. We have to attune our mind to what's happening. And we have to essentially be that force against tyranny. We as a, an individual, both as individuals and as a society is large, at large. And that unfortunately is being the population, not just in America, but around the world is being entranced by modern technology. That was a the theme of the entire, every episode we had in June in regards to cybernetics. And you continue this forward with what's happening in the world and the impact that psychological warfare, technology, media, all this stuff is having on individuals attempting to fight back against this, this monolithic behemoth, uh, chimeric behemoth, I must, must say, chimeric. But uh, still, there's many, many um, holes in the sewn-up job of this chimeric structure, this Frankenstein structure they've created, and there's plenty of ways in which we can fight against it. Worrying about a wartime, the War Act, um, and Article 5 associated with that War, Res War Powers Resolution 1973. First of all, that is such a classic analogy to any sort of like when you see hate crime associated with the language laws across the world, especially by the UN. It's the per same analogy because you can turn that into a slippery slope for anything you want. You can equivocate endlessly, meaning you can make up definitions, you can change definitions, you can confuse people. Same thing here. Where it's, it, it stops debate. And what happens here? What happens, whether it's hate crime or whether it's not allowing Congress to be able to vote uh, or at least to be able to have debates around going to war, the public has no idea what's going on. And you can use it as a casus belli, not even a casus belli. It's something that allows them to send supplies, send support, you know, send troops. We already had troops in Ukraine training, quote unquote, the military there. So it's it obviously it allows us it allows for the justification, quote unquote, um, through legislation for the continual uh, sort of uh, gladio style operations and limited warfare around the world. Well, you said the word equivocation several times, and I like to think of it as equivocation to be speaking with many voices, mm -hmm. right? They're saying one yes. thing, they're doing a different thing. You know, it's very contradictory. And once they get people to accept those speaking with many voices, then they don't notice the contradictions so much anymore. And that brings us to 
it wasn't just Soros that was setting up Ukraine for this NATO situation. And Soros did in 1993 provide NATO with a personal meeting for which they had a pamphlet, which was called Toward a New World Order, NATO and the Future of Europe. This was his plan. He's doing it now. But I also remember a certain vice president having some dealings with the Ukrainians and specifically a Burisma type situation. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene also probably figured this angle out. That is the uh, the thumbnail for this week's show. So I do want to get that clip early in the show. So let's go to uh, Congress and let's Your see. Your synced up now, by the way. Oh, right on. I don't know how it happened. I'm assuming it's Cody and LD like typing back and forth and changing all these settings. But uh, the the Zoom gods are with us now. I sacrificed the Tootsie Roll at the altar of technology and everything is, is working well. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Congress. Quick, yeah, what do you yeah. got? What do you got? NATO expansion. National what? Security Archives. 35. Yeah. NATO expansion. So this is Gorbachev George Washington School. Declassified document. Yeah. Of security. This is legit site. I see the background. Yeah. Yeah, this is the NS Archive, DW, George Washington University, edu. It's National Security Archives. Uh, and here it says declassified, there you have, obviously Michelle Gorbachev discussing German unification with Hans Dietrich Genscher, Helmut Kohl in Russia. This would be July 15th, Are they, are they meeting at Bohemian secure- Grove? <laughs> that was my first thought. I'm like, are they Dude, in the deep they? redwood forest up there? And like... I'm like, that's a very strange place to be. Maybe they're in some sort of like equivalent over in Europe somewhere. Who knows? Uh, in the Ardennes forest, maybe. Declassified documents show security assurances against NATO expansion to Soviet leaders from Baker, Bush, uh, Genser, Cole, Gates, uh, Mitterrand, Thatcher, Hurd, Major, and Warner. A Slavic studies panel addresses, quote, who promised what to whom on NATO expansion? It basically gets into the history that the fact that let's see here let's read a little bit here washington dc december 12 2017 u.s secretary of state james baker's famous quote no one inch not one inch eastward end quote assurance about nato expansion in his meeting with soviet leader mikhail gorbachev on february 9th 1990 was part of a cascade of assurances about soviet security given by western leaders to gorbachev and other soviet officials throughout the process of german unification in 1990 and on and on into 1991, according to declassified U.S., Soviet, German, British, and <laughs> French documents. Why didn't they just bring Russia into by the NATO. National Security Archives? Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's a good question. It's like they it's, were our you know, ally they, during they, World they really War embraced II. the philosophy of Hegel. They set up, you know, they really like that sort of uh, dialectical theory. You know, they, I guess that allows them to control history. They they really got embedded with that Hegel nonsense hegelian nonsense so just just notice right, so that's patterns the setup like to set up yeah. artificial oppositions yeah that's the setup for what you're about to see now in congress those artificial oppositions are going to come to a juxtaposition and you're going to see this hunter biden <laughs> laptop that does not exist apparently according to the fbi for 19 months when they had it and we're probably jerking off no i didn't 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 no that was a zoom glitch i don't know who did that who said that but they were admiring it heavily heavily and steadily watching all those videos on his laptop now marjorie taylor green has brought some still photo snapshots to show congress so we're gonna go ahead to that clip and i'm gonna work on any uh if zoom is fixed then i'll undo the audio corrections i did we'll see how that works out let's go to the clip i didn't know if it was uh, to answer 
Mr. Are you finished? Someone else can follow okay. up. I've right. seen okay. someone okay. could see. Yeah, you're, you're correct, Rules. Yep. Gentlemen's time's expired. Chair now recognizes Ms. Green for, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before we begin, I would like to let the committee and everyone watching at home that parental discretion is advised. I would also like to remind everyone that on our oversight committee, we provide oversight into all parts of the federal government, including their Department of Justice and their, their willingness to prosecute and their unwillingness to prosecute and whether it's politically motivated. Um, I would also like to say that when evidence and proof of a crime is presented, no prosecution should be denied, no matter who the person is. Uh, to the whistleblowers today, I thank both of you for your courage to come to the committee today and your commitment to, to truth. Uh, I have great respect for it, so thank you. I would like to talk with you both about Hunter Biden and his tax write-offs with his law firm, Owasco. I would like to ask uh, Mr. Ziegler, when did you start your investigation and your testimony? It was November 2018. Is that correct? Yes or no? Yes, that's correct. Thank you. During your testimony with the, House, with the House Ways and Means Committee, you stated that through bank records, you identified Hunter Biden was paying prostitutes related to a potential prostitution ring. Is that correct? Yes or no? Yes, that's correct. I've also reviewed that those same bank reports, commonly referred to as SARS, suspicious activity reports, and I'm very troubled by them. We read thousands of them in the Treasury. This particular excerpt from a SARS report talks about human trafficking uh, and in regards to Hunter Biden and Owasco and, and payments he was making. What's even more troubling to me is that the Department of Justice has brought no charges against Hunter Biden that will vindicate the rights of these women who are clearly victims under the law. Um, I would like to talk about in your prior testimony, you stated that the prosecutorial team was investigating violations of the Mann Act. Is that correct, Mr. Ziegler? That is correct. Regarding the Mann Act, if a person is transported across state lines for sexual activity, such as pros prostitution, that could be a violation of a federal law. Is that correct? Uh, I actually recently looked at the federal law regarding Mann Act, and I believe that that is correct, but I would refer you to the DOJ manual. Thank you. I would like to uh, present this to the committee. This is showing Hunter Biden paying for a victim's United flight from L.A. to Dulles. This was a, I believe this is a violation of the Mann Act. This is Hunter Biden's, this is his uh, proof that he bought the ticket. He bought it for this woman right here. Um, she, he flew her from Los Angeles to Washington on June 14th, flew her back to uh, Los Angeles, California on June 15th of 2018. And I would like to um, point out that if he was purchasing her a plane ticket for sex and traveling across state lines, do you believe that to be a violation of the Mann Act, Mr. Ziegler? So I can talk to specifically what's in my, tran or what's in my transcript regarding the Mann Act. So. I know we were compiling the information together. Yes, but Mr. Ziegler, travel, as, as the law states, by the, by the code of the law, it states traveling, paying someone to go across state lines 
is, is prostitution. It's a violation of the Mann Act. Let me just move on just one more, one more second here. Uh, so when, her, when Hunter Biden paid for this woman to do this with him, to travel across state lines from California to Washington, D.C. on June 15th, this is a violation of the Mann Act. This was prostitution. Let me continue. Did Hunter Biden also use his company, Owasco PC, to pay prostitutes? Can you hold on one second? Mm, chairman? Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll give you this additional time back. Thank you. That was So regarding Mann Act violations, what we can do is, given by the statute, uh, we can turn those over to the House Ways and Means Committee, and then we can they, they can decide to vote to turn them over to you regarding Mann Act. Yep, thank you, Mr. Ziegler. Um, so talking about Hunter Biden using his company, Owasco PC, to pay prostitutes, this is also a suspicious activity report showing that victim one, the, the woman that was paid for prostitution, that traveled from California to Washington, D.C., paid for by Hunter Biden. This is a, an excerpt from a SARS report that we've read in the Treasury, and I think you, you all have looked at these two, showing that victim one was supposedly an employee of Owasco. Um, but, but I would like to point out, this is not really what most paralegals do for law firms. Um, and, and it's very serious that Hunter Biden was paying this woman through his law firm and then writing it off as business tax exemptions. Most, most people write off, uh, you know, their write off things for their taxes through their businesses like a meal or, uh, say, office supplies. Um, but can you confirm for me that Hunter Biden had written off payments to prostitutes through his law firm, Owasco? I appreciate the question given by the statute. Uh, I'm limited in my testimony today, and I, I respectfully would need to turn those records over to the House Ways and Means Committee. Okay, thank you, Mr. Ziegler. One, one, last, one last question. Uh, you referred to one of the assistants as West Coast assistant. I believe this is the West Coast assistant. Could you agree with that? So I can tell you that there were deductions for what we believe to be escorts, and then that $10,000 golf club membership Yes, that was not a golf club membership. That was for a sex club payment. That was for a sex club payment. Um, payments such as this through from, from Hunter Biden to prostitutes. Um, also, Mr. Shapley. Come on. Mr. Chairman, um, we're at 1 minute and 53 seconds over. As long as Ms. Ocasio-Cortez can get equal time, I, she can I, keep going. I, I will uh, let, let uh, Ms. Green wrap up. Uh, Five seconds, and thank then uh, I'll give Mr. Mafume additional time. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Shapley, you, you started an investigation into Hunter Biden, codenamed Sportsman, which opened in November of 2018. Um, it, it was an offshoot of an investigation the IRS was conducting into a foreign-based amateur online pornography platform. Um, this this is evidence uh, of, of Hunter Biden Mr. Chairman, making sex. Excuse me, this is my time. Making pornography 
Should we be displaying this, Mr. Chairman, in the committee? The lady's time has expired, and uh, went two and a half minutes Mr. over. Chairman, Mr. Bufume wants the two and a half minutes. He can have it if, if he wants to yield some to Ms. Ocasio-Cortez. When she goes, she can have it. We'll make it right. Two and a half minutes. You Mr. all have Chairman. an extra two and a half minutes. Chair, recognize Mr. Mr. Bufume for point five of order. minutes. Point of order, Mr. Chairman. You get it two minutes. You get extra two minutes. You get extra two minutes. You get extra two minutes. <laughs> I would think that was an episode of Candid Camera, except oh, it looked like God. it came from Hunter's Candid <laughs> Camera. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, political theater at its worst <laughs> and most egregious. I mean, those, those uh, quite explicit <laughs> poster she's holding up there. That's, can you, that's fantastic. I mean, that's can you horrible, imagine working in her office? Like the level. Okay, so you're you're like a staffer at, at MGT or M MTG, right? MTG. You're you're a staffer in her office. So you're a Washington kid or whatever. You you move there. You got some connections. You're getting eighteen grand a year. You think you're working in Congress. You're working in the government. And you, oh, you got an important presentation to do, MTG? Let me help out. Oh, you need some slides put onto a board? I would love to go to Kinko's and do that for you. Oh, you need me to put black rectangles on what? I can't even believe that was somebody's job. My taxpayer dollars, your taxpayer dollars helped to pay that young staffer put rectangles on that dude's schwanz or schlong or whatever, however you want to say it. They put it over his dick, right? And <laughs> that is not something I expected to see on the floor of the Congress. Well, leave it to Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Green, and to pull off such a stunt. She would be the one that has enough balls to attempt such a feat. So kudos to her for being that conspicuous yeah, she, with the absurdity. She collects them. She, she collects them from the politicians <laughs> she vanquishes with her arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could seriously make an RPG game with her as like the as you know the protagonist. So it would work out. RPG MTG coming to a store near you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, the, so that's one end of the, the Biden spectrum, if you want to call it. Now we have this other story. That's the $5 million bribe and all tying into Burisma. And it really makes what Joe Biden, former vice president, by the way, said on the floor of the CFR when he's talking with a Rhodes scholar, Richard Haas, you know, chairman of the CFR. And he's like, some bitch he got fired and then they got their billion dollars right he tells that whole story very candidly very openly he's like hey i'm i'm with friends at the cfr i can tell you guys what i can't tell america and then america starts to see that video and they wonder hmm is this what tony means by equivocation because the dude seems to be saying two different things at the same time and it's like janice the two-headed and they gaslight the public in order Rome back to in the make day. people confused yeah, <laughs> and then the yeah, it's like you that don't understand, views. Tony. So it's, yeah, right, right. Was it the? Uh, no, it's you with the. You know, and when been... they, well, the other part was like in that clip with Rand Paul and some of the clips that I've seen this week. It's like the left is gaslighting, but it's only affecting their audience. They're they're effectively gassing their own audience with light. Not like not not the truth. They're they're lying to their audience because the people that are on our side, we see that for what it is. The only people who actually believe, like uh, we'll get to the clip with uh, the advertiser for Dep Gel and uh, many brands of Moose, 
Uh, we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about her name later, but uh, she's going to be coming up and she might have these political axes to grind uh, in a way that's not being clear, made clear to the audience. These are the things that are going to come up later in the show as we get to topics like, should we cure anti-Semitism with MDMA? That's a story tonight. And it's a, a proposed plan because anti-Semitism has been a growing problem and MDMA could be the solution for that. That's a, that's a new story out there. Um, yeah, the fact okay, that so there is actual evidence. I got to reset my audio to right. zero. I got you. Yeah. Now I was just reading notes okay. from Cody as we're doing it live. Again. All right. So uh, I want to go to the show charisma story, the $5 million. Yeah. The $5 million bribe story is the next one. Yeah. And that's where Victor Shokin, he was appointed the position of prosecutor general of Ukraine. And that's where I think he, that's the one they say, if you don't fire him, uh, I think that was that one, Victor Shokin. So anyway, and that's where that when effort. Trump called Zelensky to be like, why'd you guys fire him? Then they impeached. They tried to impeach Trump. They tried to so we're going to go to this clip. This is, uh, Biden getting a five million dollar, five million dollar bribe. And uh, while we're doing that, I'll adjust my audio settings and we'll see if this works. After this clip. I'm sorry. Is that. Uh, that's the old clip of him. Uh, it's in a YouTube playlist. It's the. Has five million in the title. Five million dollar bribe Biden. Kim Iverson. And it's a humdinger. Yeah, that should work. All right. Yeah, that that was. Uh, yeah, there was a Kim Iverson there. Yeah. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. Well, there's another layer in the Burisma Biden scandal. Today, Senator Chuck Grassley released an unclassified FBI document alleging that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden coerced Burisma CEO Mikola Zlijewski to pay them $5 million in exchange for their help in getting the Ukrainian prosecutor investigating the company fired. With us now with more details is radio talk show host and political analyst Garland Nixon. Garland, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Kim. So uh, you, you've been really following this uh, really well and breaking this down nicely for a lot of people that are listening to your show. Um, so help us understand this. What was this document that was released by Senator Grassley today? Well, it was an FBI document. And as I understand it, <clears throat> it's um, what a lot of law enforcement uh, officers would call an investigation report, right? It's you, you know, and you you start an investigation and you write a report. This is the basics. This is what I have, and their form is the one uh, ten twenty three or something like that. But at, at any rate, so um, what we found was that um, apparently in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty the FBI had talked to a source. This person apparently was very high up in the company Barisma, um, where Hunter Biden worked. And, and I will add this, this isn't a Hunter Biden scandal, this is an FBI scandal, to be quite frank. Um, oh. So 
what we found out is that, I mean, more to me, it's more of an FBI, uh, FBI scandal than a, than a Hunter Biden scandal, because what the guy comes to the FBI and, you know, we all kind of have a little bit of an idea of what happened. You know, Joe Biden was pretty much running Ukraine. He was pretty much what the, the, the British would use the term viceroy back in their colonial days when they overthrew a government, a, a country, they put somebody in charge. That person would be either called the governor or the viceroy, a colonial ruler. That's what Joe Biden Biden was for Ukraine. Um, but it, interestingly enough, immediately after he became the colonial ruler of Ukraine, um, Burisma, a large gas company, then hired his son. And they also hired a guy named Kofor Black, who was a very high-ranking former member of the CIA. And they also ha ha hired the former prime minister of Poland. So mm -hmm. it was a, uh, a shady crew going on here. Well, what we found out now is some of one of the high ranking members of this company, Burisma, went to the FBI and told them a number of things, including that they hired um, uh, Hunter Biden specifically so that he could use his father to get the cases. They had um, a number of investigations going on against them specifically so that his father could get those cases closed. In fact, an email recently came from, uh, was, was uh, unearthed from Hunter Biden's laptop in which the guy sent an email complaining to Hunter Biden saying, look, we wrote up what we wanted you to do and you didn't write any there that your job was to stop these cases. And he said, but I understand if you, you know, wanted to keep that quiet, but we want to make sure that you understand we are hiring you to get these cases closed against our co uh, company. Keep in mind something. We saw the video. A month later, Joe Biden fires the prosecutor in that in, in, there, and he hires a new, the, the, the equivalent of our attorney general. He hires a new person, but they, the, the government in Ukraine had to change the law because the new quote, I guess, attorney general that they hired wasn't even a lawyer. So they bring a guy in who's not a lawyer. The guy closes all the cases. It's over. This guy also tells the FBI, I have um, audio recordings. When I talked to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, I recorded the audio and I got them just in case I got in a jam. He tells, he spills the beans on everything. Yeah, you know, they're rotten to the core. We we paid them. And he says in there, I had to pay $5 million for each Biden. Now, does that mean Hunter and Joe? Does that mean Hunter and his brother? But I would think that the FBI would be inclined to look into that. So yeah. this is 2018 and 2020. Remember, June of 2020 is one of the times that they did that. Now, think about why I say it's an FBI scandal. A, an informant comes to the FBI and says, this stuff about Hunter Biden is, this is it. Joe Biden was involved. It's a scandal. It's a scam. They're all crooked. They And the guy says, I don't really want to hire Hunter Biden. They kind of forced me to do it. I was coerced into doing it. And I've got the audio tapes with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Okay, so the FBI has all of this information and they have the laptop, so they have the emails to corroborate this. So what does the FBI do? Do they investigate it? They know now we got Joe Biden, as we used to say in, 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 in investigations, we got him by the short and curlies, right? Got Joe Biden, got Hunter Biden, got him. FBI, do they move on it? No. The FBI then takes the initiative to contact Twitter and Facebook and says to them, look, 
If anybody comes to you and says that there's a Hunter Biden laptop out there and that there's some evidence about Joe Biden, don't believe it. It's Russian disinformation and propaganda. Make sure you're prepared to censor it. And then they go help them censor it. So they knew that it was true. They had the evidence. They had a, a witness. Supposedly, if they did anything at all, they had the audio tapes. And instead of looking into it, they lied and did a cover-up. This is an FBI scandal of an incredible magnitude. Yeah. I mean, that is political, uh, that's election interference. They, Joe Biden was running against Donald Trump at the time in, in when was it June of 2020 is when they, is when the, this whistle, this uh, informant came forward the second time. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, that's not surprising, right? Because we've seen them do everything they possibly can to stop Trump, right? I mean, it's just, we've seen thing after thing after thing, just anything to stop Trump. And so it's, but why do you think the FBI, I mean, at the time, Trump was president of the United States. So why would the FBI and, you know, we, I've seen a lot of stuff coming out lately, like the DOJ, the FBI, but it was all under Trump's administration. Why would they be so anti-Trump and pro-Biden? I mean, at what point did law enforcement switch to more Democrat and supporting Democrats? It's just really confusing to me. Well, there's something else going. One other thing, I'm glad you brought up Trump. There's another important factor here, and that is the guy first apparently came to them according to what we see in 2018, according to what we're understanding, the evidence is coming out now. In 2019, in July of 2019, Donald Trump called Zelensky and said, the Bidens are up to no good in Ukraine. I think you need to do an investigation. And what did they do? Did they do an investigation? Now, remember, this was 2019. This guy had already, some informants had already, they already knew that the Bidens were up to no good. So what did they do? They went after Trump, if you remember yeah. that. And they impeached Trump for calling Zelensky and saying, look into Bidens, but Biden because they're no, they know, because he's crooked. And they, they didn't have the laptop until December of that year. So they didn't have the laptop, but they had an informant. So they knew it. So they impeached Trump knowing that what Trump was implying was 100% correct, and they hid it. Now, this it, it, the, the, the term deep state comes to mind because, of course, everybody knows there are people that they don't care about Democrat or Republican. They've got a the things that they do, and whoever comes in office has to listen to them or get crushed, right? So yeah. at the time, and I've learned this, I, I interviewed a guy, Aaron Matei interviewed him also, named Andre Telejinko. Andre worked for the um, U.S. Embassy. He worked for Blue Star Strategies, which was the company that was in the middle of the Hunter Biden, of this whole thing. The guy worked for them. And he said, look, this wasn't Hunter and Joe. The deep state was in on this. So, so the FBI, remember, the FBI, now how weird is this? When the U.S. overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014, Comey and the FBI went to Ukraine and opened a branch, and they called it the NABU, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau. What the hell is the FBI doing opening it? You know, they're supposed to be a law enforcement agency in the United States looking up kidnappings and bank robberies and terror. They go to Ukraine and they open a branch there. So the bottom line is this, the corruption was ubiquitous and Hunter Biden was also involved in funneling money to the, um, the bio research research labs, right? 
So the corruption was ubiquitous. There was a, a river of corruption going through and Hunter Biden and Joe went in and they stuck their hand in the water and they took out their little piece. But uh, clearly we're looking at a very, very broad corruption, corruption scheme, which means this, Congress won't touch it because they're scared yeah. to death of the intelligence community. Well, it seems like a lot of people aren't touching it. I mean, if this is, I mean, Chuck Grassley, there's definitely a lot of Republicans right now that are trying to expose it, but they would probably stop short at when they've got people on their side who are, all, because you know, this is not just Democrats who, if this is a big corruption scandal, they've got Ukraine, they're now thinking we've got a bunch of money to be made in Ukraine. Everybody in the establishment, everybody is going in there and trying to get a piece of that pie. So that's gotta be affecting people on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, you know, but we're only hearing about Hunter and Joe really because it's political, because they're trying to get to where Joe can't run for president or that Joe has to step aside. I don't, I mean, honestly, as if it's good, I mean, they should be investigating for sure, but if they're just doing this for political reasons, they should think twice about this. I would think if this is a political strategy, because if Joe Biden is forced to step aside, then you have to run somebody else who's more competent, who's not going to be falling asleep at the wheel, literally. Uh, running against a Republican, and that means that you may lose, right? Like they pretty much have a, a, a shoe-in win, I think, if Joe Biden runs again, and they, all any Republican they throw up against him, I think, is going to win. But if you remove Joe Biden and you put in somebody like I don't know Gavin Newsom, who's they they would probably shoe in, um, or, you know, maybe I, I can't imagine them putting Kamala Harris there, but maybe I, I just think it'd be harder to win an election. So it's interesting to me that. This is looking political to me on both sides. I don't know what your opinion is on that, but it seems to be a piss poor strategy for Republicans. But what do you think? I mean, do you think that there's an honest effort to do this investigation or do you think it's just a political investigation? Well, two things, whether or not it's honest, I will say I do believe that it's good that this information is coming out because yeah. we're able to get it. We are able to broadcast it on alternative media. You know, the mainstream media is not going to be screaming about this. And the people are able to, you know, as Julian Assange said, you don't have a democracy if you don't know what the heck that the people in charge are doing. So right. the good thing about it is we are able to tell people what's going on here. And when the Republicans push it as a Hunter Biden scandal, we're able to clarify with the because the scandal here is not Hunter Biden. Yeah, Hunter Biden's crooked. We know that. Come on. I mean, the guy is farcical at this point. Every other week, there's a new, you know, a, a crack binge video on, you know, Telegram about him. That's not relevant. Right. But the reality is you have to look at it and say, wait a minute. I mean, when you look at what the FBI has done over the past several years, where they have literally lied and covered covered things up. When we look at the Trump investigation, they literally lied and covered they covered things up. They made up they made up things. Add this: a a, a lot of the information re regarding um or a good significant amount of the information regarding the um Trump and uh, 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 the cr Crossfire Hurricane investigation came out of Ukraine. Uh, yeah. uh, they when they took out um, Paul Manafort, where did that information came from? It came from Nabu. It came from the FBI's branch in Ukraine that took out Manafort, and they had to come back after the investigation and say, "Oops, that was fake. All of it was wrong. It was actual fake information that the FBI." put in and said, Manafort's got to go. We have this ledger where he did all of this dirt. And as soon as Trump won, they, they said, oh yeah, by the way, that information with the ledger was all false. Oops, sorry about that.
So what we are seeing here is the deep states being exposed. And now the question is, I mean, come on, you and I are looking at saying the FBI had this in 2018 and 2020 and their reaction was to call Twitter and lie. This, yeah. this is the minimum in law enforcement. You know what I'd have been charged with? Malfeasance of duty. Minimum is malfeasance. You have a duty to do that investigation and nobody's being in charge. Where's the special counsel? I, I don't think there will be one because of the, the, the Republicans are scared to death. This would expose the deep state and the endemic corruption there. Um, Joe Biden's other boy, his name is Amos Hochstein. Look that name up. When he was in the Biden administration, at the same time Hunter Biden goes to Burisma, there was another com company called Naftogaz. That is the official gas company of Ukraine. Amos Hochstein leaves the, the Trump, the Obama administration and does the same thing. He gets a job on the board of Naftogaz. And he's there cleaning up. So you're, it's got these people leave, sending their kids, leading the, leaving the Obama administration, going all jumping on the boards of directors for these companies. And what does Joe Biden do two years later? As soon as he gets in, he calls Amos Hochstein. Look it up. Anybody can look this up. Just, just, just search it. And he assigns Amos Hochstein as the guy to stop the Nord Stream uh, from uh, um, um, a pipeline from from going through and being enacted. And and Amos Hochstein is over in Israel. Last time I checked, he was in Israel and he was working on these gas fields that Israel's trying to steal from Lebanon. They're trying to steal the gas from like Lebanon and the Palestinians. So Amos Hochstein's in the middle of that. But where was he a couple of years ago? Just like a, a hunter, he was in Ukraine at the, at the uh, on the on the um, on one of the gas boards. And he's one of Joe Biden's right-hand men. They ain't gonna touch this. They ain't touching it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, and who blocked Andre Telejenko from coming to Congress? He was supposed to come to Congress and testify. Mitt Romney blocked it. So he couldn't testify. So are yeah. they gonna look? They literally blocked the guy that was coming to Congress to testify about this corruption. A guy who worked for the US Embassy, a guy who worked for Blue Star Strategies, a guy who was the assistant to the prosecutor general that got fired. He was new about the cases. He worked on the cases. Mitt Romney blocked him so he couldn't go and testify to everything that he knew in front of Congress. Yeah, I think you're right. This thing, this is a, this is much bigger than the Bidens. And, and I would say even bigger than the FBI. This is a massive, now that you're, you know, I'm starting to put the pieces together in my mind and I'm thinking, what do Israel and the and Ukraine have in common? There's one thing that those two countries have in common because what we know about Israel is that they have they have operated often we've used their intelligence and military to do operations that we cannot legally do, right? In the United States. So we've we've kind of tasked the Israelis with some of those some of those more, you know, the the sketchier tasks that the United States Constitution prevents us from doing. The the one thing that those two countries have in common is that they're new countries. And when you've got a new country, you're able to, in a lot of ways, make it a vassal state of the United, it's just like another piece of the US, right? It's like a vassal state. And so Ukraine was this unique opportunity because it was this country that broke off from the USSR, very new, it's only what, 30 years old or so. And there's an opportunity, the, the, basically the, the power players see an opportunity to be able to go in and run a country that doesn't 
have to adhere to the United States Constitution. So we've got, you know, the Israeli military that we fund and we've, we've given tons of resources to in order to pull off operations that we can't really do. And now we've got Ukraine, a, a country, a government, an area where they're able to do things that you can't get away with here in the United States. The Constitution prevents it. So it's interesting. I mean, this is kind of a bigger idea that I'm that I'm just sort of, you know, it's all kind of coming together to me like, wow, OK, this is so this is how it works. Like this is how deep the corruption runs that they're, they they find these other countries that they're able to run their operations through without the oversight of the United States. And it's the government, it's the power players, it's oligarchs, essentially, American oligarchs, wealthy corporations, all of these, they're all involved, they're all in bed, and they see this opportunity, and it's a playground. It's like their version of Vegas, right? It's like <laughs> government Vegas. Yeah. Think of Havana so that, before, um, you know, before the, the revolution in Havana. That's what it was. The mafia was there. The CIA was there. The rich people. And what did they do? They went there for their sexual escapades, for drugs, anything they wanted. They did in Havana until, yeah. you know, Castro overthrew it and took that. Tour. But it was a playground of crime and corruption. So what did yeah. they do? They take over Ukraine, the most one of the most corrupt countries on Earth. And, and now they it's go a in there and they're like. Man, yeah. everybody's going to get paid here. And right. now, and, so and, and what, what we, the problem they have is some of this stuff is coming out. And the thing I find interesting is you got to ask the FBI. This guy contacted you and said, okay, I've got audio tape of Joe Biden. Yeah. Yes, I talked to him and I got, re re and I have recorded the uh, conversations. What'd they do? Did they have the, the conversation? Did they ask him? A, I bet they destroyed him. If they, they probably got him and tried their best to destroy him. And, and I'm wondering where this guy is and what his health is like today. And if he's healthy, well, yeah, he better watch his back. I'll just put it like they that. They probably also don't want to investigate because, you know, it's just like why members of Congress don't point at the other one for corruption and taking big money. It's because they're all doing it. And so nobody wants to really investigate because, okay, you've got tapes of this guy talking, but you probably have tapes of this other guy and tapes of the other guy and maybe tapes of me. So let's just, let's just push this under the rug. There's a big, it's like Vegas. Like don't, you don't want to expose one cheater because then all of us are going to get, all of us are going to be exposed. So just, let's just push this under the rug and not talk about it. Unreal. I'm Garland. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, really painting the picture of this, because you're right, this is a much bigger scandal, I think, than just Hunter and Joe. And, you know, this this may go much, much deeper than that. Where can people listen to you so that they can get more of this great information? Um, follow me on, on uh, online at Garland Nixon on Twitter. And, of course, I have my YouTube show. That's where you can find me. I'm there pretty regularly. All right, Garland. Thank pretty you so much. much at least us. every other day or every day I'm doing a video about something. Well, uh, all right. Great, great information. Thank you, Garland. Incredible information, actually. Uh, it totally cooperates. <laughs> yeah, right. They Naboo. had uh, what was right. that? It wasn't Doobie. It was called Nabu. That was the that was the Intel branch. They're getting their data from Nabu. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought I got mixed up with a yeah. Star Wars clip or something for a second, and then I had to continue to listen a little bit closer Episode to that. Episode one all over again. Nabu caught me off guard. I had not heard National Anti-Corruption Bureau. Has an Intel source. National Anti-Corruption Bureau. That's hilarious. So there's no infringement What's with Lucasfilm whatsoever because it's spelled differently. <laughs> uh, having fun. <laughs> having fun. In Naboo. Uh, in Naboo.
Yeah, man. There, there's uh trying to think. So was, uh, uh, back at the no, beginning I'm of that clip, geeky Star Wars he, <laughs> back at the beginning of that clip, he had said something to the effect of, um, or they were talking about like the imbalance, like uh, the Justice Department and FBI had had swung to the Democrats, right? Like it was a political thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people do think it's political because they see this like the Democrats versus Trump and this whole thing, right? And then even though Christopher Ray at all, they're appointed by Trump, they're going against Trump, right? And then the Democrats are like, look, his own people that he appointed are the ones doing this. I don't see the Justice Department, FBI, et cetera, being on the side of the Democrats. I think it's wrong to think that they have a political agenda. They do not have a political agenda. They have an internationalist agenda. Because the people who created them have an internationalist agenda. Now, the Democrats just happen to be the party most embracing of the internationalist agenda. So if it if it goes in favor of globalism, or as David Rockefeller said, he's a proud internationalist. So let's call it internationalism tonight in honor of David, you know, trainer of uh, of Heinz. <laughs> I had uh, I'd opened a file for preview and it took an hour to open there. No, it's just open while I was talking. But uh, I don't think it's like a political thing. I think it's from on high. The deep state, as they call it, is an internationalist group who have clearly stated agenda and use nonprofit foundations to enact that agenda on America. And those foundations, including the Rockefeller, Ford, and Carnegie, were all involved top down in the CIA and all these other intelligence agency type activities. So it's it's reasonable then to say, wouldn't they have a similar effect on the you know, fair that's being offered to the public? You cut out there at the end there, but yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Let's not forget that in the early 2000s, PNAC, it was the it was essentially this uh, a false dialectic, this false dichotomy fallacy between Republicans and Democrats and the warmongers, the ones supporting internationalism and crony capitalism and oligarchism or the oligarchy were essentially the project for a new American century, the PNAC, Leo Straussian, University of Chicago acolytes. And they're the ones who came up with, let's call it the business plan for how we're going. We need a new Pearl Harbor, and then we need to get into the Middle East, and we're going to go to Afghanistan. We're actually going to go to uh, Iraq. Don't worry. We're going to get there. And now, if you ask children today, what happened in 9-11? Oh, that got us into Iraq. Not all children universally, but they they have such a mis- uh, an egregious misunderstanding that they forget Like the first step was getting into Afghanistan, in which case you had dying Corps, right? Military contractors and doing very sort of shady yeah the, well, the, the dancing weeks about human trafficking boys. so let's not forget right like this fucking evil shit and then we have the american troops guarding poppy fields see all of a sudden like then yeah then all of a sudden we're into iraq and we have colin powell they're getting him up there to say look you know here's the, the weapons of mass destruction and we have the video footage to prove it through satellites and drones or whatever they had back then surveillance reconnaissance uh, flight missions and so forth. So it's just uh, nowadays, 
It's swift. It's shifted, but it's the same sort of tactic or technique. It's more conspicuous for the Republican side and the PNAC side. It was very easy to look at. They're the evil warmongers. But leftist totalitarianism, leftist versions of fascism is more about tackling the culture. So they sort of ingratiated themselves with the with the young of the culture, those most uh, affected by you know romantic idealizations of the world. And have sort of used it as a smokescreen to hide behind when people still have this false conception that they're anti-war. They're 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 whatever the oligarch oligarchy tells them to be. Wherever the banking powers, the internet, the multi the the um, multinational corporations, whatever they need them to be, they are. Uh, they're like a flag in the wind. They blow whichever direction the wind is blowing. And so in that case, let's not forget that this is a false dichotomy set up purposefully. To give people the illusion of choice and those that are disillusioned which is many of us now have gotten to the point where we don't uh where there's so much free-floating anxiety with the inability to identify specifically what is happening because it's it's deep state actors people are unelected rulers which as you mentioned so often that becomes a situation where people are just tuning out completely which is even more disconcerting because then there's a, a situation where they're that if anything, I think the powers that be would love that even more, just dropping out of participation and civil duty and civil life altogether, whatever that means. And in, in the outset, what's going on? You still there or a video? Yeah, I, I broke I broke my camera. Yeah, why? Well, I, I, I was trying to fix OBS <laughs> and I broke stuff. Let me see. Well, That's let's, all. Uh, let's For quick. some reason, my camera, a background my camera disappeared, but my audio is still clear. Yeah, do some Heinz. 57 crazy. flavors. So first of all, before I even get to Heinz, assistant to Vic, must have been Victor Shokin, Andrei Telechenko. So here's he has recordings of Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden in discussion with Burisma executives. Essentially, <laughs> and Andrei Telechenko worked for Blue Star Strategies, which we went over that many, uh, many moons ago. We we're talking about the not the to be confused with that, Blue Star Airlines. No, that's different. No, that's different. That's right. Anyways, they blocked and Congress blocks the that's testimony from... by this whistleblower. I mean, that's that's hilarious. And when did the FBI go to other countries? I thought that was the CIA's job or the CIA is like, this wasn't important enough for us. Is that like the deal now? I don't know. I'm, just, I'm curious how people. What people You're asking think for a friend. Again. Let's get steal it back. <laughs> What's the FBI doing in other countries? It's not like they've run false. I mean, I, I, you'd think they act more domestically running false flags like they did with the first World Trade Center bombing. And there seems to be connections in many um, mass shootings. And then they had you know, situations with 9-11. You have a situation with the Boston bomb. I mean, my God. Um, uh, then you have the, the Whitmer scandal. You have, anyways, we could go on and on about FBI corruption. This isn't even going back to some of the really terrible stuff that happened with COINTELPRO and Hoover, which we went, on, went into in detail essentially infiltrating their own department, other departments, and uh, setting up like counterintelligence operations within them in order to disparage those characters or to be able to force. Uh, but essentially, it's you know what? It's like, an, it's like a government-sponsored blackmail operation. Huh. Blackmail. I've heard about that recently. Huh. Just again, yeah, just wondering where I heard that. Let's go to... Could it be one nation under blackmail? It's always it is certainly one nation under... It's the one world... One world under blackmail because this implicates the whole world at oh. this point. So, any it that's volume three. Don't spoil it. <laughs> Henry Kissinger, Heinz Alfred Kissinger, born in Bavaria, Germany, May 27, 1923. Let's see. Uh, the myth of Heinz Kissinger, the writer of the article. So, this is Johnny Vedmore's article. 
<clears throat> Dr. Klaus Schwab, we already covered this, but I just wanted to give people just a quick reminder. Dr. Klaus Schwab or how the CFR, CFR taught me to stop worrying and love the bomb. And talking about the World Economic Forum, the inception in Heinz Kissinger and a CIA-funded Harvard program headed by Heinz Kissinger and pushed to fruition by John Kenneth Galbraith and the real, quote-unquote, real Dr. Strangelove Herman Kahn. And so it gets into his history and the fact that a CIA-funded operation in the early 1960s saw Heinz Kissinger, Henry Kissinger Heinz, at the head of this, uh, essentially a model version of what became the young global leaders of the World Economic Forum, in a sense. Essentially people who train sophisticated levels of statesmen, national security advisors, um, secretaries of states, maybe some of those become prime ministers or presidents, depending on the country we're talking about. Those are the ones training these individuals. These these would be the ideologues. It'd be like the John Ruskin, if I remember correctly, of like the, the Cecil Rhodes, if you will. You know, who gave these individuals their philosophy? And Heinz is one of these individuals, obviously under Nixon uh, and Nellie Rock. So Rich mentioned earlier. So I just want to give people an insight. You can check it out, obviously, in Limited Hangouts. I think he has his own website now. Uh, yeah. So obviously, he was counterintelligence during World War II. Heinz Kissinger. The reason why I keep saying Heinz because you know I want to stress the German. The German element of his background a little bit, you know, Bavaria, Germany. Is that, was there something going on in Bavaria too a long time ago? I'm just, again, asking for a friend back in there the was late 17th something. century. Excuse me, late I don't 18th remember century, what it was, though. Late 18th century. Bavaria. Bavaria. Oh, like May, May 1st. Just, yeah. May Day. May Day. May Day. And it was happened uh, 1776, oh. if I remember correctly, too. Anyway, yeah, just, it's, just, it's, it's coincidental, though. It is very coincidental. I mean, that that that's nothing to see there. It's just coincidence theory. Rhyme, history rhymes. It doesn't repeat. And even then, the rhymes aren't always that great. So with that, I just want to give people some oversight of what was going on. Where's my playlist? Okay, here we go. Any, any thoughts on the next clips, or should we? Yeah, we I got, got a whole bunch. Uh, I, mean, I want to cover the RFK card. Jr. story, the Fauci story, and the oh, NPCs yeah, before yeah, we get out of the show later. But um, any particular here, order? Let, or just let me also let me see. Well, we're not going to do those next. Here, let me let me try this because this works better if I do this. Oh, is it not working? Come on, man. Hold on. Let me see. Growing freedom. How about that? There we go. Can you see that, Tony? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can right. see it. So I can hear I can hear I can hear Tony real time, but there's a five second delay before he hears me. So I'm just gonna keep talking for a second. Today in Florida, we got to go over to Jim Gale's food forest abundance kind of hacienda homestead that they're building over there. And it's all about growing food on your property. And it's a really, really cool. I wouldn't say it's an experiment because it's already working and people are embracing it all over the world, but it makes a lot more sense. We talk on the show a lot about how the British brought this culture to America of kind of killing off your native grasses and foods and planting some sort of, you know, ubiquitous seed that's all the same exact grass. Well, a food forest is the opposite of that. You're actually getting a design that starts with the concepts that you're trying to bring onto your property. And then you go and you do like a phase one and a phase two and year after year, you, you keep investing in growing food. 
because food is worth more or less in the future. Anyone? Anyone? Right. So if we're able to take like this depreciating, worthless money and we can start growing food on our properties and when things might go sideways in the world, we're not so dependent. Uh, anyway, Jim is an awesome character uh, in this whole theme. He's an evangelist for growing food. He's uh, very connected to nature and energy. He has a beautiful, beautiful property that I encourage everyone. If you're if you're anywhere near driving distance, go see how it's done right and then figure out how to do that for your property. Um, I'm going to have him on as a guest. Obviously we don't have the tech tonight to even do our own show, let alone have guests. But, uh, if you go over to foodforestabundance.com, you can start to see what he's got going on. He's got a couple other websites too. And I do have a video that I was in the midst of, uh, actually I'm on zoom. Let me try to see if I can do this button pressing type thing. I'll give you guys a real flavor. I'll do a little screen share here. I don't know if this is going to work. What do you think, Tony? You think it's going to work? I'm going to hit optimize, share audio. Let's see. I'm going to hit. It doesn't taste very good because it's bitter. What um, is it? Oregano? Cuban, yeah, it's Cuban oregano. Plant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We know yeah, this one. Yeah. yeah, Indian toilet paper. Yep. Yeah. It's antiseptic, too, of course. Dylan thought, has this growing right next no, to his no, no, outhouse. Mullen. mullen also. <laughs> yeah. He does. It's similar. similar. He has mullen growing. Does he? My buddy Kevin's always bragging about his swales. Yeah. Experiment where they boil. So he's got this amazing property. And there's just food growing all over the place. They're way better than any lettuces that you get at the store, in my opinion. And they're way more nutrient dense. It's called longevity spin. Now, what you guys are seeing, this was all sand 16 months ago. This was just all sand. And this is growing because of what he's doing with permaculture and understanding what you can do in various climates. And uh, I don't want to play the whole video. It's raw footage from earlier today, but this is part of Florida that I didn't know existed. This type of environment, there's a, a 400 uh, acre lake that's right off next to it. Uh, there's housing being built there. I didn't get the other cool houses, but they have, um, they have these container houses. Let's see. Screen sharing stopped. The window is closed. Good. All right. So uh, I will hit this button so you guys can see me again. Yeah. So they have like um, like Airbnb type of little apartments that they've built, but they also use them when they bring people in to do the training. And so there's like this whole cool, chill outdoor vibe. They have tennis courts. There's all sorts of amenities there. Bass fishing. They have this, you know, there's also alligators around and uh, fun stuff like that. So we're going to have Jim. On as a guest, he's spoken a couple times at the Exit and Build conferences that John Bush at all they hold over there in Texas. And uh, I have been interested in permaculture. And uh, Tony, you also, uh, we, we have a friend in common that's all into permaculture and got us permacultured up. And yeah. she also speaks about how the British got us to and I'm putting be less that into American and less you know, self-reliant. Yeah, right. Yeah. So times, they are a change in, and maybe it's time to get back to grandma and grandpa's ways of being a little bit closer to nature, not so dependent on the grid. And, you know, food is a type of currency that you can eat. And if you learn how to preserve it, uh, you can eat it in the future as well. So I think more and more people are interested in food, clean food, and lots of food. And our system and way of life is being pushed and broken. And, you know, so anyway. I wanted to put that on your radar, and uh, that was one part tonight where I didn't have to worry about my 
audio and video matching up or adjusting any settings. So I might do more screen sharing as we go on through tonight. I was also trying to get into the history blueprint. I can't get that open. I can't get it to open up. I can bring it up. Tech issues. Sometimes, sometimes you have to say, yeah, yeah, sometimes I just have to say, if the universe puts so many things, maybe it doesn't need to happen. And what's supposed to happen is already happening. So I try to pay attention and and switch focus and pivot and not try to force things. But uh, there are several points of fact that we can bring up through tonight and juxtapose it to the well, if you bring up the history blueprint, go ahead, because we were just talking about Heinz Kissinger. I'll I just want you to search yeah. on there, Tony, and show the audience how to, yeah, put it on screen and use the search box and type in ash can or dust bin. These are both uh, American and British projects during World War II to denazify and kind of identify the Nazis they wanted to keep. And Heinz Kissinger was instrumental in this selection yeah, process, which is why he held keys to power from such a young age was because of some of his actions going on during World War II. Now, right at the bottom in the middle of the screen, right where the blue meets that white, there's a little rectangle and it'll make it top and bottom instead of right and left for the the no. Yep, I got it. Your your sound cut out real quickly, so it'll come back in a second. To this Oh, if you're a Grand Theft World member, you have a link to what we're doing here on screen. So what we're it's actually substantial and uh, you can copy. You can get the link. Uh, It's in the members area. You could search ash can and dustbin and you can actually read these notes instead of trying to squint at your screen. You as a member of GrandTheftWorld.com, you have access to all this for your study and uh, edification on these topics that we talk about during the show. And so when I was researching Heinz Kissinger, yes, please do. Now, just real quick for edification, uh, camps, ash can, and dustbin. You have 465 map links. Um, you know, Alan W. Dulles, Chase Manhattan Bank, DOJ, U.S. Department of Justice, George F. Kennan. He's a very interesting figure, by the way. Henry uh, Henry Kissinger. He sat with Hitler so, in his John box Foster at Dulles, the John, Olympics in 19. Yeah, at the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. And under, and then you see the Green Berets. Essentially, this, if I remember correctly, wasn't it a training ground for assassins? In World War II or something. Well, that there's nature, Camp or X. British assassins before the war. Oh, oh I'm thinking of Camp yes, X. Yes, okay, I'm so sorry. there's a couple different ones. Sorry. Well, no, no, no. This yeah. is all tied in together, Tony, because the, the American yeah. uh, Special Forces lineage entirely goes back to British Special Forces lineage. And I know American Special Forces do not like to hear this, but these are facts. Delta Force was created by the SAS, the Special Air Services existed way before the 1960s when they started to create the delta force and formalized it in the 70s and 80s started using it you know grenada and these different places right it was the british combatives you go back to type in combatives in the history blueprint and you'll see uh straythern and fairbairn i forget their names fairbairn was one of the guys and these are the british guys and they they were working in like uh the far east and they, the one guy had over like 2,000 or 1,300 or some amazing number of street fights he had been in, right? So the histories of combatives wow. in the U.S. military services, I studied all of our branches. They all go back <clears throat> to the British SAS and the early commandos and Ian Fleming and operate. Uh, the, it was called the, the 40AU. 
the assault unit. I think it was called the 40 AU and this ties into British SOE and all the British infiltration, not infiltration, but they set up a headquarters in Rockefeller center with Nelson Rockefeller's blessing because he works for them. Their money comes from that empire. The Rockefellers did not do it by themselves. JP Morgan did not do it by himself, right? JP Morgan's dad, Junius Spencer Morgan was a partner in a London banking house. This is how like junior JP, J Pierpont Morgan, and then Jack Morgan Jr. got their whole power. That's like a hundred years from the mid 1800s to the mid 1900s. That's a lot of political and financial history. Those guys are tied up in. So all of these things uh, that Sykes Sykes and uh, not Pico, but Sykes and Fairbairn. Right. So the yeah, modern like combatants, knife, knife fighting. Eric yeah. Sykes, which is so Anthony, it's a fascinating history. Eric Anthony Schwab, which is interesting, sort of synchronous. Schwabians. Right? He's Klaus's. I'm not saying it's Klaus's great related to this, the tribe of Schwabia, but uh, just the weird synchronicity when I noticed that. So, not saying there's any connection at all. Now, there is a piece, there's a Peace Revolution episode all about this history that we're talking about. So, if you go back to, I don't know, maybe it's in the 80s, uh, it has to do with the history of combatives. Yeah, I'll go to that right now. And, uh, yeah. You would see a lot of the yeah, source were, material, the and were... you got like, yeah, there was uh, you know, there all the 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 history and lineage of the modern teachers. So, like a famous modern teacher of combatives is this guy who calls himself Jim Grover, but that's his pseudonym. He has another name I forget, and um, they produce a lot of stuff that trains special forces and the top you know tier one type of tactical units through history. So when you go back and see, well, who taught who taught that guy, Jim Grover? And then who taught that guy? And then who taught that guy? You end up back at Sykes and Fairbairn and they're like the 1920s, right after World War One is when they start putting all this together. And prior to that, they had the Wild Bill Donovan Rainbow Division <clears throat> kind of special group back in the day. Yeah, might have something to go on with the other things in the social political yeah. milieu. But we'll leave it there. But that's that's a brief history of like uh, the the combatives juxtaposed to the people who brought in the Nazis. Like a lot of these special forces did not exist until after they bring over the Germans and they have people like Reinhard Galen training Israeli forces. So the Israelis and Nazis had a, a problem, but they had Nazis training the new Mossad type forces over there. And that's in the history blueprint as well. If you look up Reinhard Galen, Let's say you doubt it. He had an immense Eastern European intelligence network that they were not willing to scuttle. And they're like, we'll just give you a job. So even though he's responsible for all these horrific atrocities, partially responsible that happened during World War II, he was immediately hired because he was indispensable. Yeah, Otto Skorzenzi, Skorzeny, Otto von Bolschwing. Prince Anton Turco, Special Forces, United States Green oh, Berets. You bring also up have the, the National League. I can't see your screen. Russia. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I've put it off the night. There, yeah, there we go. Reinhard Galen. Uh, we have, so you have 647 map links. Adolf Hitler, obviously, and the Holocaust and C- uh, World War II. Alan W. Dulles. Underneath, and so he's uh, the parent-child relationship. You have the NTS NLS National Laborers Union, Operation Gladio, NATO MI6 CIA Joint Ops, Otto Skorzeny, Otto von Bolschwing, uh, Nazi CIA, Prince Anton Turkel, and Special Forces United States Army Green Berets. Above him would be essentially Nazis, obviously, 
George uh, Kisvalter, William Wild Bill Donovan, as you mentioned, obviously one of the founders of the OSS leading to the CIA. Uh, the Rainbow Division in World War One. he essentially purposefully decimated by ignoring commands, and then he somehow gets uh, promoted. He was known to be, you know, he's a particular type of sociopath, or rather psychopath in this regard. Obviously, Frank Wisner, another one of the founders, DOJ, U.S. Department of Justice, CPC, Clandestine Planning Committee. That's interesting. That's also the name of the Chinese Communist Party, although that's uh, it's a Communist Peoples, whatever, I forget how they pronounce it, the CPC. And CIA, Alan W. Dulles, another founding member, and Adolf Hitler. So you can see the connections between Nazism, internationalism, and obviously the instantiation through operations like Operation Gladio, which if he's being flown in to train Israeli forces, that would be pretty much contemporaneous with the stay behind proxy groups, right? Which is Operation Gladio sure. after World War II, which I, I don't. Yeah, which I don't know if they use part of the Marshall funds to fund. Well, it's just plan called Gladio in Italy. The Marshall fund. Uh, yeah, right. They keep it under like, oh, we're just training like you know some stay behind forces in Italy. Which no, Operation it was all over Sword. Europe, and that's the yeah, right, yes, sir. Yeah, I mean that's, that. So in that history blueprint page that you were just showing, Tony, off mm -hmm. to the left. You've got mm -hmm. some media sources where yeah. we could learn more about Reinhard Galen and also like evidence sources where you might find the veracity behind such bold claims that we just made. Right. So even though there's like yeah. something on the screen that makes you incredulous, there's links off to the side of here's the source material that you could easily reference this and find out and learn more. So it's not supposed to be an authority right, on anything. Essentially... It's a starting point for like getting familiar with this general grammar and what are the individual parts, how do they fit together and, and what do we take from it? So it looks like you have, for example, like Reinhard Galen, just to give people an understanding of what's going on here. You have, mo so there's parent, child, cousin relationships, parent, obviously above child's below so forth and so on. The tangential, the sort of side relationships, these cousin relationships, if I remember correctly, of how the brain works, you have Mossad. So you have Mossad is tied to Reinhard Galen. That's under MI6. If you look at, if you follow the line, so many lines here, so I apologize for individuals. But if you follow the line, when you highlight Mossad, you get Reinhard Galen, and you also get it going up to MI6, and you also get it going to, looks like 9-11 terrorist attacks. Showing that if you understand the general grammar of these specific events, you understand how these all interrelate. And these aren't just the, this isn't just the patternicity fallacy. There's actually substantial, at times, circumstance or um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, circumstantial evidence, but nonetheless, evidence that points to at least ideological or philosophical connections between these organizations, if not direct connections quite literally so that's that's and there the are way people in order who to would... utilize the brain in order to go through a path of discovery sorry go ahead yeah there are people who would say it's uh apophenia or parallelia but i put those in the history yeah, blueprint sure. so you could actually read and learn about those and see the difference and that these are not just <laughs> it's not like seeing a face in the clouds it's saying oh this document says this nazi went over and helped the train you know, these people that were enemies of the Nazis and these other people who also fought the Nazis ended up funding and protecting and changing this guy and making sure that he can be, you know, sheep dipped and survived the denazification process. Right. So there's a lot of those Ashcan and dustbin are like the American and British operations to go in 
and find the best of their investments because these are the people that funded Hitler and his projects in the first place. And they're the first in to be like, let's recover the art and whatever else stuff we want to move around. And then let's hang these other people out to dry with the Nuremberg trial because there was never a banker's trial. Right. And that was part of the deal where Nelson Rockefeller later gets blackmailed by the Mossad, according to Mossad whistleblowers who testified and gave interviews to that effect. So that's interesting. You not get your pound. You'll get your pound. That's interesting. But uh, you don't say a word about the Nazi scientists. That's essentially how the story goes. That was the one. They got the what the Argentinian vote. They got a South American vote. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Delay. No, we have told this whole story. Now it's okay. The audience gets it. There's delay tonight. And we're all working through it. What this tells you is we have now laid the groundwork to see (laughs) RFK Jr. get censored during a censorship hearing. (laughs) And the way that it goes about is they accuse him of anti-Semitism. And of course, Tony, if you're an anti-Semite, you don't have any rights anymore and you can just be censored. You can just be depersoned, right? Which is why maybe we should take MDMA to cure anti-Semitism. We can follow this story on RFK with that story about MDMA. And we're going to have a lot of fun with this time capsule because people in the future, it's about to get dumber and it's not because of me or Tony or LD or this audio delay. You're about to see like the NPCization of America through the next several clips that we have, but it starts with this, a censorship (laughs) hearing that is Kafka esque and censors someone whose dad was shot by the people who took over our government, essentially, essentially. And then there's people who run cover for those people that took over the government. And that might be the best hairstyle of the year award coming up. So we'll have to see, uh, LD, do you have the RFK clip in question? Or Tony, we have you can, a couple uh, on the show, like card, but it might be video. one. So there's, there we have Jimmy Dore redacted. I have a bunch of Jimmy Dore. There's, um, let me just pull this up real quick. Make it a little bigger for people. RFK Jr. blasts Democrats for opposing free speech. Then there's one underneath that Dems desperate to censor RFK Jr.'s testimony about censorship. Cringeworthy Democrats demand RFK Jr. censored. That's Kim Iverson. The other previous two were Jimmy Dore, and there's another Jimmy Dore. About Debbie Wasserman Schultz. We got to go with Jimmy Dore. And then you had a redacted on your playlist. We need Kerp Metzger for this one because he says things that I can't say because they would just be rude. But he's a comedian and he has the license. So we're going to go to uh, Pothead Comedian. Got to make sure you give him a yo. Jimmy, shut the front door. Uh, Let's give him a yo. Kurt Metzger is going to add color commentary to this anti-Semitism mosaic being presented as a censorship hearing in Congress this past week. So let's check of the out. two, which ones did you want to play? The RFK Jr. Blast Democrats or the Dems desperate to censor RFK? The Dems desperate to censor RFK first, and then we can go to the okay. other one, okay. and then we can go to the story about the MDMA. And that makes a nice little trifecta. There. Okay, perfect. And the M- MDMA one is uh, a disturbing proposal. I'll highlight it for you. It's under culture there. LD. So it'll make it a little easier. It's like a modest proposal, only there's no eating of people. That's a Jonathan Swift joke. Sorry for those who don't get it. Alex Jones gets it. He's going to eat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No comment. 
Let's go to the clip. <laughs> when we're able. So RFK Jr. got invited to uh, give testimony in front of Congress on censorship. <laughs> and what's kind of ironic is that the Democrats tried to censor him from the, there was a, over 100 Democrats signed a letter saying that they shouldn't allow him to testify in front of Congress. They wanted to set, at a censorship hearing, yeah. they wanted to censor him over censorship. It's a censorship hearing. They're going to have some censorship. <laughs> what do you think it is? A no censorship hearing? So this woman isn't, she doesn't get to vote in Congress, but she's a, uh, <laughs> she's the ranking member of whatever this committee is. And uh, she's a Democrat. And yeah. what, what? Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Her name is Stacey Plaskett. She, where, where is she from? She's a non-voting yeah, member. Yeah, let me look at her The Virgin again. Islands. Is it the Virgin Islands? Yes, yeah. you are correct. Okay. Thank you, Kurt. And so she's trying to make a career of herself by being the biggest democratic hack in the world. And so she's against free speech and she wants to censor everybody. Importantly, again, I go back to just the fact that we are creating a platform. A platform. For, these, for this kind of discussion, not about the censorship, not about free speech, but the content of some of that speech that we are amplifying in this room. So, yeah, she, she doesn't have a problem with speech, just the content of speech. Yeah. <laughs> what? Say something empty, it's fine. Yeah, saying something. <laughs> but if there's actual content to what you're saying, then we have to censor it. This, this is a modern day. This, I would think these were the craziest right-wing Christian Republicans from the 1950s and 60s and 70s wanting to censor everything. No, these are just run-of-the-mill Democrats now are the most maniacal, authoritarian, dictator like censoring people they all sound like nurse ratchet from uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest yep and so here and she talks about platform she does that thing again I mean, if you say oh my god hey here's some speech i'd like to use this platform <laughs> to amplify kurt did you know that stacy plaskett that very woman she solicited donations from jeffrey epstein mm -hmm. Every Jepstein? <laughs> you mean before he was convicted? No, after. Well, a guy's got money. You, after you he was ask? convicted of sexually assaulting minors. Google it. Google it. <laughs> Googled. And you know, in life and in politics, I mean, you look how she comes across. Importantly, again, I go back to just the fact that we are creating a platform for these, for this kind of discussion. Not so. Is it in politics and in life? Kurt, it's the worst extremists that come across as the most reasonable. She seems reasonable. So here they go into they they wanted to censor his whole thing, and uh, but then they then they were going to give him ten minutes to speak, and then well let's just listen to what the Democrats did. I know that witnesses usually have five minutes. I see ten minutes on the board. Is it going to be ten minutes? We're giving five minutes, minutes, but we're we're pretty. Light. Hey, she said I see ten minutes on the board. Why are you going to give him ten minutes? <laughs> You gonna give him ten minutes? I see the witness has ten minutes. I'd like to do what I did to Bernie Sanders in the primaries. <laughs> With this, uh, we'll let him go for. We are? Uh, yeah, we, I've seen you ham, 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 gavel down on quite a number of witnesses. Given senators and former Democrat members of Congress and all kinds He's of. He's neither. Right? He's yeah. neither. I'm just saying in past history. Okay. In, in okay. Case, so the chairman of the committee is saying we've given you know people a lot more time. We have leeway to do that. A lot of senators, a lot of ex-congressmen. We've given extra time, and this, she goes, "He's neither of those." RFK Jr. He's neither of those. <laughs> and he goes, okay, all right, we'll we'll cut we'll cut his time down to five minutes, right? Isn't that what he's right? 
we'll just get, we'll watch the time for all the witnesses. And if you want to cut him off and censor him some more, you're welcome to do it. Oh, that's not my job. That's that's your job. Why not? Ah, he gets a nice laugh, and she tries to talk. She tries to step on his laugh. Uh, Mr. Chairman, please, I'd like to redirect to a still shot of an empty Trump podium. <laughs> You threaten the witness so that they can Mr. not Kennedy, want to be Mr. a witness. Mr. Kennedy is recognized for his opening statement. We'll give him five minutes, more or less, and then we'll move to the next one. Mr. Kennedy, go right in. So I want to show you one more attempt at censoring him before I show you his opening statement. So here, here they are trying to censor him again. I'd like to raise, I'd like to raise a point of order. Gentlelady, say a point of order. Point of order pursuant to House Rule 11, Clause 2 which Mr. Kennedy is violative of, I move that we remove into executive session because Mr. Kennedy has repeatedly made despicable anti-Semitic and anti-Asian comments as recently as last week. Rule 11, Clause 2 said... So she's trying to shut down the entire hearing right now. <laughs> you know what I don't like about her? She doesn't use enough hair gel. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> what is she doing? Anyway, oh my God. Anyway, here, uh, she's she's trying to shut down the whole thing. She's trying to say this shouldn't be done in public. A censorship hearing should be done in private. I like how hard she's working, even though there will be no consequences for any of them for these hearings ever. Ever. You can't even have a meaningless tell about how you got censored and let that go and nobody. <laughs> the media ain't going to pick it up. Nope. So right now she wants to make a censorship hearing private. She wants to make this a bigger joke than a DSA meeting. <laughs> Whenever it is asserted by a member of the committee that the evidence or testimony at a hearing may tend to defame, degrade, or incriminate any person, or it is asserted by a witness that the evidence or testimony that the witness would give at a hearing may tend to defame, degrade, or incriminate the witness, and it goes on. Mr. Kennedy, uh, among many other things, has said, I know a lot now about bioweapons. We put out hundreds of millions of dollars in, into ethnically targeted microbes. The Chinese have done the same thing. In fact, COVID-19, there was... So the thing she doesn't want said at an open meeting, she's reading at an open meeting. This is the stuff she's afraid of being said. She's the one saying it. She's just being a platform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you say platform, please just... Argument that it is ethnically targeted... COVID-19 attacks certain races disproportionately. The races that are most immune to COVID-19 are... A lady making a motion or a speech? I, I, I <laughs> made a motion to move into executive session because Mr. Mr. Kennedy's testimony... Mr. Chairman, I moved to table the motion. Gentleman from Kentucky... So she's making a motion to completely censor the hearing and put it into private. The censorship hearing go private. And the reason she gives is that RFK Jr. might say something that defames someone. By the way, the thing that it targets people of color the hardest, they all said that the whole pandemic. I know. I know, Kurt. I know. Um, so let's so let's go on to move the table. So now. OK, so you have. So that so that's our friend Kim Iverson. So now they went on to. So now that he goes, I want to table that. So you know what that means? So that means that her motion to move it from a public hearing to private, they want to table that. I mean, let's get, let's not act on it. What? Let's table it. Let's have this hearing. Meaning, let's. That's what I think. Table means you 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 postponed action on it. That's what I think tabling means. Oh, I was hoping that she had to go sit under a table. I'm not from. Yeah. I don't know about the. I'm not up on the Roberts Rules of Order, <laughs> Parliamentary Rule of Order, but I'm pretty sure that's what that means. So now they're going to take a vote to see if they can tell Debbie Wasserman Schultz to shut up. That's what this Table is. Table it. <laughs> <laughs> the gentleman from North Dakota. 
so they had a vote on that, and they sh- and they shut her up. <laughs> so they had the vote, and they and they they voted to shut Debbie Wasserman Schultz up oh. and and to let RFK Jr. speak. But before they did that, they go to to this guy Massey, who I love. Watch this. Oh yeah! Wow, the irony and cognitive dissonance from the other side of the aisle. It's deafening. You could cut it with a knife. They are at the same time denying that censorship is occurring, but suggesting that there's more material that needs to be censored. (laughs) This is a hearing on censorship that began with an effort, with a formal motion from the other side of the aisle to censor Mr. Kennedy. (laughs) They do not want him to speak. Yet that is the topic of this hearing. They have kept him from speaking. A collusion between the government and private organizations. Mr. Kennedy, in your opening statement, you um, introduced us to this word malinformation. Can you tell us more about this made up word, what it means and some of the uh, things? So we'll get back to that. Come see our live shows. We're going to be in Chicago, Rosemont, Las Vegas. Table it. Table it. Are Did you hear on? that, Tony? Did you hear Kurt? Are we going to do comeback video? Damn. Did you hear him say table it? Kerp. Kerp. Yo, it's Kerp. Kerp. Hey, Kerp, are you listening right now? Take it. Are you playing? Is that a, was that a callback joke? Stacey Plaskin, by the way. Go ahead. Stacey Plaskin. Do you remember her? Plaskin, yeah, I do. I think her name is. Yeah, um, she's got a greatest hits album. Hit pieces. Greatest hit pieces. My favorite these- was, uh, was Matt Taibbi. And who is the other one? Matt Taibbi. He's not a journalist, and, um... she said. <laughs> right. You oh, know what's ironic, whole, though, Tony? Like, no card full of fallacies associated with her. She she really has embraced. She's, as they say, projected an animus quality to her personality in the Jungian sense. So for those nerds out there. She has, like... but she's like the balancing effect because um, she's from the Virgin Islands. And so is the district attorney who's prosecuting the Epstein client list. So for the good one, you got to have a, a nuts. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, I see. U.S. Virgin Islands making there. like a Continue balanced presentation. They're like, we're prosecuting Epstein, but we also have this uh, representative who likes to take down freedom people for some reason. I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. But I also detected. Um, are you familiar with Hogan's Heroes, Tony? And the oh, character yeah, Schultz. My dad's theory. He still watches it every night. Right. I know nothing. Oh, yeah, nothing? absolutely. Schultz, Schultz. Is that a German name? Is that like a? I'm not sure. I was just trying to figure out who, uh, who was who was talking. But German, you know, maybe I don't know what because we had just there is a whole history of of you know this uh, milieu of people funding the Nazis and then bringing Nazis back to this country under Operation Paperclip and hiding them in this country and giving them new names. Otto Skorzeny among them. It's not just a German name. It's an Ashkenazi Jewish origination of a German name. So it's a variation from an old German Are name. Are you looking to get this show censored? Type of... You sound like RFK now. I'm just... It's literally... Hey, it, in order to just point out, this is coming... Are you going to point out an like Schultz, I'm pretty sure that's... Oh, boy. No, was, well, let's see. Because that's, that's, uh, th- that's most... not what Rand Paul, but RFK Jr., he was pointing to an NIH paper that he cited that they took out of context and they're like, are you saying that there's race specific bioweapons, sir? That's we can't have you saying that. That's totally not oh, what you mean. They said. built a straw man by X. Yes. By X. A wicker lifting, man. They built a straw man, which is why. Yes. 
That's why those two fallacies are so pernicious and so dangerous and so destructive because it makes it people think that people are actually uh, are arguing for or building an argument that's legitimate. So for excerpt lifting first, they're quoting him out of context. They're taking what he said out of context, and then they're using it to build an argument that he said certain things or didn't say certain things or uh, accepted certain policies or whatever in order to sort of disparage his character. And they won't and let destroy him put it his in inherent. And they're censoring him. No, which is hilarious. They don't want him to talk sad. then. And the only way you can set the record straight is by talking. That's right. By being able to debate, which is something that, you know, the, it's like a cross. Since, it's uh, like if you're critical if they theory bred, postmodernism. If they bred Kafka's The Trial yeah. with the scene from Idiocracy yeah. where he was on trial, not sure. Right. It's like that. It's a great scene, by the way. Like yeah. when the lawyer argues against his own client and the idiocracy scene, that is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. He pissed I, all my balls. He interrupted all my balls. What the fuck? You know, that was a great scene. Yeah, I mean, Mike Judge, you nailed it, bro. Right. Is that now, uh, I believe so. So we have another clip and then we have the MDNMA story. But then following this, we're going to go NPC story that ties back in with what I just said about the trial and idiocracy. You're going to see it on screen. Paul Joseph Watson <laughs> has done a masterful job of okay, composing this video that's coming this up but that's that's like three clips from now so hold your attention span we got to go to this other clip about rfk jr being censored during the censorship trial and then we have to find the cure for anti-semitism maybe it's mdma according to this article that we're going to look at uh today all right so let's go to the second clip from uh is, is it also from jimmy Dore, ld i'm not sure which the second clip is i Oh, Tony's feeding it. Is that the the one about the censorship? Um, so this would be the RFK Jr. blast. Democrats are opposing free speech. This would be sort of his testimony. I think that then was allowed to take. Yeah, place. let's include that. That's also Jimmy Dore clip. He's sort of okay. We don't mind Jimmy. Thank but you for doing the heavy lifting. You got it. You got it. Since all the other journalists are out the lunch. Jimmy had a Jimmy had a good week. Jimmy Kim had a week too, and Paul Joseph Watson had a lot of good commentary this week as well. So they it was a crazy week. I mean, it's a grand theft world. So. But a lot of this shit was more conspicuous than us having to get into the nitty gritty details of pulling out the books. This is a little bit more uh, get to laugh a little bit with how absurd things are, not cry as much. So especially when we get to the NPC thing, people will think, well, well, you can laugh and cry depending on your temperament. So, <laughs> all right, let's let RFK Jr. Quick. balance the equation. <laughs> I don't want to show one more censorship clip from the Democrats. So now this guy is interviewing, they bring out a lawyer from the ACLU, the Democrats do, who's pro-censorship. So this guy... Finally. So this guy asks this ACLU lawyer, do you... Well, here's the question. I don't, I don't have to paraphrase it. The government shouldn't be responsible for restricting views that the American people are exposed to. We the government should not be responsible for restricting views that people should be exposed to meaning the government isn't in the business of censoring yeah, those are private sector jobs he said we, we <laughs> he says we can agree on that right you would think the answer would be yes here watch this the government shouldn't be responsible for restricting views that the american people are exposed to we agree on that right you wouldn't answer it at first oh, but it's clear that you do agree with that that's because a different when, question okay so to my question do you agree with it or not I agree that the government should not violate our constitution. Do you agree with my question? Your question is the government whether or not the government. This is so no, simple. It is not so no, simple. No, I'm going to ask it one time, and it is so simple. A seventh grader could understand this question. 
Should the government be responsible for the views and the facts that the American people are exposed to? The, the problem I have is that I don't okay, know of any that, facts in which the government to, tells us I'm going to say believe. that you're unable to answer a question, which for me is fairly shocking as an American citizen. Hey, you're well, you're watching this day's C-SPAN edition of Answer My Damn Question <laughs> hearings live on C-SPAN 2. <laughs> Maybe one day they'll answer a damn question. Keep watching, I guess. But... Uh, tune in tomorrow for Answer My Damn Question hearings live from the Congress. Here we go. So she couldn't answer it. Uh, so that's the that's the the lawyer from the ACLU pro censorship thinks the government should be censoring things that people see. That's what she said. She also can't. Uh, you were a lawyer for the ACLU. So here now he's going to ask her the same. Pretty much watch this. Uh, you were a lawyer for the ACLU. I was. Mr. Kennedy, I remember when the ACLU defended the first, they were the champions of the First Amendment. You remember that? You remember that ACLU? I remember when the ACLU represented Nazis who they, uh, who, who they were appalled by. Appalled, disgusted right. by, and yet they would defend the crazy things they said, right? That, that's how much the First Amendment meant to them, right? Exactly. Huh. They defend their right to say crazy things is a better way to put it, even though it's a good point he made. Um, so that's them. That that's there's your Democrats for free speech and censorship. That, it's amazing. That's crazy. Let me see what this clip is. I don't even know what it is. And I want to I want to start. I want to put it aside. My oh, okay. So he, so so okay. So that's the Democrats trying to to censor him. So we'll let, end that clip there because that's remarkable to me. They've and, been doing it the, for three years straight. And so now here's RFK Jr. at a hearing about censorship. The Democrats have multiple times tried to censor him. They tried to get the whole censorship hearing put private. The irony of that is lost on the Democrats. They all signed, 100 of them signed a letter saying that RFK Jr. shouldn't be allowed to testify. They're not, they are like uh, the worst kind of communist dictator when I was growing up. <laughs> I always thought that communist dictators did stuff like this. The Democratic Party does it right on camera. Yeah, they don't care that, you know, uh, and so now RFK Jr. is actually going to respond. He's got well, this is his opening statement, but he was maligned. They called him anti-Semitic. They call, keep, keep calling him. The guy couldn't be a bigger simp for Israel. <laughs> My problem for our with RFK Jr. is the way he defends Israel. Right. But they now try to make him anti. So, of course, if you you're he's a white supremacist, misogynist. And now he's an anti-Semite. That's that's the way. That's the game. Okay, here we go. Statement for a moment and address one of the uh, points that was brought up. I think an important point by the ranking member that this body ought to be concerning itself with the uh, with the issues that impact directly the American people. The rising price of groceries, seventy-six percent over the past two years, for basic food stuff. Uh, so, Stacy. Plaskett, that woman we just showed you in the other other clip, the ranking member of this committee, she's a non-voting member Democrat from the Virgin Islands. She said, why are we having this censorship committee when we should be talking about real things like <laughs> the price of groceries and gasoline? Oh, and is that what they were going to talk about? <laughs> and so, so what he says is really on point to that. The war in Ukraine the inflation issues, the border issues, many, many other issues that concern us all as a nation. We can't do that without the First Amendment, you without can't, debate. Uh, you can't talk about anything without the First Amendment. 
without open debate, without freedom of speech. You can't talk about the war, the border crisis, inflation, and anything, abortion, COVID, vaccine. You can't talk about anything without the First Amendment and free speech. That's why this hearing's super important. So he's making her look like a fool, and it's easy to do, and he's doing it. When I gave my speech, my announcement speech in Boston uh, two months ago, YouTube, I, I talked about all those issues. I focused on grocery. I focused on the fact that working class people can no longer afford to live in this country. I talked about inflation, all the issues that deeply concern you and that you've devoted your career to alleviating those issues. Five minutes into my speech, when I was talking about Paul Revere, YouTube deplatformed me. I didn't talk about vaccines in that speech. I didn't talk about anything that could be was a forbidden subject. I just was talking about my campaign and things, the conversation that we ought to be having with each other as Americans. But I was shut down. And that is why the First Amendment's important. Debate, congenial, respectful debate is the, is the fertilizer, it's the water, it's the sunlight for our democracy. We need to be talking to each other. Now, there, this is a letter that many of you signed. Many of my fellow Democrats, I've spent my life in this party. I've devoted my life to the values of this party. There's 102 people signed this. This itself is evidence of the problem that this hearing was convened to address. That letter is 100 Democrats that don't want him to be allowed to speak. What, is, what does it say? It says, don't let him speak. <laughs> and so that's what he's referring to. Okay. This is an attempt to censor a censorship hearing. The, the, the charges in this, and, and by the way, censorship is antithetical to our party. It was, it was appalling to my father. To my yeah, not anymore, RFK. He's, you're saying censorship used to be antithetical to my party, to my father, my uncle. Not anymore. They're the party of censorship. Gangrene spreads, you know. Yep. Uncle, the FDR, Harry Truman, the Thomas Jefferson, as the chairman referred to, is the basis for democracy. It sets us apart from all of the previous forms of government. We need to be able to talk, and, and the First Amendment was not written for easy speech. It was written for the speech that nobody likes you for. And I was, I was censored not just by the Democratic administration, I was censored by the Trump administration. I was the first person censored by, the, as the chairman pointed out, by the Biden administration two days after it came into office. It ordered a truthful, and by the way, they had to invent a new word called malinformation to, to, to censor people like me. There was no misinformation on my Instagram account. Everything I put on that account was cited and sourced to peer-reviewed publications or government databases. Nobody has ever pointed to a single piece of misinformation that I published. I was removed for something they called malinformation. Malinformation is information that is true, but is inconvenient to the government that they don't want people to hear. And, it, and that's antithetical to the values of our country. After I announced my presidency, it became more difficult for people to censor me outright. So now I'm subject to this new form of censorship, which is called targeted propaganda, where people apply pejoratives like anti-vax. I've never been anti-vaccine. But everybody in this room probably believes that I have been, because that's the prevailing narrative. Anti-Semitism, racism, these are, are the most appalling, disgusting pejoratives, and they're applied to me to silence me, because people don't want me to have that conversation about the war. 
about groceries, about inflation, about the war on the middle class in this country that we need to be having. And, and by the way, I want to say this while I'm on the record, that in my entire life and why I'm under oath, in my entire life, I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. I have spent my life fighting my professional career, fighting for Israel, for the protection of Israel. I have a better record on Israel than anybody in this chamber today. I'm the only person who has publicly objected to the $2 billion payout that the Biden administration is now making to Iran, which is a, is a, a genocidal program. I'm the only one who's objected to that. I fought more ferociously for Israel than anybody. But I am being censored here through this target, through, uh, through, through smears, through misinterpretations of what I've said, through lies, through association, which is a tactic that we all thought we had been discredited and dispensed with after the Army McCarthy hearings in the 1950s. But those same weapons are now being deployed against me to silence me. I know many of the people who wrote this letter. I don't believe there's a single person who signed this letter who believes I'm anti-Semitic. I do not believe that. There is no evidence of that. Now, I want to say something I think that's, that's more important, and it goes directly to what you talked about, ranking member, which is the, the, the need, the, the, this toxic polarization that is destroying our country today. And how do we deal with that? We are more, this kind of division is more dangerous for our country than any time since the American Civil War. And how do we deal with that? How are we going to, every Democrat on this committee believes that we need to end that polarization. Do you think you can do that by censoring people? I'm telling you, you cannot. You, that only aggravates and amplifies the problem. We need to start being kind to each other. We need to start being respectful to each other. We need to start, start restoring the comedy to this chamber and, and, and to the rest of America. But it has to start here. My uncle, Edward Kennedy, has more legislation with his name on it than any senator in United States history. Why is that? Because he was able to reach across the aisle, because he didn't deal in insults, because he didn't try to censor people. He brought home people who were antithetical to what he believed in. He came home almost every weekend with people like Orrin Hatch to our house at the compound in Hyannisport. At that time, Orrin Hatch to me was like Darth Vader, because I was an environmentalist. And I was saying, why, why is Teddy bringing this guy home? But he knew that he was effective because he understood that comedy and respect and kindness and compassion and empathy for other people is the way that we have the only way to restore the function in this, in this chamber. But more importantly, today we need to give an example in the leadership of our country of being respectful to each other. If you think I said something that's anti-Semitic, let's talk about the details. I'm telling you all the things that I'm accused of right now by you. And in this letter are distortions, they're misrepresentations. I, said, I didn't say those things. There's fragments that I said, but I denounce anybody who, is, who uses the words that I have said to imply something that is negative about people who are Jewish. I never said those things. And I want to point out also that the chairman pointed to Dennis Kucinich's fight behind me. There is no two people in, a, in the country who feel differently about more differently about American politics than these two people. <laughs> and yet they were friends. Dennis attended his children's basketball games, attended his daughter's wedding. This is what we need, how we need to start treating each other in this country. We have to stop trying to destroy each other, to marginalize, to vilify, to gaslight each other. 
We have to find that place inside of ourselves of light, of empathy, of compassion, and above all, we need to elevate the Constitution of the United States, which was written for hard times, and that has to be the premier compass for all of our activities. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Mr. Chairman, I'd like, to raise, I'd like to raise a point of order. General Lady, say a point of order. Point of order, pursuant to House Rule 11, Clause 2. Yeah, so that was when she, that was right after his opening statement, she wanted to shut it down. He sounds like Hitler. <laughs> so that's his opening speech. There's your Democratic Party. He's trying to, I guess, change the Democratic Party completely because the Democratic Party is horrible. I mean, his response is pretty great, I must say. That was a good speech. That's a great speech. Um, he has one. Let me. I have one more clip of him speaking here. I, I forget what this is. Let's play it. The uh, what I would call defamations that have been uh, just applied to me by the ranking member. Okay, so that ranking member, Stacey Plaskett, she yeah. kept calling him all these names and saying he's anti-vax and he's and uh, anti-Semitic <laughs> wow. and all this stuff. And so what? Somebody just got donations from Epstein. Epstein. I mean, just the the balls. Yeah. So a woman who took money from Epstein after he was convicted is start, is trying to disparage and discredit RFK Jr. And he comes back at her like this. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you about my opinions on these issues. What you, the, what you have stated and tried to associate me with uh, through guilt by association is simply inaccurate. Virtually everything, every statement that you just made about me is inaccurate. I have never advised black Americans not to receive vaccines. At one point you say I'm anti-vax and that's a bad thing. The other thing, the <laughs> other moment you point out that all my children are vax. I fact, I'm fully compliant with the vaccine schedule myself, except for COVID. I, I, I took flu vaccines for 20 years straight. I have never been an anti-vax. I have never told any, I have never told the public avoid vaccination. You tried to associate me a moment ago with the replacement theory, which is racist. No, I did not say you the Time belongs the to the gentleman theory. from I, I not, my colleagues. The time belongs to the gentleman from I denounced that theory. It is racist and I have never endorsed it or had any association with it. Our film on a medical point, by the medical way, Bill Buxton, Bill Buxton, who is the black CDC official who ultimately exposed the Tuskegee experiment, tried for years and years to appeal to, to CDC to stop it for 40 years. Finally, he got relief by walking into my uncle's office in the building next door. Teddy held hearings and ended the experiment. He's talking about the Tuskegee experiment where they were... Uh, didn't they give black people syphilis? No, they already. Ha here's what people came in with syphilis. Yeah, they, it's not that they gave them syphilis, but it's just as evil. People who had syphilis. And they didn't treat them. They didn't tell them they had. Didn't treat them because they wanted to see what it would. They do wanted to them. see what it would do to them for forty, for 40 years. years. Yeah. And the CDC knew about it, and it didn't end until a whistleblower of the CDC went to Ted Kennedy's office. Was it Ted Kennedy or John Kennedy? Maybe, maybe John Kennedy. I thought you said Ted, but I remember that very well. And to say that that I I wrote a I created a film that encourages blacks not to get adequate medical care is just 
completely abhorrent. If the, Don't if misuse the, my it's words. It's the witness's sir. time. Do not yes, censor the witness. I'm not the, censoring the, the witness. Yeah. I'm not the, censoring the witness. He's still talking. It is the, it's it's my the time, and I've given it to the witness. Do not censor him. I'm if not the, censoring him. If the views that you and others have applied to me, I've attributed to me, if they were actually true, I can see why I shouldn't be able to testify here today. Those are not true. These are defamations and malignancies that are used to censor me, to prevent people from listening to the actual things that I'm saying. And I think, ranking member, that we should have a real conversation rather than an exchange of ad hominem attacks. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. Go ahead and pull it. There, you're not going to you know. ever have a real. Next thing you know, they'll be using blood libel against them and stuff. But, you know, there was this topic brought up about the ACLU and uh, the ACLU was just testifying there. And um, I had this question. I had this question like, you know, the example was given that back in the day, back in the 1970s, the ACLU defended the rights of the Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. And it was a big example of how the ACLU supports freedom of speech. And that's a hypothesis. Maybe they do. On the other hand, maybe the people who support the ACLU just like Nazis and wanted the Nazis to have their say. Now, I did a little let my fingers do the walking over here on the uh, the Brave browser. So if I take you over here to my Brave browser, I searched Rockefeller Foundation and the ACLU. And guess who likes to give money to the ACLU? The same people that funded the Nazis, right? Nelson Rockefeller, Alan Dulles, that whole coterie that prevailed over JFK's assassination and continue to wield power to this day, they still like to give lots of money to the ACLU. Now, there's many examples we could go down, we could click, and we could read, but I opened a few. Here's PR Newswire. The Rockefeller Foundation awards grants to organizations supporting and defending refugees and immigrants. $1.5 million in three grants to ACLU, the IRC, which is interesting. We're going to get to that in a minute. And the ADL, Tony, which is also interesting considering the censorship issue in which uh, groups are out there pressuring people like RFK Jr. not to speak. So I'm not convinced that the Rockefeller Foundation really did this. So I went to the Rockefeller Foundation's website and clearly they are announcing it. Rockefeller Foundation, they're giving it. Uh, it seems like good reasons. Defending refugees and immigrants, Tony, sounds like a good thing. So uh, one is going to the ACLU. Anthony Romero, executive director, he's a Rockefeller Foundation appointee. He's been a long time Rockefeller Foundation figurehead at the ACLU. The ADL, I don't know who they are, so I'm just going to keep moving on. But this other group, the IRC, International Rescue Committee, I remember seeing the IRC being advertised uh, in relation to Ukraine, Tony, because the IRC helps refugees in these countries. Well, you know, I had this nagging questioning. I have this thing in my mind called a conscience, and it said, hey, what about, didn't Soros have something to do with the IRC? So I let my fingers do the walking again. And look, he's the top honor at the IRC. So this International Rescue Committee that was founded by Albert Einstein many years ago, uh, Soros, a former refugee, is like the figurehead and, uh, you know, very, very uh, close. And uh, his foundations, 
you know, why why he invests five hundred million dollars in that that sort of thing. It's probably a similar reason why he invests eighteen billion dollars into reshaping global democracy, right? Now, some interesting things came up when I did this search. I start looking around, and I also remembered that George Soros and Israel they've got a beef. So I was like, what was that all about again? So I did this Heret search and check out some of these articles, Tony. Because it goes back to them calling RFK an anti-Semite yeah. for talking about mm. various yeah. things. And you can't bring Soros into this because that's anti-Semitism. Well, no, here's why Netanyahu hates Soros so much. Right? So here's here's Heretz. Here's another Heretz. Uh, why do so many hate George Soros? Right? How about this one? Israel's anti-Semitism czar endorses debunked Soros Iran smears. They can't even get it straight between themselves. Soros, Nazis, and Epstein. Yeah, Netanyahu takes the stand in the activist libel suit. Netanyahu's son slams Soros, global elite, and radical leftist control of Israeli media. What's going on here? You know, there's there's Soros and reptilians controlling the world. This is a Heretz article. This is not from David Icke's site. Although Netanyahu's son might be a fan of David Icke. Last but not least... George Soros named son, a champion of left-wing Jewish causes as his successor. And this is from 2023, last month. So George is stepping down. He's got a next generation. Oh, you can see. And uh, what does Israel have against Soros? Quite a lot, actually. This is another uh, advancing Jewish thought. This is the Mosaic. It's a very reputable uh, webpage. And defense of Soros and these sort of things. So there's a lot more to this. They don't want you to talk about it because talking about Soros is anti-Semitic so they could just shut down the whole conversation. Then you don't have to look at any nuance or do any homework or do any reading or any of these other things that might come up. Should you just ask questions and seek answers from the information that's readily available out there? And uh, yeah, Rockefeller Foundation and the people who funded the Nazis in the first place, right? George Soros, he, he aided and abetted some Nazis back in the day too. He didn't try to run away. He's like going to work every day. He's like, yeah, let's get some stuff. According to him, according to an old video, he mentioned it was one of the best times of his life. Maybe the greatest time of his life, according to George Soros. So, I mean, what, well, that was before he, he considered himself a these... messiah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Need more be said, you know, supporting refugee uh these the this irc you know international rescue um committee whatever it's called it does run antithetical to israeli statecraft and israeli policy if you do think about it from that standpoint so it is interesting to to note uh the the inherent contradictions of course the adl as well you'd a lot well, well yeah won't go down that road but yeah so it, you know, it's someone who might be surprising as well that also has issues with Netanyahu specifically is Yuval Noah Harari, who is essentially the mm. uh, philosophical leader for the World Economic Forum, if you will. But he, he actually works as a tenured professor at one of the major universities in Israel. I can't think of, think of off the top of my head. Uh, and history and philosophy, I think, is his department, something like that. But uh, he was on Lex Friedman. He was talking about how he has specific issues and critiques of Netanyahu's government specifically, um, yeah, which very runs counter, which I was like, what's he trying to do here? Like, because you know, I actually agreed with some of his takes on that regard. But then I've heard him say humans essentially don't have any free will. And that the age, the coming age is, that is like transhumanistic age. So very strange, contradictory. And what did Lex Bot 2000 older. say? 
<laughs> well, Lex, you know, he, 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 as we like to say in golf, he teed up those questions, teed them up, gave him this platform from which to hit the ball long and far. So He gave him a high tee and a fat driver. He's like, have at it. Let the big dog eat. All right. So, uh, you've all know Harari. Uh, he wrote Homa Dave's. And what was the other book he wrote? Do you remember? I don't have them here. Homa so. Dave's is the one I'm familiar with. Um, there's one about like a history of. Yeah, that's a heavy duty book, man. Like, you've all know Harari. He's, a, he's actually he's said a lot of very for interesting the transhumanists. Well, he's doing for the transhumanists what Rhodes did for Ruskin and Conan Doyle and the Freemasons and the British Empire. He's just seeing yeah, like these analogy. people are trying to get. He's Fair like analogy. the modern Machiavelli. He's just aiding like the Medici's. He's in like, way, you guys are ruthless gangsters and I don't stand a chance <laughs> unless I bond with you. <laughs> he's like, please, a brief history me. of humankind. That's the other one. That's the other one I'm familiar with. Sapiens, a brief history of humankind. Then Homo yeah. Deus, a brief history of tomorrow. It was 2016. So, anyway, see, it was an interesting. So he would argue that he, he didn't he have a lot of free will to actually write, very... write that book. Well, he's not arguing necessarily against that free will never existed. That free will is ending based on transhumanism. So, transhumanism is sort of ending hmm. traditional sentiments of free will and volition. Or ideas associated with that, rather. All right, we we made it, we made it to the MDMA story. Can we see some cures for anti-Semitism, please, Tony? What do we got? Do we have anything on hand? Certainly can. Treatments for anti-Semitism. Got a very interesting proposal. I don't know if we can call them cures. <laughs> An interesting proposal that's not modest. We can call them soma. Based off of uh, a dystopian novel. By Huxley. What did they call it in the movie Equilibrium? They had to take those pills. It was like Soma. Yeah, it was pills. It was like a Soma, yeah. I mean, they, that that was this numb uh, emotion, essentially. So it turned everyone into sort of automatons, mm. having no sort of emotional interaction. What was, there's another, there's many films associated with Which is this, there's a new, there's a new series with Chris Pratt. No. Yeah, Chris Pratt. And it's called the the terminal list, and the whole subplot of that series is that the government made a drug for its soldiers that they wouldn't emotionally respond to situations, so they would no longer have PTSD. Tony, it's because they love their soldiers; they don't want them to have the PTSD, or maybe they don't want them to have a conscience that prevents them from killing political and corporate targets. I don't know. Maybe one of the two. It's usually. A or B. like uh the mythology or legends associated with the the vikings and the amanita muscaria mushroom right so something of that nature sorry that the- all right so this mdma story let's uh let's get to this modest proposal An article published by Forward suggests drugging the population with MDMA and other psychedelics to cure people of their hateful beliefs. Wow, what could possibly go wrong? 
Noting that the FDA is set to approve ecstasy and magic mushrooms for treatment of PTSD within the next two years, the article triumphs a bipartisan bill sponsored by AOC and Dan Crenshaw that would remove barriers enabling scientists to better study MDMA. Quote, the drug's Jewish pioneers were onto something. MDMA therapy has already demonstrated its ability to break down the hate, trauma and conflict that can not just destroy individuals but entire societies. The piece calls for people to be drugged with MDMA to de-radicalise them and reverse their anti-Semitic beliefs. Stop it, stop it, please, I beg you! Another study conducted by Oxford University found that propranolol, a beta blocker commonly used to treat heart disease, might help make your cranky old grandpa seem a little less racist. Because the drug works by inhibiting the amygdala, the part of brain that controls fear. Despite admitting that biological research aiming to make people morally better has a dark history, the authors noted how under the influence of the drug, participants of the study were less likely to associate pictures of black people with negative words. As evidence for the MDMA proposal, the foreword cites the case of one individual, a dude called Brandon who was a member of Identity Europa and attended the infamous 2017 Unite the Right rally. Brandon took some ecstasy as part of a University of Chicago study in 2020, leading him to experience a stunning revelation. Love is the most important thing, he told a stunned researcher. Nothing matters without love. Yeah, thing is, if you can only experience love with the aid of a synthetic chemical, the artificially jacks up your serotonin levels to make you high as a kite. That's not love, is it? For anyone who has ever taken drugs, basically any recreational drugs, or being around anyone who has, the one thing you learn very quickly is that people will spew utter gibberish that they don't mean, and instantly regret what they've said when they sober up. Same thing applies to alcohol. I mean, yeah, you could go through life pranged out on LSD or heroin every day, and for a short time at least, the world and everyone in it will seem magical, warm and fuzzy. But before long, reality is going to take a huge shovel and whack you in the face. Studies show that long-term use of ecstasy, which is presumably what these people are advocating, even at low doses, causes major long-term cognitive problems, including neurotoxicity of the brain, impaired memory and clinical depression. But hey, at least it might reduce the amount of hateful tweets, right? Why not just lobotomize the entire population and have done with it? Anything to stop people saying mean words. I'm cured! Praise God! <laughs> Man. <laughs> no, not to mention the impossibility to function uh, as like a normal functioning human being in regards to satiating your basic de- basic needs, not even desires, but needs of food and water. Like MDMA is a, when especially when you're high on a, you know, a, a active or functional dosage uh is not the most uh let me see it's just like any other psychedelic you're incapacitated in certain other functions that need that you need in order to live life period having experienced many psychedelics in my day (laughs) i mean first off tony um did you read did you read the uh the research paper where they took this theory because, you know, it was, um, you know, as you heard about the inventors, they were located in close proximity to some test cases over there. And so they used it um, in a bonding session between Israeli soldiers and Palestinians. And it, have you seen the results? Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, Israel was trialing MDMA for PTSD in 2020. <laughs> 
So that's the only thing I'm aware of. So I guess they must have trialed it for the um oh I can't can't remember the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces. I believe that was the the acronym associated. Yeah, the IDF. So in 2020, they're already utilizing it for PTSD. That's why they said Jewish researchers, but that goes way back. Um, you know, MDMA is an interesting, interesting substance. Uh, uh, the street form of it, that's uh, when it's cut with something, it's called ecstasy. So if those unfamiliar with it, it's, it's that was the 90s rave drug, if you will. Eight, late 80s, early 90s, and all 90s, essentially the big rave drug. So, and then MDMA it is was, it's, but, um... it's the active that's mdma mixed with amphetamines that were pioneered by the nazis oh, yeah. to make ecstasy i think that's the rave the rave drug right so like you know yeah, they take a little yeah. bit of hitler like, is like the crank, pure compound and they mix it with the mdma right 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 so most people don't encounter the pure compound they encountered the street drug that's a, a mix and it takes a little nazi technology again it's counterintuitive and very ironic how all these things come together in our culture but you're not supposed to see any of the nuance or ironies of these situations. No, my brain is t- it's been so long since if, I researched this, but is that Shogun? Alexander Shogun? Was he the, I don't know if he had anything to do with that specific one. Yeah, he is. He's credited with introducing three, four. I thought methyl, he did. Yeah. Uh, doxy, like methamphetamine, methamphetamine. Can't pronounce that. That's a huge. Yeah. yeah Alexander Shogun, who oh. was. He was essentially you think of as a CIA front chemist for like the hippie generation. He was, I wouldn't say he's completely CIA, but he was indeed funded by. But he was doing meth research, Tony. Is is that what I heard? He's doing meth research. It was like some continuity of what they had. Like all those designer psychedelic chemicals. That was him too. Yeah. And obviously also like synthetic psilocybin. Don't quote me on that one though. Um, Whole bunch of things. Now, were they given any drugs to the Nazis back in the day, Tony? to make them super soldiers were they giving them anything were there any pharmaceutical companies that might still be in business today that were like working on these things because it just it seems like there's this under the subtone to american history yeah ig farben a bear have you guys heard of bear they bought monsanto or one of the yeah i'm pretty sure yeah, well, yeah. IG. yeah, you'd have to look at the trial of IG Farben to see who survived the breakup after the Dulles brothers internationalized all the German chemical patents so that they could survive, even if they lost the war after Hitler was done doing meth and went to South America. Something like that. See, let's take a look at this. This quick Israel makes a big move towards the acceptance. And this is from Forbes. The for the acceptance of MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And says here, the mechanism behind MDMA works effectively at lowering activity in the amygdala, part of the brain responsible for the perception of emotions, including fear and anger. The amygdala is proficient at storing memories of certain key events and emotions so that an individual can recognize similar threats in the future and react accordingly. In the case of people with PTSD, systems go haywire and fear and aggression responses get looped into seemingly endless negative cycles. So... Maps notes that Israel is the first national government to financially support MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, assisted psychotherapy research. At this year, the Israeli Ministry of Health granted $500,000 in medical and hospital services to Maps in support of the compassionate use of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD in Israel. That step was, I wonder if it's associated with the idea of having to go and torture, maim, kill uh, in the Gaza Strip. I'm just wondering. I mean, I know there's a lot of, but they they claim they're asking for a justified friend. by the Hamas and Hezbollah the situations over there. We helped set up as a 
sort of uh, counter dialectic. Anyways, this housing for a friend. As set by the government inspired the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation, a major philanthropic organization that funds projects in the Jewish community in Israel, uh, to contribute a generous grant to MAPS. Really? The multidisciplinary psychedelic. Yeah, multidisciplinary. Yeah. Uh, right something psychedelic something for the israeli compassionate use program quote a society is only as strong as how it cares for its most vulnerable communities end quote says stacy shusterman chair of the charles and lynn shusterman family foundation quote i am proud that israel is leading the world and exploring new ways to support and treat people suffering from ptsd and psychiatric illnesses end quote the combined results of maps phase three trials from 15 sites in the u.s canada and israel are expected are expected by the end of 2021. An interesting side note, Rich, um, in my of all of all places in my yoga, yoga uh, group, there's a psychiatrist or a psychologist that was just tasked with giving the first uh, FDA approved dose of LSD uh, because they're trying to get LSD approved for psychotherapeutic research. And they're essentially this first dose that was just administered last week. Apparently, uh, was used to determine uh, active dosage. So how much will be required for um, therapeutic sessions? So there is a big push right now, and it is happening right now as we speak, to get psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA pushed through for psychotherapeutic re- um, reasons, which, look, I've had, if it wasn't for the psychedelics, I wouldn't be here. It's specifically uh, psilocybin. I'm not endorsing their usage. They are very dangerous. That being said, they they have the potential, but they also have the potential for for for. Uh, healing and therapeutic usage. They also have the potential for extreme abuse. Uh, let's not forget what the CIA, CIA did with MK Ultra. And unfortunately, like I said earlier, can well, I guess before pre-show, I was talking about the tabula rasa concept associated with uh, wiping memory clean. Um, if people who don't do a lot of self-reflection, philosophic research, maybe theological research, and understanding various ideas associated with metaphysics and epistemology after coming back from a psychedelic experience, uh, if you don't do the requisite, you know, time spent to try to integrate the paradoxical nature and the images and the, the visions and the and the ideas associated with those experiences, takes they time are essentially process, a tabula rasa, which means a blank slate. It's a blank slate, and people can rewrite what they want to on that blank slate. And what are the psychiatrists, the psychologists, what are they going to imprint on essentially a consciousness that has been, you know, wiped down to a sort of basal level, a basic level, you know, foundational level without all these associated memories and um, uh, ideologies and uh, experiences associated with those individuals. I'm just, again, asking for a friend. Well, that's what this, uh, this new series has a drug. Let me hit browser again. It's called RD4895. And it's in the series called The Terminal List with Chris Pratt. Now, is it a real drug? Hmm. Let me see. Is there a spoiler here? I don't want to spoil it for anybody. It's like a designer RD drug. It's like the Richard, Richard drug. Shogun it's a designer story. drug supposed to be for PTSD treatment, but created horrible side effects, right? So they were shutting off the amygdala. They're doing all the stuff we were just talking about with these other cases, right? Um, but this is uh, used on special forces soldiers, and uh, it was supposed to be there for preventing PTSD, but when you take away people's emotions and ability to store memories of things, uh, things get messy really fast, but it makes it an interesting series. So if you, right, right. With Christian Bale. Prozium 2 is what it's called. When, uh, yeah. Gotta take your Prozium today. Yeah. 
your Ross you know, Perot. That was interesting because that has to do with like, take it, and you you have a flat tax. <laughs> has to do with stifling emotion, making everyone essentially an automaton, making them. It stifles both emotion and critical thinking, apparently, for that population. So they can't. Everything is very uh, austere, black and white, very placid. It's an interesting film. It was, it's not a very good film, but it is interesting from the standpoint of what it's trying to communicate. It sort of was within the wave of what the, hmm. the first Matrix. So everyone was sort of juxtaposing it to the first Matrix and be like, look, it's just a Matrix ripoff. It's not as good. But it had an inter- interesting and important message like the Matrix, the original Matrix had. Um, anyways. So Tony was talking about Tabla Rosa wiping the mind like a clean slate and MK Ultra and practical applications of these things. Our next clip personifies it in a non-personified character manner. Yes, NPCs, you've seen them, you've known them, you've loved them, but now they're coming to a whole nother level. And like I said, uh, it used to be just uh, people in a nerdy nerd world mm-hmm. doing these things. And now it's coming to TikTok, and it's in everybody's hands and they're being heavily rewarded. And I remember like the Skinner and Pavlov experiments and revolving schedules of reward. And this spells disaster. So if you take like the clips you've seen thus far in the show, plus imagine like idiocracy's uh, court scene. Now we're going to watch this Paul Joseph Watson clip. And I, I can imagine the pain he had to go through to even watch the source material to put this together. And uh, I just want to applaud him for his courage. And uh, and it makes a real difference in the world. He's opening a lot of eyes with this video. And uh, you will not see Tony or I doing any of this stuff anytime soon because we're real human beings. But other people, they're not satisfied with being real human beings. They want to dumb themselves down to act like an algorithm. And it's it it's not Buckethead. No, it's not. No, that's that's he plays a character. It's kind of like Westworld, kind of like the the HBO remake of Westworld. (laughs) That's, you know, so yeah, this is a non entertaining Westworld. It's actually robots. (laughs) It is is pretty hilarious. We've got to laugh. They had more personality than these human beings playing robots. Let's go to clip. Yeah, exactly. You probably saw this and were wondering, is it as bad as I think? Yes. Oh, marshmallow. Crunchy corn, yum. Kitty paws. Pumpkin, yum. For me, for me, for me, for me, for me. Oh, Dackle, for me, for me. Welcome to TikTok's latest wholesome contribution to society. It's literally called the NPC trend. Fire, fire, meow. Hee-haw, yes. You got me feeling like a cowgirl. Balloon. So simps spend actual money to buy TikTok tokens in the form of cartoon stickers, ice cream cones, donuts, roses, then NPC streamers react to receiving them with scripted catchphrases and repetitive sex robot style movements. Ooh, ooh, gang gang, gang gang, 
Gang, gang. At the end of the stream, when the NPCs cash out, some of them are making over $7,000 a day. That's after TikTok takes its 70% cut. The vast majority, though, aren't really making anywhere near that and are just badly copying the trend. Actually, <laughs> 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 A whole generation with thousand-yard stares, hopelessly addicted to a Chinese spy app, now literally behaving like robotic computer code to feed their narcissism-addled dopamine dependence. If you only knew how bad things really are. They're a marshmallow. Crunchy corn, yum! Kitty paws, brrrr! Oh, 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 pumpkin, yum! How spicy. Naturally, the legacy media, fresh from denouncing an anti-child trafficking movie, rush to their defence. Whenever they endorse something, you automatically know it's trash. Vice, the same publication that celebrates virtuous pedophiles, claims the trend has made a lot of people mad. Mad as in driven insane by cringe overdose, maybe. Mad angry? Not really. Most people are just wondering what the hell happened to Gen Z. One of the most high-profile progenitors of this slop is Cherry Crush, who calls herself an AI Tamagotchi. She's so childlike, cute and innocent. Give her money. And of course, it turns out she's an online sex worker and adult performer, otherwise known as a prostitute. Another top TikTok NPC live streamer, Pinky Doll, advertises a free sex tape once you subscribe. Mmm, ice cream's so good. Ooh, ooh, ooh. The form likely originated with sex workers who would take donations from viewers in exchange for performing sexual acts. Right, so it's basically PG porn. The TikTok to OnlyFans pipeline. Yum. Ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Another chance for TikTok to get underage boys hooked on the gateway drug of degeneracy. Greasing the skids for a lifetime of self-destructive simping. An actual porn addiction. Great, thanks for that. We definitely needed more of that. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Thanks for the glizzies. <laughs> Remember, a quarter of TikTok's user base is aged 10 to 19. One million kids under 13 were found to be using the app in the UK. They're just pushing pre-porn on pre-teens again. It's basically half of what TikTok is at this point. Now let's show you something that's genuinely wholesome. Look at this little fella. He's only eight weeks old. He's too young and quite frankly, too fluffy to need a proper skincare routine. That's product placement. Me, on the other hand, or you can skip ahead. There's like more to the video. Well, yeah, there's more. Yeah, go ahead. PJW yeah, does yeah, have good yeah, skin, so maybe you want to buy that skin, skin yeah. cleanser thing. King, so much money. Yeah, so did whale hunting. Doesn't mean it's good, does it? The Vice article admits the whole thing represents some dark fusion of fetish and cognitive gambling addiction. But then says anyone criticizing it or saying it's bizarre is just angry and jealous. Because the trend feels a little too good to watch. Yeah, heroin feels good too. Should we feed it to kids? Rolling Stone lords the trend of having zero thoughts. Because it helps you stop stressing about the world's student debt and laws that make it harder for you to abort your baby. Sounds pretty good to me. They interviewed one of the originators of the trend who said, quote, you're letting go of your consciousness in order to achieve this higher level of enlightenment. Enlightenment? Really? Fire, 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 fire. Take your lily, slay her. So enlightening. Roses. Um, 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 hot dog, yeah. Butter, eat your heart out. <laughs> 
feel more enlightened already. It's strange, isn't it, that the same media establishment that clutches its pearls over the dangers of toxic masculinity and the male gaze is gushing in its defense of a trend that objectifies young girls as robotic sex dolls. Hi, I'm Barbie. Do you want a tour of my Barbie dream home? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. While rewarding them for being submissive, unthinking playthings for horny young men. Yes. Yes. Yes, Daddy. Yes. <laughs> yes. What a great role model. Go, feminism! But it's not just girls performing the trend. This brain rot has infected men too. GG. Thank you for the share. Soy Jack. I'm a fat cow. Uh, I love ice cream. So enlightening. Chicken, chicken! Also observe how they've basically succeeded in reappropriating the NPC meme, which used to be a savage critique of groupthink, intellectual cowardice, and exposed the dangers of mass conformity, and has now been supplanted by this. Roses. Ah, roses. Ah, roses. Ah, roses. People conforming on demand for cash and eating worms for money. By the way, guys, anyone that sends me a lion or a universe, lion or universe, I will eat night crawlers tonight live. I will literally take them out of a fishing container and eat night crawlers live. So enlightening. Lightning. <laughs> and all from the same entity that gave you the Tide Pod Challenge and other wholesome trends that literally killed a bunch of kids. We once again honor TikTok for its services to the mental stability of Gen Z. But hey, if you can't beat them, join them. Not like YouTube's paying me much, is it? I'm, I'm, I'm ice cream, yum! I'm too old for this. <laughs> Just when you thought it couldn't go dumber, they got it. Dumber. It's got to be. A, I think we need to go to this, right? There's... To the other side of the spectrum right now. Like, I feel a little, feel like dirty being on that side of the railroad tracks. Maybe we need to go to the other side. So uh, toxic masculinity. Yeah. Let's check out some of that. Let's talk to uh, someone who's not supporting the sex trade and uh, trying to introduce it to kids and quite. In fact, quite the opposite. Let's go to a former Navy SEAL. You're going to see Chad of the Three of Seven Project. He's a good firearms instructor, but he got asked recently what he thought of Sound of Freedom. So I clicked, and I was like, this is a damn good answer. So I would like to share it with you guys. Um, we're going to we'll show his we'll show his web page, but uh, uh, he's got a, like the YouTube page, but uh this is an opinion. This is not his usual vlog. He's usually out on the range shooting targets. This is him in his car giving, uh, you know, a candid opinion between me, you, and anyone else who knows how to press play. I do not necessarily, uh, what does it say? Uh, I have no aversion to what he's saying. Uh, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't disagree with what he's saying. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's right for everybody. I'm just saying this guy, he made a little sense and uh, maybe more people should consider such perspectives and uh i too have not seen the movie it pretty much for the same reasons as what i'm about to let you hear right now so let's go to the to the clip this is chad from the three of seven project chad with two d's he's a double d navy seal don't go no he identifies as he him okay so the double d's don't have anything to do with him don't transition. Don't even give credence. All right, to let's go back to the thing. topic. Yeah, don't even don't even get started with him. He won't take it. 
So let's go to Chad and his uh his 1980s Oakleys, which are coming back in style. Howdy, YouTube. Welcome back to another episode of Truck Talk brought to you by me, inspired by Chili. I've been asked multiple times uh, over the last day or two about what I think of, about the movie, The Sound of Freedom, the new movie that just came out, uh, as if most people, I guess, are assuming that, that I'm going to go watch the movie. And so I want to be up front with you guys. I'm not going to watch that movie. Uh, not because I think it's a it's it's a bad movie. Not because I I think it's a bad uh, mission to bring light to uh, child trafficking across the face of the earth. Uh, I think it's it's really good to to have a piece of content that educates ignorant people, people who are ignorant to the wickedness of this world, uh, to maybe open their eyes a little bit and uh, bring them back to reality. I'm not one of those people who are ignorant to the wickedness and the evil that exists in the world. All right. I've seen it. Uh, I, I've heard, I, I, I've heard about it. We all have, um, I have chosen not to remain willfully ignorant of it. I've been confronted with it. I know it's there, man. I know why it's there. I know why it's happening. I know where it's happening. The whole nine yards, man. And here's my issue. Here's my here's my dang issue, man. Especially with this whole thing that's that's happening on with with uh, trafficking of children. My personal policy: if I see you or anybody else ever, any place, any time, and you are maliciously doing something that is contrary to the well-being of a child, I'm gonna send you to meet your maker. That's my policy, man. This is my issue, man. The, the un unrighteous laws, rules, and regulations that have been created to protect these people who are involved in harming children, they just, man, they just eat me up. I am incapable. I would be incapable of playing by those rules. All right? That's my policy. Now, the men and women who have dedicated their lives to hunting these people down, I don't even want to call these people criminals. These people are pure freaking evil. If you would do anything contrary to the well-being of a child, you are pure evil. The Bible says... It would be better for you if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were dropped into the sea than for you to harm a child. And these people that spend their lives hunting down these individuals that are hamstrung by the laws, rules, and regulations of man that are biased toward criminals, these people are stronger than me, man. I couldn't do the job they're doing. Because if I had to witness the things every day that these people are witnessing, it would be ugly. Because I'm not playing by the rules of man. So, I'm not watching the movie, man. I know what's going on. Again, I'm not ignorant. I don't need to watch that stuff. 
because I'm not ignorant. And two, because I don't need to feed that side of myself purposely. And uh, I choose not to watch violent movies, play violent video games. I'm careful about what I let into my head. Because y'all don't know, y'all think y'all know me, but you don't understand me, dude. I exist on the verge of, of going off the rails and outside the boundaries of the laws, rules, and regulations of unrighteous man that law enforcement has to play by with these freaking wicked people. Imagine if everyone, imagine if everyone had the same policy as me. If you do something to maliciously harm a child purposefully, I'm going to send you to your maker. Imagine if, imagine if that was everyone's policy. These people who like to traffic children, they wouldn't last very long. They sure wouldn't. That's what I got to say on that. That's a hard one to record. A lot of y'all take that the wrong way. I don't give a crap. Enough said. Chad Wright, outspoken, Parhesia right there. He also can run like a 250-mile race. So he's an extreme endurance runner. He's taken his Navy SEAL training and, and transitioned into more of a spiritual warrior uh, position in the world. Good instructor, and uh, he leads by example in a lot of the, the physical training, the PT uh, that he does. So uh, Chad Wright, you can find him on YouTube. He's the 3 of 7 Project. And it's not always insightful truck talk that he's got going on there. Most of the time, like I said, it's it's useful Second Amendment emboldening types of skills and drills that you might want to also check out on his webpage. All right. So um, coming up for intermission tonight, we're not quite there yet, but I'm going to give a little foreshadowing because just about everything that we've mentioned as topics in the show tonight ends up being in part of this intermission and uh it's a long piece so i think we'll cut it into two we'll do the first half of it tonight we'll play the second half next week i will still be on vacation and remote next week and hopefully uh, we'll work out some of these tech issues before then but uh, you're gonna have a piece of content and if you don't for some reason seeing it uh seeing it in, in its uh clarity uh we'll give the the members of grand theft world you guys can have a link if it's not already in the community we'll add this to the members area so you can see it in its uh, full HD-ness, as it were. But, Tony, I was thinking, what other clips should we cover before we get to uh, tonight's intermission? We, as a good sort of uh, segue from, uh, what's his name, Chad, the individual I'm unfamiliar with him. But uh, we should go to human trafficking, mind control, and the CIA by Greg Reese, because that sort of brings it home from a lot of the, the videos that Greg... Because what he's alluding to, I think, this individual that we just played, is the fact that this... Come on, it's how many times have we gone over situations in America itself amongst the most powerful elite within America. So I think Greg Reese will come at home. It's the reason why I don't we don't need to necessarily look at the sound of freedom as being this, but not only with its shady uh, connections to the Angel Studios has with the, the Podesta and Clinton NGOs and stuff of, the, of that nature, but just 
with the fact that it sort of presents it as something being outside of the United States. Well, no, it's much more ubiquitous and it's all over the world. So to to that individual's point about the ubiquity across the world, it's good for opening. Maybe people are completely blind, opening their eyes or lifting the veil a little bit. But let's go to what I think this community can handle in regards to the reality of what's really going on. So I'd say let's go to the Greg Reese video and then we'll come back for some commentary and then we can go. Uh, you can set it up for intermission. You're on mute, Rich. Sorry. In 1987, Tallahassee, Florida police responded to an anonymous phone tip about six malnourished children covered in bug bites and scratches being accompanied by two well-dressed men in a public park. The two men were arrested for child abuse and suspicion of trafficking children across state lines. And so the U.S. Customs Service, the Washington Metropolitan Police Department, and the FBI all got involved. The two men arrested had multiple fake IDs and were found to be members of a group known as the Finders. The Finders owned multiple properties in the D.C. area. The investigation of these properties reportedly found evidence of child pornography and photographs of three children and three white-robed men dismembering two goats. The children described a harsh learning environment where a man known as the Game Caller was in charge of everyone and could talk to the adults with a computer in the van. One of the games they played was responding to local newspaper advertisements for babysitters, tutors, and anything else that could get them into a family's home where they would then gather as much information as possible about the family's habits, identity, and occupation. The finders were labeled a satanic cult, and the media sensationalized it for a full week until the investigation was called off. It was reported that the mothers of the children were members of the finders, and that the two men had the full consent of the parents to be transporting them. The media narrative then blamed their own sensationalism, claiming that the whole thing was blown out of proportion and that the finders were just a harmless 1960s style hippie community. Years later, the reports of U.S. Customs Special Agent Ramon J. Martinez began bringing attention back to the matter. Martinez claimed that evidence included the intent to traffic children, the ordering of children from Hong Kong through the Chinese embassy, the instructions on the impregnation of female members of the finders, and a library of books on the subjects of mind control and terrorist warfare strategy. Martinez claimed that every attempt to review evidence was blocked and was finally told by a member of the Metropolitan Police Department that the finders had come under the protection of the CIA, who claimed jurisdiction by deeming it an internal matter and had the entire case labeled secret. The leader of the Finders, Marion Petty, bragged about infiltrating the CIA. His wife, Isabel, worked for the CIA, and their son worked for the CIA-run Air America. Finder members' passports revealed travel visas to places such as North Korea, North Vietnam, and Russia, all approved by the U.S. State Department. This resurfaced evidence inspired outrage and an investigation was launched. The Department of Justice began investigating allegations that the CIA had used a front company run by a commune to train agency employees. 
Their investigation resulted in a verdict of no evidence of CIA interference and no evidence of criminal activity with the finders. During this same time period was the McMartin preschool scandal, wherein hundreds of parents reported that their children had suffered satanic sexual abuse at a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. And for some reason, evidence seized from the finders included a map of this same preschool. It seems to be the norm. Kindercare, the biggest preschool chain in America, was owned by Henry Kravis, who was a close associate of former CIA director George Bush. Kindercare has been accused by several parents for child abuse and satanic ritual abuse. Former Clinton Foundation official Joel Getz operated a huge chain of kindergartens in China where several parents complained that their children were molested. Just as the CIA and their partner groups manage the media, Hollywood, and the worldwide drug trade, they also manage the human slave trade. And as bad as the symptoms are, we need to be focused on the disease if we ever want to end this. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Powerful reporting by the Greg Reister there. That was uh, that's a lot of history brought together. I have seen some of that documentation on the finders, but he's bringing new original pieces that we haven't seen of this puzzle yeah. uh, into that because to the I didn't realize that with the North Korea, North Vietnam and Russia, that's fascinating. That's new as far as the finders are concerned. Is and that the State Department the approved it. Abs- yeah. Yes. Yep. And that the State Department being in the approval position because According to the Quigley, Anthony Sutton story, John Loftus evidence, the State Department created on the behalf of the internationalists or globalists, uh, a, uh, a CIA inside the CIA called OPC, the Office of Policy Coordination. And it's where all the skullduggery was kind of going on. And then they have the outer rings of people that think they're defending America. But the inner ring makes sure that it's corrupt and all these things are going to eventually leak out and people are going to not trust these types of entities anymore. So on many fronts, I think they're being effective at their plan and people are now just realizing that things are going on like that. Yeah, seeing the scope, I mean, it's through an enterprise called Future Enterprises, which is very, you know, dubious in and of itself, which is sort of this front for the CIA operation that connects to the finders. It reminds me so much of when we were doing the book club, Maddie Bannon and myself uh, doing the book club for uh, One Nation Under Blackmail. Because like as you go through that, you see what like Epstein is. He's not like a, a he's not small fry, so to speak, but he's essentially inheriting a large logistical network that already exists. And he's trying to understand how it works. You can sort of see pieces that, that Whitney puts together in her book, all these pieces of evidence that I think Johnny a couple of weeks ago mentioned that like it's just like just a, a pouring out of evidence. And what you see is that he's starting to get interested in like Southeast Asia. He's starting to get interested and he was majorly interested in Eastern Europe. Now, what was going on in Eastern Europe, especially with the fall and the fact, not only that, but his mentor, um, the media, mogul, Robert Maxwell, based on the name right now, he, yeah, Maxwell, like the connections with essentially XKGB or Eastern European black markets, especially once the wall came down and once the USSR dissolved, 
I mean, it just wasn't, it was a field day for people like Epstein to go. And that's basically the contemporaneous with the, when it seems like the operation started in regards to not just him working in real estate or arms and drug smuggling and stuff like that, these connections to BCCI and, and, and Adnan Khashoggi and that sort of stuff. No, now he starts in the late eighties, early, not really early nineties, getting into the sex trade. And now he's interested in like, where do I go and get these these uh these victims and where does he go he goes to war-torn places so when i hear north korea uh north vietnam and russia connected to this future enterprise that connects to the finders and the cia run cia run operation through this future enterprises that just you know it's there's so many analogies that can be drawn like you go into areas that have very little law like essentially were destroyed either for war-torn conflict or ethnic conflict or you know, not much government oversight or largely corrupt and run by black markets. And they go and take these children and they're able to, especially in places where the children were, you know, maybe not don't have parents anymore, large orphanages because of the tra tragedy of what's going on in those nations. And they take them, they use them for sex trafficking. So I'm seeing a similar parallel. Of course, this then ties into what is even takes another step beyond Epstein, which is ritual Satanism, um, ritual satanic abuse. In the 80s, they call it the satanic panic. Um trying to remember Colin Ross was that the one you interviewed in state of mind he mentions that went specifically yeah. um that was like one of the MK scare tactics they used in order to uh, yeah he tried to like misdirect like the media tried to misdirect from the whole what they called the satanic panic of the 80s um to try to like build up a straw man so at first they did a red herring to build a straw man in order to try to you know denounce that these organizations had any connections they're just like oh it's just a hippie commune like don't don't look here you know, look, the people are embellishing this and this is like crazy Christians and stuff like that. And lo and behold, it seems like more and more evidence is coming out. No, this is this is ritualistic abuse. Like at that is like this. That's how disgusting, uh, how evil brought to you by the same is. people who created so, Charles Manson for what it is. Exactly. The CIA. So that's why at the end, when he flashes CIA, like and what happened to John F. Kennedy? Why we'll hear about RFK now being grilled by. You know, Didn't the CIA create Ted Kaczynski too with MK Ultra? Yes, that's correct. And Ted Kaczynski had a sort of he had a will he's a bit of a William Sidus analogy there, you know. And John Stuart Mill is a mm -hmm. analogy also to William Sidus. Both were actually contemporaneous and both went mm -hmm. through fathers that tried to instantiate high IQs in uh their sons in order to bring about this new positivistic world which john stuart mill suffered a mental breakdown went the opposite route one like peace love sort of pseudo hippie 19th century style and uh william Sidus, well um, we don't i forget what happened to him but he also suffered a mental breakdown and i don't know if he ever became anything of what they wanted so but goodwill hunting's based on it so yeah so um I have one more clip on this topic. Like this, but. <clears throat> it's uh, LD. It's it's in the production room. It's on uh, the story is the, the the sound of freedom has haters, and recently there was an expose on one particular hater, and he has a very interesting past that's going to be highly ironic given the circumstances. So I present to you uh, Jeremy from the Quartering with this story about one particular hater of the sound of freedom. And uh, I think he's not uh, a fan of the movie for a different reason than what Chad Wright was just talking about. Different reason. What's going on, everyone? Jeremy here from The Quartering. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. You know the old saying, you know, me thinks thou doth protest too much. Well, when we talk about 
the loudest critics of the worldwide sensation, The Sound of Freedom, which is now projected to surpass $100 million. Um, it seemed that a lot of them, it seems that a lot of them may have had, may have some interesting skeletons in their closet. Well, my news organization, thepublica.com, has recently published a very interesting look into some of the loudest critics of the film. And guess what? They are known and have many times tweeted support of, how do I say this? Um, Full-grown adults who are friend, uh, fans of the playground, you know, they might hang out there, uh, even though they don't have anyone with them to enjoy it. If you get, if you catch my drift, um, and obviously given uh, how spicy this video is going to be, uh, I want to shout out to this video sponsor, Gold Co. Until now, the digital dollar, or CBDC, has been nothing but a headline. But right now, things are developing at a rapid pace. It started with sweeping executive order from the Biden administration, and now central banks are even hiring for their development. Here's the thing. A digital dollar can be used to track your purchases, control what you buy, and even seize or freeze your assets. That's why it's critical you protect your money with precious metals like gold and silver. I've partnered with the top-rated precious metals company, Gold Core, while supplies last, plus all qualified. Go to the link in Bloomberg. Now make sure you use the link, by the way. That's how you qualify for it. So, um, Bloomberg has published a negative review of The Sound of Freedom penned by a writer who has expressed sympathies for, well, you know. Noah Bertlatsky, who called them a, quote, stigmatized group, slammed the film's message on protecting kids. Here's uh, the article over on thepublica.com for more information. Now, um, interestingly enough, oh, by the way, quarteringgold.com is, uh, is the link. Bloomberg is under fire after publishing a scathing review of Sound of Freedom penned by a writer who's expressed sympathies for, well, the worst people on the planet. Noah Bertlatsky called the new ant, uh, you know, protecting kids film a, quote, QAnon dog whistle. Bertlatsky's July 15th opinion piece argued that Eduardo Verstig, uh, Ver I'm going to mispronounce, I'm so sorry, Eduardo's blockbuster film, Sound of Freedom, connects conservative conspiracy theorists with the mainstream. Bertlatsky slams the film as conspiracy fodder and claims that that's why Trump's screening it and that's why its popularity is ominous. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The reason all these weirdos were, you know, so aggressively against this film is either they like little kids, um, which I think is probably more than a few of them, or they just see it as a way to go after Trump. Sound of Freedom follows a U.S. federal agent who rescues a boy from uh, evil people before embarking on a dangerous mission to try and rescue the victim's sister. While the film has been highly praised by audiences, earning an 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb, some liberal outlets have condemned it. Uh, but Bertlatsky's review is attracting ample attention on social media, as many have pointed out that he once served as communications director for a, a pro-ped organization. Yes, they actually exist. It was called Prostasia. Independent outlet Redux has previously revealed that their campaign efforts 
have almost exclusively been directed at ending bans on those films of the little kids, demanding that dolls that they enjoy be kept legal, and funding research into, well, disgusting things. The organization has also condemned people disliking these creeps as harmful Nazi-like rhetoric, calling for social media platforms to censor those who speak negative about them. In addition to his work for this company, uh, Berlatsky, sorry, infamously penned the article in 2016 lamenting the treatment of, ch of, of kids engaged in survival hookup by police, calling them hookup workers, prostitutes. Berlatsky framed kids forced into this type of activity as willing participants in legitimate employment. Labeling those kids as uh, they're just in the industry. Berlatsky wrote in their biggest, and the biggest danger was police protecting them. One year, Berlatsky used similar rhetoric on social media in a tweet where he called the group of uh, creeps a stigmatized group, expressing sympathy for them. Heads are essentially a stigmatized group. Certain people get designated as uh, deviants and people hate them. What? Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, this is odd. This is very odd. Um, I wonder what this guy's hard drive might contain. And I think that's a reasonable question as I'm asking myself the same thing. His Twitter thread on the matter, quote, uh, said that young people of any gender who, who trade hookups face arrest uh, and bad behavior from police, and no one is very in interested in actually helping them. In his review of The Sound of Freedom, Berlatsky claims that the film's representation of trafficking is, quote, misleading. He cites, he cites uh, a data collaborative writing that 67% of the kids who are trafficked are 15 to 17-year-olds rather than, quote, young ones. Does that, is that supposed to make it better, you weirdo? Is that supposed to make it better, you absolute creep? He goes on to clarify that he does not believe someone who's 15 to 17 should be considered a young kid. Well, I bet you he doesn't. I bet you he'd love to spend a little time with them. The former director also referred to Miles Klee's review for The Rolling Stone, which labeled Sound of Freedom a superhero movie with dads for dads with brainworms. Klee similarly asserts that the film is little more than a delusion and that foments moral panic and is overly exaggerated um, and much of it funneling people into conspiracy, conspiracist rabbit holes and Q communities. You know, the, the, anybody who writes, look, okay, let me put it this way. Let me be very clear. It's entirely possible that people didn't like the movie, okay? I mean, not every, you know, there's a lot of times people are like, oh my God, you have to see this movie. It's so great. And you watch it and it's not very good or it's just not your thing. A critic saying like, hey, I didn't think the movie that is that great. That doesn't really pique my spidey senses. It doesn't make me think there's something weird going on, right? Uh, but when they write these so fantastically over the top um, and so like self-reporting uh, stories that they themselves must also enjoy these things or if they're trying to minimize it, I don't really know what to think, right? 
Despite the scathing reviews from mainstream outlets, Sound of Freedom has performed well at the box office, already grossing over $85 million as of the 4th of July, compared to its $14.5 million budget. No, that's as of the 4th of July. That's not true. That's, that's as of earlier this week. Former President Donald Trump is set to screen the film at the National Trump, Golf, Trump National Golf Club on Wednesday, July 19th. His official website says he'll be joined by the producer and the actor and Tim Ballard. Trump has released a statement ahead of the event calling out liberal media outlets like New York Times, LA Times, and Hollywood Reporter for refusing to review the film, but also slams Rolling Stone, Washington Post, CNN, and The Guardian for trashing it and mocking those who purchased tickets. The Washington Post, which also p- published Berlatsky's review of Sound of Freedom, was under fire last fall for publishing a glowing review of an off-Broadway play which appears to sympathetically portray these exact same creeps. You see, Sound of Freedom is projected at a $100 million mark this week alone after it's only its second week in theaters, with the audience increasing more than 30%, 37% over the film's first weekend at the box office. So it's, it's so rare when you know, a film gets legs like this where more people are seeing it now than when it was released. While the entire summer box office lineup is underperforming, our small independent film continues to grow week over week, said Jared Gisi, SVP of Global Distribution for Angel Studios, driven by millions of fans and supporters, Sound of Freedom has become a national and soon international movement for change. There have only been 10 wide release movies in the box office history that have had a second weekend greater than 35% over their original weekend. Uh, all, and all of them did it at Christmas, by the way. Angel Studios is the only studio to do it in a summer blockbuster season with Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom comes from the same studio responsible for the popular face-based television series, The Chosen. Film has done incredibly well in the middle of the country. Well, yeah, I mean, it should do well everywhere, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, not surprised at all. Remember to check out quarteringgold.com today. Get some uh, read-up on it. Give them a call. See what's going on. See if it's for you. And we'll talk to you again real soon. forget if we had covered that last week but it's a, it's a terrifying topic or if it was a video i watched this week in regards to that that uh, opinion writer um <laughs> about uh who has a dubious history supporting essentially pro-pedophile propaganda uh, filmography a whole bunch of other nonsense groups that you know are trying like they're, they're trying to uh, popularize or normalize uh sexualization of children it really asks, begs a lot of questions in regards to what an individual like that, um, who he is, what his tastes are, and how either absolutely ignorant or how completely immoral. Uh, and I imagine the latter he actually fundamentally is. So great reporting by Jeremy. Uh, there's a couple clips. Um, what do you think about that, Rich? Well, I also want to say that I thought it was interesting that he uses uh, conspiracy theory as a pejorative a lot of these people do and when people say conspiracy theory it it really befuddles me i have a hard time figuring out tony do they mean that they haven't looked at the other side of the issue or do they mean that they're intellectually bankrupt or do they mean that they just want me to stop speaking about facts that they're not familiar with and it makes them feel uncomfortable to be in the presence of someone who uses their literacy for freedom instead of slavery i'm 
trying to figure out what they mean by that. Or if they just are on the payroll of the CIA sort of, and like to do their work. That's another yeah, propagandist attempting to support the other side um, by building up all these like, and you know, the, one of the common themes, at least from a logical standpoint, has, has been this use of ad hominem. So ad vericundium and ad hominem appeal to authority and then attacking an individual or a group. Uh, those are essentially the king and queen of fallacies that present those two back to back in my logic course for a reason, because they're the most used. Uh, they're uh, rife throughout the culture and ubiquity throughout the culture, not just in our culture, but in other cultures. It's pretty much the number one um, uh, or it, if not the main fallacy used, it's in tandem with uh, the appeal to authority. So I think it's, you know, I see RFK essentially stating that that's what they're doing to him. And you see this, uh, these pejoratives used in a question begging epithets so as a, a bit of a, what they call a patidio principi, a circular reasoning argument. So they sort of lead with that and just assume that these people are just conspiracy theory. Well, you don't unpack what you mean by conspiracy theory. So someone looks at history and facts, or are they trying to lump it in with people who believe in aliens and like little grays from, you know, out of space or reptilians or some other nonsense like that? You know, it's, it, it, they, yeah, they're it, trying the to mix them with Netanyahu's son. <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that's part of Psy War. No, that's part of Psy War. That's how the game is played. How, how much can you muddy the waters? And that's, it's unfortunate, but true. And that's the situation in which we live. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was Vedmore made a comment that like what they're trying to do is get us to question our own perceptions so much that we'll just relinquish all control in that standpoint. I don't know if you mentioned it that way, but the idea, why would you make us question our perceptions so much so we give up? We give up trusting what is the most important element of our being, which is our ability to go out and experience the world and then communicate what we experience and find universals, find things we seem to agree on based on shared experience. And that allows us to form concepts about our world and communicate that for effective uh, living in the world in this very you know difficult and impersonal world in which to live nature is very harsh. And so when we get when they get us to question our the that are nature given god given whatever one wants to call it abilities uh that will be when they essentially have the population in the perfect position which they're attempting to do um you know, and so we have to fight against that and make sure people are aware that no like the deep fakes and the ai and all this sort of stuff we have to find ways to combat against that so we can at least verify when we can you know what we're viewing what we're understanding the information we're being given while we still have the opportunity to do so what other clips do you think we should hit before we get to the intermission? So it's late, but there's one clip that we should at least consider. I'm not saying we should play it, but I at least want to get make you aware of it and consider it. So there's a some fallout in regards this week to more of the lab leak stuff. I think we're pretty well versed on that. I don't know if we need to necessarily play it, but there were there were um, a couple of clips associated with that. One was Fauci paid scientists who uh, who covered up lab leak were grilled by Congress this week. Um, and then Kim Iverson had a Biden admin meaninglessly cuts funds. We already covered that. But then there's another one. This might be more important. There's a Jeffrey Jackson clip. It's about 16 minutes. It's new email exposes Fauci's knowledge of lab-made virus, sort of corroborating what we already know. So it's not necessary when we play them, but I found those to be, you know, worthwhile. Yeah, we, we showed those emails a couple of years ago. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's they knew and they were covering up. Chain that's like verifying. Yeah. So there's new emails that have emerged that showed that yeah. he's aware that those experiments are going on and that sort of stuff. So. 
All right, so let's do it like this. Let's play the Jackson report, right? Because that's in the Jeffrey Jackson report, and then go directly into intermission. And uh, intermission yeah. will be one half of the underground history of American. Oh no, underground history of America. That's it. That's it's not American education. That's Gatto's book. This is the bigger meta story in which his book has a slice of that history, but this is meant to be a, a more over overarching presentation. And it should fit in with all that we've talked about tonight thus far, as far as the stories covered and the topics, the, the, who are they, they who could be easily named uh, are going to come up in this next presentation right after the Jackson report, because that was one of the goals is to, to put some history and some context and some, continuity if you look at this story over a longer period of time it's very simple to understand it but if you try taking it from each week's news you're not going to ever understand the big picture so aside from like intermissions that we use to help you there's also the entire body of the peace revolution podcast hundreds of hours of the evidence the artifacts and the the contextual history that you need to make sense out of what they tell you on the news so that you don't get played like you're some dupe in the CNN or MSNBC audience that they lie to all day and gaslight and get people to make bad decisions based on the information they're given. We try to do the opposite by giving you here's access to the actual facts and history, and you can draw your own conclusions. I'm not here to do your thinking for you. I'm here to help you get started with that thinking journey because we need more processors here in the uh, individualist self-reliance, not going to be part of the new world order, globalist, collective, uh, transhumanist, uh, baby rapist cult. So we got to make our stand, and this is part of how we do it. We we do it each week, step by step, by drawing out the evidence and saying, you know what, our conclusions are pretty solid here. So far, so good. It matches up with reality, unlike the other side who continually distorts reality in order to maintain their position. So without further ado, let's go over to the high wire. We'll take the time machine back to three days ago, set it for last Thursday. Let's go to... Uh, the Jeffrey Jackson report, which is a substantial segment in the high wires Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern time broadcast every week. Let's go to Dell Big Tree and Jeffrey Jackson. Jackson report, always enlightening. One of the things that we talk about here, it's been a beat since literally almost day one of this pandemic was the, the origins of this. And we're going to expand on this a little bit and get outside of Wuhan. But there's been some new news on this some breaking news. And in order to frame this correctly, does everyone remember when Rand Paul was questioning Dr. Fauci and there was a lot of denials going on? It sounded like this. Take a look. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. So what was, let me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans, right. you're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. Them's fighting words. <laughs> well, well, uh, well, fortunately, we have some work from the select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic, and 
they have redacted some of Anthony Fauci's internal emails that were gleaned through FOIA requests and, and certain. Yeah, some uh, of the ones we got. I mean, it's amazing, right? These guys work for us. What about health would have to be hidden from us in these emails uh, as, the, as different groups, including ours, were you know, making FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests? There are employees, but what were they hiding? And on something as important as this topic. So yeah. we have the, the redacted version of this email. And you can see there's this big box that was redacted. Yeah. We have no clue what's going on, but it says, the call with Jeremy Farrar, Welcome Trust, went well. And then you're thinking, you can't leave me hanging here. So this was unredacted by the select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic recently. And we, we were able to see a window into this entire email. We can read this now. And we look at this and basically it's the beginning of February. This is something we've covered for a very long time. This is Christian Anderson, Jeremy Farrar, uh, Francis Collins, Tony Fauci. They're all getting together saying, where did this come from? What's going on? Um, did we fund this research? How do we know this? So. Anthony Fauci gets on a call with all these people and he's giving this update in this email. And in this email, it's basically saying that, well, from the from the highly credible scientists he talked to, the immunologists, that there's there's some unusual aspects of this virus that, it, you know, this mutation, the molecular data was consistent with engineering. You know, there was some intentional tampering, perhaps, of these insertions. And then Fauci goes on to say this in this email. He says, the suspicion was heightened by the fact that scientists at Wuhan University are known to have been working on gain-of-function experiments to determine the molecular mechanisms associated with bat viruses adapting to human infection and the outbreak originated in Wuhan. So there's a little bit of an inconvenient wow. fact. Yeah. Uh, he's basically saying, and Wuhan University is right down the road from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He's saying this is known to be doing gain-of-function experiments. They're doing these things. They're enhancing the infectability of these viruses. So we, we, we keep seeing data showing this thing was perhaps a byproduct of these experiments in Wuhan. And uh, Dr. Well, what's Redfield amazing about that, too, is think about this. That email is being sent out in the height of this conversation. You know, we're in media saying, look, the, the fact that this is so close, this outbreak is happening so close to a lab that uh, John Stewart, the comedian, so perfectly put, the lab is literally named exactly after the virus is now that, you know, out among us, a bat coronavirus in a bat coronavirus lab. Uh, and, and so in the middle of this, you have Tony Fauci clearly saying there's gain of function going on here. Now, I suppose the only thing that's left is whether or not American dollars are involved in that exact word grouping gain of function, which it seems just obvious. But in the middle of all that, what they're doing is getting together. And days later, this is when they're going to say absolutely no way this came from the lab. Absolutely been proven to be natural origin, even though Ferrari and many of these that are in the conversation and scientists have said we've been over this and over this they've been saying look this looks like it came from a lab it looks like you know th there are modifications that just don't seem to be uh contributed to by nature and so now we really are and i knew all of this is going to start backfiring on fauci he is saying one thing and then leading the world literally in a wild goose chase to me also the cover-up of the lab making sure that no one went and investigated this lab to me it's treasonous i believe this man we're looking at right now should be tried for treason putting the entire world at risk for hiding the fact that he knew gain of function was happening this very well could be a you know bioweapon of sorts even if it wasn't released on purpose the fact that it's going to cause harm and death worldwide and his fingerprints were all over over it. Clearly, he was trying to hide it. Uh, this isn't going to go away. We're not going to let it go away. 
And as we reported on the revelations just a couple of weeks ago, we do know the names now of the three people that showed first symptoms of this. They were actual scientists and researchers working in that Wuhan Institute of Virology, working with the bat coronaviruses. So again, we keep seeing this data. It's just like, yeah. how far is this going to go? So remember Robert Redfield, he's the ex-CDC director, and he had been saying really out front since day one, we need to question this origins. He, he thinks that it, is, it did come from a lab. It was an accidental release. And he was talked. They talked to him about this uh, this email redaction. He said this. This is the headline. Ex CDC director says unredacted Fauci gain of function email reveals aggressive attempt to change narrative. And finally, we get some uh, some movement from the Biden administration on this piece on the funding. U.S. government suspends funding so the so that Wuhan lab does not receive another dollar. That's what wow, the Biden administration finally. has done over stonewalling COVID probe. So we have this headline now, this is what's happening. No more money goes to Wuhan lab. Three years later, after this pandemic has basically ravaged the world, the US is going to stop funding this. But now we're talking about, that's kind of like the exclamation point on that topic, but we're talking about more of an expansion here. And remember, Bill Gates had, had been woven into this story all over the place from the vaccine research for the COVID vaccine to the actual just monitoring of infectious viruses around the world. And he said this during that time. Take a listen. Yeah. I believe we can prepare for the future uh, and with the right tools, uh, be able to stop uh, pandemics before they uh, become widespread. However, uh, you know, a future pandemic could be far worse in terms of its fatality. It could be, you know, intentionally caused bioterrorism. So I mean, we've when, said it time and time again, these guys, it's like they're psychic, right? They predict things are coming and then lo and behold, how do they know? Here we are in the middle of it. And we also remember, too, Fauci was saying that he was sure President uh, Trump would would, you know, face some type of pathogen during his presidency. So which, by uh, the way, just for people that maybe watch this for the same time, you know, right now or maybe just joining us, epidemics typically are about 50 years apart, uh, sort of like a massive earthquake, you know. And for Fauci to say, I am certain that in Donald Trump's, you know, uh, time in office, he will face a major pathogen. um, It's a little eerie. It's a little weird. Just just put that out there. Take that as you will. I, I believe as as reporters and journalists and researchers, in any time we see the media start pushing fear headlines after what we just experienced as a world, three years of this, we have to question these headlines. We have yeah. to question. We have to dig into them. So this is what we're seeing out of the UK now. So check out these headlines. Killer virus certain, certain to reach UK as experts warn. It's a case of when and not if. They're talking, you look at that, that sub- Byline there, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever has been described as the current biggest threat to public health. An expert told Mir it spreads easily and is painful. Biggest threat to public health. Never heard of it. What are these right. people talking about? Right. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Amazing. <laughs> it's kind of our job to monitor these things. So another headline, deadly virus guaranteed. Again, putting some fear in there. Is this a nudge unit? Guaranteed to reach UK and defeat lockdown measures, experts warn. So now this brings us, we're gonna rip the, we're gonna just rip the lid off this thing. So okay. we've been hyper-focused as, you know, on this show and as the world on one sliver of this biosafety level research. We have the Wuhan lab, obviously we've been reporting on that, but these labs are all over the world. And so we, we hear about this biggest threat to public health now, this Crimean 
uh, Congo hemorrhagic fever. Let's dig into this a little bit. So that brings us to the independent Republic of Georgia. This is a country that sits on Russia's southern border. And in 2011, the United States built a biosafety lab, a BSL th uh, level three lab there. And this was uh, the, the headline in, tw in 2011. Senator, uh, they're talking about Senator Richard Lugar that was named after him, applauds opening of Nun Lugar Biothreat Laboratory in Tbilisi, Georgia. So we funded this thing, we built it. In fact, we literally built it from the ground up. Here's a government contract for $170 million to the American Civil Engineering Company, CH2M Hill Incorporated, place of performance, place uh, uh, where this money was going, Georgia, to build this lab. They're doing, dealing with all the safety mechanisms in this lab and the engineering for it. And now let's go to Dr. Charles Vitek. He works for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And this was, this was an article that was put out uh, by the U.S. Embassy in Georgia. And he was answering questions on the type of research at the Lugar Center. Listen to this. He says, in terms of the work that they do at the Lugar Center on insects, it is designed to make sure that they can understand how natural infections in this country that are transmitted by insects can be studied and how you can fight against them, how you can prevent them. So that's the type of work that goes on here on NCDC, that's Georgia's Centers for Disease Control. There are political statements made in Russia about research on spreading biological agents by insects. That is not something that we have ever studied here in the Lugar Center. We do study how to prevent diseases that are nationally transmitted right now in Georgia. There is an outbreak of Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever that's transmitted by ticks, of course. We have scientists who have, who have to study those ticks so you know how to prevent that type of infection. That's the type of work that's going on 100%. Where have we Boy, heard that something before? so guilty sounding about it. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's just when you're accused, but suddenly it's like, and this accusation made by Putin that we're on his border and somehow designing insects that could carry diseases, that is not what's happening. What we're doing is just studying diseases that carry, I mean, just studying insects that carry disease and make sure you know that there's, you know, those two ideas aren't crossing. It reminds me of like it, Bart Simpson, you know, I wasn't there, wasn't me, can't prove anything. Right. And so that, I mean, it's kind of similar to Wuhan, we're, we're, we're finding these bat coronaviruses, we're engineering them, we're, we're increasing their, inf their ability to infect humans. Um, and we have to do this because this is a dangerous thing and we need to develop a vaccine so we can get ahead of this. We have to do it. So right. we go to Lugar Center, they have a PowerPoint presentation that was up there and it's titled Lugar Center and Service of Public Health in Georgia. They're talking about the challenges and, and solutions. And you see here on slide 16, there was a, a, a outbreak of this hemorrhagic fever in 2009. Remember, the, the Lugar Center was built in 2011. Then you see at this on this PowerPoint, 2012, there's several more cases they found. 2013, there was 13 cases. 2014, there was 23 cases and so on. So we have this increasing level of these hemorrhagic fevers being found there. But then the United States military becomes involved. So this was from the US Army Medical Research Directorate in Georgia. And it says this, in 2015, Georgia National Centers for Disease Control and the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research signed a memorandum of understanding to formalize the partnership between these institutions. The importance of this long-term investment in the compliance with international standards has been validated recently with Georgia's successful campaign to combat public health challenges, including the COVID-19 pandemic and a recent cluster of the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever cases. So now you have the Walter Reed Army Institute in there working with them for these hemorrhagic fever cases. But 
we look at this whole thing and for our audience, you know, we're, we're checking off some boxes. We're just asking questions here. Boy, you know, we really, this is the biggest public health threat we've never heard of. Let's right. look at, let's look at some of the lab history on this first. But for our audience, the big question is, are they working on a vaccine? You bet they are. Here's a 2020 study. A DNA-based vaccine protects against Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus disease in macaque models. So they've tested this in monkeys in 2023 years ago. They have a DNA-based vaccine that's in the works. So this, again, we're, we're putting this here. We're stamping this in here. Hopefully this thing does not become a future disease. The biggest health threat does not run rampant. But we need, to, we need to ask these questions. When the headlines start pushing fear, we know there's nudge units that work with the media. We found yeah. that out, especially in the UK during the COVID response. We have to ask, why the fear? Why are these experts trying to drum up fear, especially in the wake? We have a traumatized public. This is not, it's not hard to scare people with headlines like that. So we have to ask these questions. Absolutely. And I, I want to point out to our audience, it's growing all the time. You know, we are giving you early warning, just like we did on monkeypox, so that we were able to really spread the word that this is a fear tactic. It is not affecting that many people. And I think the monkeypox, you know, uh, next pandemic was really shut down because of people in our audience and intelligent people around the world starting to talk about it. We should talk about this. We should be talking about it and warning people that they're warning us about this and we should ask ourselves why. And I just want to put out there, right, we are not a, a network that dives deep into conspiracy theory. There are plenty of podcasts out there that do that. We stick to what we can prove and the science that exists and what we know is going on. But I will ask this question. In the history of living in the United States of America as an American citizen, have you you ever known a time where we are not looking at the worst case scenario of development in any type of weapon space? If Russia is investigating something, don't you think we are? If China is investigating something, don't you think we are? Whether it's right or wrong, gain of function or not, my experience right now and what we've sort of proven through time is if the idea exists at all, we have top scientists that are working on it. I think we should stop accepting when they say there's no way we're doing that. And I think Mike Rowe, in my interview with him last week, who's not even in this space, but he really proved we need to live with an advanced uh, skepticism now and is now upon the experts to win back our trust. I don't trust them. I don't think you should. And I think we should assume that the United States of America, yes, this great country we live in, is addicted to war. It is clearly pushing wars, whether or not they make any sense. And it is constantly at the cutting edge of building war tools. We have to know that's true. And for some people, they say, good, that's the only way you're going to protect us. I understand that argument. But what I do not understand is when your government says there's no way we're going near that whatsoever. Do I look stupid? I don't think you are either. Hello there. Howdy. And welcome to all of you courageous, badass truth seekers and freedom lovers from all over the planet and beyond. We have a treat in store for you today. I am super excited about today's event and all month. We're diving into education this month. We're going to get educated about education so we can educate ourselves effectively and educate others. The theme of today is education from tyranny to liberation. 
means, motive, and opportunity. And I want to say by way of introduction that to me, education is really at the core of everything. And I, we'll find out more today what Richard Grove and I mean by education. But obviously, education is a huge thing for children. You know, the most vulnerable amongst us, the future of our planet, uh, depends so much on the education that they get access to. And when I say it's fundamental, what I mean is that when you start interacting with the mind of a child, much less turning over the mind of a child to other adults to interact with, it's the beginning of either the liberation and creativity getting nurtured, or it's the beginning of the dumbing down and indoctrination. But I want to be very clear that when we're talking about education today, we're not talking about just teaching kids to do reading, writing, and arithmetic. We're talking about the learning process for all human beings, and that's of all ages. So um, I want to start by, you know, this is a seven levels deep, and this is the first time that I have asked someone else to come in and really present the core of the presentation for the seven levels deep. Um, and I'll turn it over to Richard shortly. But first, I want to share my screen and then actually take you through quickly through the process of uh, a seven levels deep perspective on education. So here we go. Most of you are accustomed to this process. We've done it on every single sector, every single topic. Uh, this is a lens through which you can see what's really going on uh, in relation to this arc of process from Arthur Young, which really spells out the pattern of the evolution of consciousness on planet Earth, if not throughout the cosmos. I think it's universal. But anyway, so today's topic is education, tyranny to liberation. So. At level one, the level of pure potential, reality is happening. Whether we like it or not, reality is happening. Level two in civilization is usually that authority spins history. And in this particular case with education, it cancels critical thinking for its own motives. If you follow the money on this, you begin to see the bribes, the blackmail, the, the schemes of foundation funding to shelter billionaires' uh, wealth and take over health, education, and so forth. Um, and uh, when you follow the money, every time you'll, you'll come to these same characters with the same agenda. And at the bottom level, it's the GDA, the Global Domination Agenda, which in terms of education is brainwash the population for total domination. Okay, that's the bad news, that's the contraction. But then the universe, in its, it's taken its in-breath, now it's gonna expand out. And the turn happens at every level of consciousness evolution uh, throughout our universe. At the turn, consciousness begins to participate itself in this arc. So in terms of education, at the next level, we reclaim 
free thought. We reclaim our own natural curiosity. Okay, when you've done that as an individual, what it opens up for you is the possibility then of voluntarily collaborating for the gaining of skills and knowledge with other people. And that's a lot of what's going on right now out there in the world as people have gotten uh, awakened to what's really going on in uh, schooling. They're starting to take it back for themselves, for their kids, for their neighbors, for their, lo their loved ones. So that next phase is voluntary collaboration for skills and knowledge. And we will be going into that not only today, but also in our next two sessions. And what that leads to, the completion of the octave, the fulfillment of this arc of evolution is a condition of freedom to learn as you wish. Imagine that on planet Earth. That's what we're heading toward if we make it. One more thing, I, I know you all have been around me long enough to know that I like to define terms. So I looked up education and I was pleased to see that the government hasn't gone in and entirely changed this definition yet as they're doing with so many other things. So it's still, this one still has some power. Education, the act or process of imparting or acquiring general knowledge, developing the powers of reasoning and judgment, and generally of preparing oneself or others intellectually for mature life. Okay, so uh, that's my little introduction. And I wanna say that um, along the way in that arc, when we were in the authoritarian spin, some examples of that are common core, no child left behind, uh, bribing uh, teachers unions, particularly people like Bill Gates and, and George Bush and so forth have been some of the main characters uh, obviously doing this. And then also when the critical thinking is taken out of education. When people begin to be indoctrinated, what happens on the personal level? Well, sadly, I've been watching a lot of this with relatives and friends and their children. And the, the, the education now, what I'm seeing coming out is <clears throat> a sense of no absolute truth, no absolute morality, no sense of self, no sense of purpose no will, no trust, no passion, no intimacy, no love, no joy. You know, when I had Kathy O'Brien on here and she was describing the in-depth indoctrination that she went through the, in the MKUltra program, that goes all the way, but it's a, it's a warning about where they're trying to take education because she described that not only did she have none of those things that I just listed, but in her reality, she had been so indoctrinated that there was no time, there were no dreams. Fundamentally, she had concluded she was cut off from her soul. So that's why we're talking about some very serious stuff here. So um, I want to bring Richard on. Richard Grove is one of my heroes. He's a forensic historian, which I think is perfect given the subtitle of today's investigation is means, motive, and opportunity. I've asked him to help us solve the mystery of how Western education got destroyed. He's also uh, a term that I would use for myself and, and quite a few people in this particular network. 
I consider him to be a comprehensivist. Bucky Fuller said, we will not make it as a species unless there are sufficient comprehensivists. And that is people who are looking at the whole and not so specialized that they can't see what's really going on. So let me give you a short version of introduction to uh, Richard. First of all, Richard, welcome uh, just personally from me to you. Thank you so much for honoring us with your presence today. How are you doing? Thank you, Foster. Greetings, everybody. It's always good to hang out and uh, talk about Bucky Fuller and comprehensive ideas about how the world might be working. Oh, great. Well, I'll turn it over to you in a minute, but I want to uh, talk a little bit about how you got here. Uh, the short version is Richard retired from corporate America in his early 30s after a short but very successful career when he became a corporate whistleblower in 2004 and represented himself in court. Good preparation for solving this mystery. Since then, Richard has dedicated his time and efforts to collecting the best and rarest artifacts and evidence with which to illustrate this ongoing corruption of justice in order to create and develop solutions to provide individuals with cognitive liberty. I love that phrase. We'll find out more about what that means, cognitive liberty. Uh, Richard teaches intellectual self-defense, methods for critical thinking, and creative problem solving. And he describes that as he widened his perspectives, he discovered a stream of systematic control systems permeating our culture. Within that stream, he found a current of corruption adversely affecting hardworking folks in the middle and lower classes. He saw that people are being dumbed down and the thieves of freedom are plundering the production of those who are too ill-informed to protect themselves intellectually from such schemes. Richard sees freedom as being composed of three primary ingredients, non-aggression, physical self-defense, and intellectual self-defense. And he created media, he creates media really, to, to educate and inform those who seek to understand how our world really works. I personally consider Richard to be one of the greatest minds of our time, and I will be forever grateful to him for, for empowering millions of other minds at this most critical time. So I am honored to welcome and turn over the talking stick to Richard Grove. Thank you, Foster. I'm honored by the invitation and I'm inspired by so many people here to hear the story. I mean, we're talking about the evolution of consciousness. The only war that I've seen as a forensic historian that's ever been waged in human history is the war to suppress consciousness and it's waged against those who seek to express consciousness. You can go back to the time of Plato and Pythagoras all the way up to today. It's a current trend. Look at how much censorship is going on today. And is the censorship reflective of misinformation, malinformation, uh, disinformation, or is it just inconvenient to the narrative that they want everybody to believe? The aspects we're going to talk about uh, later in the talk today about schooling, it's made to make people think and react and behave in a similar manner, because in the problem of human control, humans are feisty beings to control, especially if they have freedom and liberated minds. So the establishment has been working diligently to dumb people down, to make you have like a shorter memory span than you need to take in the entire story 
to start to decrypt it and make it meaningful in life. So what I have prepared, what I've whipped up, especially for you guys today, is a brand new presentation and it's a timeline. So this timeline, I'm not supposed to give you all the details. I'm pointing out historical events and artifacts that exist for you to check out on your own afterwards. We give you the links and the source materials and everything that we have uh, together that's made this presentation. So you guys, it's more of a, this thing exists, you have access, dig into it while you can, while we still have internet connections and we can still speak semi-freely and exchange research and information about the big picture. Because uh, I too am a fan and student of Buckminster Fuller. And um, one of the things he said is don't fight forces, learn to use them. And you can't, uh, you know, you can't end this tyranny by, you know, fighting it directly. You have to make something better that makes it obsolete. So it's no longer necessary. And when you get into today's story, you're going to see how the narrative that's unfolding is not new. It's kind of ancient. It needs to be updated. It's not to be updated by they, them, those we're going to talk about. That's the great reset. We have to kind of take it upon ourselves to reinstill these aspects of education, to come up to speed with what's going on, and then everyone formulate your own agenda for the future using information that reflects that which actually exists instead of what people are being brainwashed and indoctrinated with through mainstream media and education. So uh, with that education, you started with a, a definition. My definition for education is <clears throat> learning how to ask substantial questions, find reasonable answers that reflect things that exist in reality. And if you can learn how to do that, you can follow your, your capacity for curiosity and go about anywhere in the world. And all these books and artifacts and all the things that I've been in the midst of for the past 20 years, it came as a function of a mixture of incredulity. I didn't believe these things could go on because I had an education. They would have told me about this and my curiosity. These things are going on. No one's talking about them. What are the artifacts? What's the evidence? And today we're going to dig into this timeline. I'm going to give you a brief overview of what I call the underground history of America. And we'll get to why I call it that later in the lecture. But let's uh, let's unfold. Let's get it started. All right, if I click this and I click this, we should be able to move forward. Today's discussion, because we're going to talk afterwards, I'm excited for that. Education from tyranny to liber liberation, the means, motive, and opportunity. In my translation, that's the who, the why, and the how. So we're going to cover the who and the why, and then the third part of the presentation, we'll get to the how. Moving forward. I have 93 podcast episodes on the topic we're going to talk about today, not to distract you right now, but if you want to dig in, find the history, find the source materials, find the links. I've done a lot of good work for you ahead of time, and that will be linked in the, uh, the next part here. The best podcast you've never heard, the Grand Theft World podcast is what I'm currently hosting. So Peace Revolution was my prior podcast. This is my current podcast. This is current events. This is a weekly distillation of censored news for the past week. Whereas Peace Revolution is the history that drives the news in the first place. So people need the history, Peace Revolution, you want this week's news in digest form, Grand Theft World Podcast. The story of the controlled demolition of America in three acts is what we're gonna discuss. The motive, the British conquest of America since 1776, and it really culminated in 1902 when that, that plan ceased and they had control. The means, the British partnership with the Rothschild financial dynasty, 1814 to present, and the opportunity, 
to collaborate about the end of American sovereignty from the inside out through corrupting education and introducing schooling or what I would call forced indoctrination, state-sponsored indoctrination. And by the way, because I'm not just sharing through Zoom, I'm using my broadcaster, I should be able to pop back like this and make commentary where I can't do that easily within the Zoom share your screen type thing. So as a for instance, let's go back to this for a second. This, uh, this indoctrination, I have a buddy, Tom Woods, he said, you should always start with a joke. What's the difference between the government and the mafia? The government, I'm sorry, the mafia doesn't have a 12 year indoctrination system to convince you that they're not the mafia. And with that, that's an unplanned spur of the moment, apropos to the story we're going to learn about right now, the gangsters who uh, might have gotten, uh, might have gotten themselves in front of your children over the years. The people who designed the indoctrination system have a history that goes back, back before the even founding of America. So we're going to start with the East India Company, the British East India Company, a private corporation that uh, went around the world, started in 1600 under, uh, I think, Queen Elizabeth I. It was formed to trade in the Indian region, initially in the East Indies and later with the Qing Dynasty in China. So here's a couple uh, photographs. I'm sorry, these are a couple paintings from museums, photographs that I put into the presentation for you. Uh, various cultures being introduced to the British way of life by way of the East India Company. Now here's the problem. There was a lot of slave cotton in the colonies. And these uh, cotton pieces went over to Manchester, England, they were formed in the textiles. They were brought to India. This is where you see these warehouses of opium. The textiles were traded for opium. And then the East India Company would take that opium over to China. And we're going to see a large wealth exchange in a moment between the East and West based on the India, uh, East India Company's subjugation of Asia uh, to opium monopoly. The EIC. East India Company, mastering wealth distribution through opium and slave goods. This is a key aspect of how the British Empire became the global empire that uh, the United States fought against. The East India Company in England, 1600 to 1873, 273-year dynasty. They basically took over the Mughal dynasty of opium. So I pulled a quote for you guys during the same time in India. The Mughal dynasty was extensively growing opium poppy and doing profitable trade with China and East Asia. This trade was a large source of revenue for the Mughal dynasty. As the downfall of the Mughal dynasty started in 1658, the British, through the East India Company, took over the major cultiv cultivation and production of opium. Now, more recently in history, we've been, the United States military has been in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is famous for opium and poppy production. It's not the first endeavor of America being there. The, the British fought three wars in Afghanistan over the opium poppy during the time of the East India Company. So it's kind of like America has become the property managers for the British Empire. That might tie into the story we're learning about today as well. So there's a continuity, an ominous continuity, as John Taylor Gatto would say, of this opium production the wealth that comes with it, the power that comes with it, and the people who are in control of it. Might be the same people who are in control of your education system. We'll find out later. First, I got to take you back to 1753. These are the top countries by GDP. Up at the top, you see China. 
right below that, the, the big green line, that's the Mughal Empire. This is 1753. I'm going to move one slide forward, take a look at these two top lines. Oh, you see that? 1758. That's the East India Company now. Look at that. What's going to happen from here, kids? Well, it would be long to take you through year by year. So let's jump 100 years into the future. 1758 to 1857. 100 years later, British East India Company still holding the town. You see the United States right below the, the EIC. And right below that is the United Kingdom. So it's not just the East India Company. It's the fact that the East India Company's GDP was so far larger than its home, the United Kingdom, mostly because it took over the Mughal Opium Empire. A lot of money in that. So here we are in 1857, 100 years into the East India Company's opium production. By the time you get to 1859, they say East India Company is not a good idea. Let's call this the British Raj and pretend it's in charge of India. So now the GDP is no longer East India Company. It turns into the British Raj, 1859. There you see the United Kingdom still a couple slots down below what the East India Company's wealth and uh, wealth engine, let's call it that, has produced. By 1881, just after the United States Civil War, the United States has surpassed in GDP even the British Raj front of the East India Company. And as we go forward into 1890, you see the United States surpass China with the old East India Company, British Raj, right behind it. And then it just changes over a couple of years. And this is just a, a flash forward into World War II. Look at that. How has that changed over time? And what happened to the United States? I mean, we're great. We got a lot of inventions here, hardworking people. But what, what maybe happened? We're going to learn a little bit about that because the East India Company and the British Empire is one of three characters we're going to learn about in today's story. There you see by 2018, uh, the United States had to even surpass China and Japan, but you see China catching up. Let's go back to the history. On the left is the, the flag of the East India Company, the place that deals opium. On the right, you see the Grand Union flag of the United States. That's the first flag of America. Now, at that time, there was a lot of Eastern establishment people, rich families, call them the Boston Brahmin, Brahmins, call them the Eastern establishment, very, very close to this East India Company opium trade and slave trade. So maybe the early colonists were like, hey, maybe we should still be able to, you know, take our boats over to Canton because that's what the the Astors who traded their furs over in uh, Hong Kong. I mean, started to, as an island called Canton, but then the English, uh, the Anglicization of it turns it into Hong Kong. That's the stronghold off the coast of China for the East India Company to pour opium into China for 100 years. They called it the century of humiliation. So there were still American colonists who want to fly, you know, take their ship over there and fill it up with opium and bring it back. They brought back from reading these ships manifest tons, like 20 tons of time. Uh, some of them were privateers and getting caught after the separation of the United States from the United Kingdom. But um, the similarity, I would argue, is so you can continue to trade with a partner who doesn't notice the subtle differences and they see your privateer English, like uh, your American East Coast ship coming in and it looks just like an East India company ship and they know what you're there to trade for. So there's this bond, if you will, between the, the big wealth of the East coast families and the British empire that survived the revolution. It survived the constitution. So 
early on in America's history, there was an Oxford. Oxford University is a thousand-year-old university. It's the heart of the British Empire, and the future of the British Empire is trained there. They wanted to create an Oxford for America. So it was gifted by this guy, Elihu Yale. Yale University is the Oxford for America. Elihu Yale was an official for the East India Company. And there's more ties to the opium and Yale than just uh, Elihu Yale's money coming from that. There's a, actually, that's another one of the in undercurrents. I also wanted to point out the archives at Yale. You've got the British East India Company records. It's not like they keep those things in England. They keep them at Yale, the Oxford in America. The Order of Skull and Bones, Yale University is formed in 1832. In a couple of slides, we'll get to what's the synchronicity of 1832. Why would this group show up at that Oxford in America in that year? It's pretty interesting. We'll get to it in a couple of slides. I wanted to point out that the way that Skull and Bones comes to prominence is there's this character in history called William Huntington Russell. He's the corporate founder of Skull and Bones and the Russell Trust, a tax-exempt foundation in 1856. Now, he's the descendant. The Russells are part of the Boston Brahmin families, these wealthy families. And though he wasn't personally in the opium trade, his cousin was, was doing that. That's where the money came from. So the acquisition of these, uh, the Perkins family was another opium producer. The, the, the history of American opium uh, families is fascinating because you might have seen some of their relatives become presidents. So to understand the the power and the currency traded at that level in such amounts uh, is really telling where these robber barons come from a little bit later in the 1800s. So that's the gist. That's uh, Skull and Bones, Russell Trust Association, um, at Yale University, the Oxford in America, has opium money underpinning not only the building of the university and Lahu Yale's role in it, it's also uh, secret societies that may have yielded many uh, US statesmen and presidents from there. At this point, we wanna break away from the East India Company and the opium, and we wanna learn about this family called the Rothschild uh, International Family Banking Dynasty. Uh, it's a big family, there are many countries. Let's learn a little bit, not rumor, not innuendo. Let's learn some facts. Let's look at some artifacts. Let's learn the underground history of America. Now, part of today's conversation is means motive and opportunity. British Empire has motive, but they didn't have the means. The means doesn't come together purposefully. It's two groups following individual agendas who decide to basically swap problems later in the 1800s. It's a very interesting situation. We're going to get into it. The means, the Rothschild family dynasty, the sources I am using for this presentation come exclusively from the RothschildArchive.org, the family archive. And then I've also given you a guide to the archive so you can learn how to navigate it yourself. Pretty interesting, right? We're going to start with this character uh, in the fancy dress. His name's George III. He's king of England at the time of the American colonists' revolution. He has a problem. First, he doesn't have enough troops. Doesn't have enough troops. The troops are spread out. They got a big empire they're maintaining. They got East India Company. They got a whole bunch of stuff going on. America is an inconvenient problem, an unplanned problem, you might say. So what's he going to do? Well, he gets the, the benefit of bringing over soldiers who don't speak English. They're going to speak German. They're going to be real rough. They're going to be professional mercenaries. They're going to speak German. They're going to intimidate the English settlers, uh, who the nascent Americans, and get them back in line. He calls his cousin, this guy, Wilhelm the Ninth 
the Landgrave of Hesse Castle. He was later Elector Wilhelm I. So this is coming from the Royal Collection Trust. This is the British Royal Family's collection of artifacts. They, thoughtfully enough, have a photograph, I'm sorry, a painting, a photograph of a painting for this presentation. So you can see Wilhelm IX. Here he is again. Now you might find it interesting. His mother was Princess Mary. He's George III's cousin. So even though he's a you know Prussian elector of Hesse, we don't really understand what that means. What is a land grave? You know, these sort of things. You just need to know he's George III's cousin and he's sending Prussian soldiers. And if George III hadn't sent Hessian Prussian soldiers over to America, the following history of this family would be much different because the Rothschilds like claim to fame was that they were the banker for William the ninth, King George III's cousin. So he's sending all this gold over uh, to uh, William of Hesse. He's got all this English gold. And in a few minutes, we're going to see uh, what happens. You got George Washington. Uh, you know, this is the American Revolution kicking off. He needs his Hessian soldiers. Here's the Rothschild archive that we're going to dig into and get the rest of the information for today's presentation. Specifically, I'm pointing you toward this public facing page because they've got a great timeline. The, his the history of the family in their own words, in the timeline. What a great place to dig into some artifacts and evidence. So the timeline starts way back in 1450. We don't need to go back that far. What we're looking at is the Hesse Castle, the, the Wilhelm IX, the cousin of George III, his connection. His business expanded rapidly following the French Revolution when Rothschild handled payments from Britain to hire the Hessian mercenaries. So this is from the Rothschilds family history page in their archive. That's where the money came from. Okay, great. Let's move forward. There's the Hessian soldiers. They get sent over to America. They still lose. But uh, over in Europe, meanwhile, you've got the Napoleonic Wars. Now that same Wilhelm IX that has all that gold from King George III for those Hessian soldiers, he's, he's scared when Napoleon comes and he's the scourge of Europe and he's in Prussia and he's going to, uh, you know, alleviate uh, the v Wilhelm of his gold. So Wilhelm says, I would like to uh, be your first client, Rothschild. Until then, he was a court money exchanger, a court factor. He says, I want you to move some money. I want you to hide some money for me. So under Rothschild clients on the Rothschild ar archive, they expressly tell the whole story of how uh, Wilhelm IX puts his money in the, his inheritance from his dad, who had also made money with the British, all into Meyer Amschel Rothschild's hands, who sends it to his son and Nathan in London, and Nathan invested over like the next 10 years. So that is the official start of the Rothschild family fortune, right? Uh, Nathan invested 5,000, uh, 500,000 pounds of the elector's funds to, in British government securities and bullion in 1806. Now this bullion investment, they start dealing in bullion a few years later, you can see there in the timeline. Um, my question was as a researcher, on what date and time did the Rothschilds give the money back to Wilhelm IX after Napoleon split? Right. And that war goes on to like 1814, I thought it went on. But according to this painting, it must have ended in 1812 because that's when Amschel Meyer de Rothschild had passed away. 
This also comes from the Royal Collection Trust. This is from the British Royal Family's personal artifacts. This is the vi visit of Wilhelm I. That's uh, William Wilhelm IX before he's the elector. When he was Landgrave, he was Wilhelm IX. When he's the elector, he's Vil William I. They changed his name. Elector of Hesse to Amschel, Mayor de Rothschild, who lived from 1744 to 1812. Well, around that time of 1812, I have found no record in the Rothschild archives, in the family archives, anywhere of when and how that happened. The only evidence that they ever paid Wilhelm I back are these two paintings by the same author. So in this first painting, the chest of gold is on the ground and there's also, uh, looks like a soldier with a chest of gold. In the next one, um, Wilhelm I is seated and somebody in the right-hand corner is walking away with a box of coins, right? So these are two different paintings of the same scene. Remember, there's no other paper history of this, but in the Royal Collection Trust, they have these two paintings. Who did these paintings belong to? Uh, they're given by Leopold de Rothschild to Queen Mary in 1910. So this is like, hey, we're good for that. We didn't keep that guy's money. We have returned it and uh, we paid him interest. And there's a whole story to it. And you can see it in the description. You guys are also going to have a copy of these slides. It's in the Freedom Vault. So you can actually read into all these various things, click into them. I want you to know they're there and I want you to get the general timeline. By 1814, the Battle of New Orleans, this is after uh, British invade, 1812, they burned down the White House. By 1814, Andrew Jackson is the guy at the Battle of New Orleans who pushes the British off. And militarily, it's the last time Britain tries to conquer America. They decide to come up with another strategy for the same goal. So after 1814, things get real quiet here in the United States with the British because they go around the world. They mess with China and India for most of the 1800s. We're going to get into how that all, all unfolds. By 1814, the Rothschild supplied gold to Wellington. This is so he can defeat Napoleon. And there's this whole controversy of stock trading and British government getting the news and who got the news first. They say it happened uh, with strong family ties and an unsurpassed communications network. That's how they, they were able to pull off not only funding, you know, moving gold to Wellington in the Pyrenees in Spain, but also to get news of Napoleon's defeat, which no one else believed because they didn't know the Rothschilds had a courier pigeon network, which would have made it a lot more believable. Here's the next part. Rothschilds in Pigeon Post. Here it talks about the, the family's proclivity for using courier pigeons, carrier pigeons, as some might call them. Now, that's interesting because with this network of carrier pigeons, they become like um, the FedEx of their day. So much so that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert use the Rothschild courier network exclusively and that once, they, uh, once the telegraph comes along, the Reuters group that was using courier pigeons and leveraging Rothschild then start using Telegraph and Rothschilds start using Telegraph. I just want you to know you can go to the Rothschild archive, learn about the, the pigeon post that might have provided information quicker than by horse or swimming across the English Channel. 1818, you got the first major business loan of the Rothschilds. They loan it to the crushed Prussian government. So Napoleon came through, crushed it. They're there like a couple of years afterwards. They're like, here's a 5% loan. They made gangbusters money on this. So this helps to propel the momentum of the Rothschilds family 
who at that time were singularly focused on pretty much the British Empire. They're, they're in five countries at that point. The five sons have moved out, set up banks in the five countries. But a lot of the activities are used to support the rise of the family within Great Britain. You'll see them take over the Bank of England in a minute, the Royal Mint, get peerage, and then be at basically the, the same level as the royals at, in, in the Britain. It, it, as far as uh, France, they had also climbed the ladder quite a bit. They shut down in Germany. They shut down in Italy. So they kind of you know spread out and then focus on a couple strategic goals. And as we get into uh, the mid 1800s, mid 1820s rather, I was looking to see if there were Rothschild financials because there's a lot of East India Company opium going on right now. And there's privatized Scottish uh, joints that are doing it like Jardine Matheson and uh, Jardine Fleming is uh, later. Uh, so there's companies today like Jardine Fleming that are the reminiscent pieces, the remnants of these uh, opium magnates of the 1800s, like Jardine Matheson. So East India Company is like, you know, backed up by privatized people that are helping them, plus all these banks that are helping them move the wealth around. And um, the Rothschilds didn't have anything to do with it that early in the 1820s, but they did start an insurance company that started to insure all these activities. So before financing it, and we'll see that exploration in the China in a couple of minutes, they started to uh, go through and insure the, the ships, you know, ships sink, these sort of things. So there was a, a betting, you know, that's what insurance kind of is. So by 1824, they set up the Alliance Assurance Company, which today is the RSA group of insurance companies that still exists. By 1825, they saved the Bank of England. Getting closer and closer. I mean, if the, if the Bank of England can't survive without the Rothschilds, that's a pretty good sign. Influence, control, and a change in power. Not so much that they're competing, but like I said, they're going to be symbiotic and work to each other's needs here in a couple decades. Around this same time, there's an opium magnate. It's the Sassoon family, the Rothschilds of the East, according to this article on screen. This is uh, formalized as David Sassoon and Company. This is a couple decades before the Sassoons marry into the Rothschild family. So I think it's David's grandson, uh, Edward Albert Sassoon, who marries into the Rothschilds. We'll see in a couple of slides. But the point is, there's uh, he's known as the opium king of Baghdad. <laughs> he was the treasurer for the governor, Turkish governor of Baghdad. He's in control of the opium monopoly. It says... <laughs> David Sassoon and company with branches in Calcutta, Shanghai, Canton, and Hong Kong, and his business, which included a monopoly of the opium trade, extended as far as Yokohama, Nagasaki, and other uh, cities in, in Japan. So now there's East India Company opium that is, uh, is being brought in through David Sassoon and his organization. Oddly enough, in that same year, 1832, you've got this secret society at Yale that you know east india company opium monopoly insertion into america this oxford of america you've got this skull and bones group and they were funded by people in the opium monopoly so by the time we get down to like 1838 that's the earliest rothschild trade with china right before the british opium war so they set up in ceylon they start growing these fine teas there's a whole bunch of interesting things that go on but this is just building up to 
what's going on with the British Empire and their financiers while they're not playing with America during these odd years during the 1800s, because it's going to come back together with a solid plan by the end of this century. By 1849, you've got gold in California. And so you have an establishment of a Rothschild agency in San Francisco. Most people don't know about this. The discovery of gold in California in 1848 had awakened Rothschild interest and in, in, in 1849, N.M. Rothschild established an agency in San Francisco uh, in the persons of two Rothschild agents, Benjamin Davidson and John May. I wonder what they created. What did they? There must be a bank that they created. It doesn't say here. The connection persisted until the impact of gold rush, had, the gold rush had diminished. So part of what the gold rush is, is the collection of gold. But in the slide, you're going to see how, um, well, I'll just go to the Royal Mint, 1852. I'll jump ahead a couple of years. I'll go back. The establishment of the Royal Mint refinery. So they're collecting the gold and then they're processing and minting the gold. And in order to do that, they had to take over a mercury mine in a couple of different places for the refinement. It's an interesting process, but I just wanted to show continuity. They don't just save the bank. They, they find the gold, then they mint the gold. And he who controls the gold makes the rules, I was once told. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not the real golden rule. Um, 1850, London Bank uses the new communication services of Reuters. So heretofore, uh, Reuters carrier pigeons turned into a telegraph system. I wonder where they got that. In 1850, Reuters approached the Rothschilds, uh, uh, seeking them as a client for his new services. So while this was a private thing they did for their clients, the Reuters offering is do this for general business, to have a, a front out there that does this. This is interesting today because I think it's the guy from the chairman of Reuters is on the board of directors of Pfizer. So these companies didn't wane in power over the years. They've gained in power over the years. They've continued to live and evolve and survive world wars. It's, it's very interesting to see the evolution. By 1852, they're openly advisors to royalty, including handling, like I said, their private mail, doing a courier system, perfectly safe and very quick. The queen described their services. You know, she, that's her testimonial. So by this time, 1852, America is not in the Civil War yet. The Rothschilds are very, I mean, very close to the British royalty at this point. Uh, the Royal Mint Refinery, I just mentioned that. There's also this curious book. It's not in the Rothschild archive, but it is in the timeline. It's called The Revival of Israel, The Last Nationalist Question by Moses Hess. He was a French socialist. He's not part of the British Empire, but he had this plan and it gained, uh, gained a lot of steam. Part of that plan was uh, a plan for detailing the creation of Israel and listing Freemasonry, the Rothschilds, and others. I know it sounds really far out. He wrote it in 1862. I have a copy of the book. It's kind of far out. It's kind of a wacky plan. But, and, and that plan, I don't think, was carried out, but it inspired Theodor Herzl and Kaim Weizmann and other people in, in Cecil Rhodes, other people who were around these political ideas. By the way, within 10 years of him writing this book, the Rothschilds began colonization of Palestine. Uh, here around 1860 from the Royal Collection Trust is James Mayer de Rothschild, is Baron de Rothschild. Uh, he sent a photograph because these guys were all early, but they had a photography club. Uh, Lionel Rothschild was into autochromes, which is a, a way of taking a piece of a picture on a piece of glass. And then there's a mirror and it gives you like this almost holographic iPad type feel to it. A lot of interesting 
things I don't have time to talk about because we're getting to in America, <clears throat> we had the, uh, the civil disruption, political assassination. This has nothing to do with the people in power that I was just talking about as far as the people who might not want America to be successful and thrive. Anyway, the, the play was called uh, My American Cousin. Continuing on, Rothschilds in Palestine, that's where we're at. Baron Edmund de Rothschild in Palestine, uh, they start colonizing in like the 1870s. So right after the American Civil War, this is going on overseas. One of the groups that they used as a front group to, for colonization in Palestine in the late 1800s was called Erlanger and Company, which is like a, a Paris banking house or a German banking house, I forget which. Uh, and it sticks in my memory because there was an accusation during the Civil War that the Rothschilds were funding the Confederacy because of the dependence on slave cotton and all these sort of things in that system that the British had. And it was, it was stricken down and uh, the Rothschild comment was, that wasn't us. It was a Christian banking house down the street. It was Erlanger. And he wrote it off like they have nothing to do with that firm. When you look at the full history, the comprehensive history, you'd see Erlanger all over the place as a front group for colonization and works that the Rothschilds didn't want their name on directly. So there's that as well. So this part of the archive describes uh, the proto-colonization of Palestine to create the future state of Israel. Uh, right around this time, 1875, Lionel de Rothschild helps the British government buy the Suez Canal. So another piece of empire building that the British government's like, hey, we'd like to do this, but we can't. Can you help us out? He's like, sure. So they control the Suez Canal, which is pretty much control of trade to Asia and the Middle East. And it's a very key uh, element on the geopolitical uh, map that they are drawing at that time. By the way, Disraeli's the prime minister that uh, Lionel de Rothschild helped to buy the Suez Canal. Disraeli's famous for saying, the world is governed by very different personages from what is imagined by those who are not behind the scenes. He's good buddies with all the people doing it. So he, he's Johnny on the spot. He's one to know. Interesting quote. Here's another person uh, that Americans know. This is Andrew Carnegie. What they don't know is that in 1886, he wrote a book called Triumphant Democracy, or The 50 Years March of the Republic. Now, this is a book, this is like one of the first flares that goes up, that it's like Anglo-Americanism revived. It had kind of, uh, you know, waned in the middle of uh, the 1800s. By 1886, he's setting up a flare. He says, hey, America and Britain should be rejoined. Uh, how does he say it? Well, he says it in a very Andrew Carnegie way. He says it let men say what they will i say that as surely as the sun is in the heavens once shone upon britain and america united so surely is it one morning to rise to shine upon to greet again the reunited states the british american union wow that's interesting they don't tell you that when he's setting up libraries throughout America. They don't tell you that when he's got an international endowment for world peace. There's an agenda behind it, and it's not about philanthropy, kids. Same year, 1886, the Jekyll Island Club. It's an Anglo-American robber baron hangout, the most elite establishment uh, club in the world of, it, of its type. It's one of the uh, first transatlantic phone call. I think it, it was in on the first transatlantic phone call about that. 
so there is now a place in America, and it's still there today. Uh, G. Edward Griffin had his Red Pill Conference there, I think, last year. Uh, Jackal Island, and it's uh, the, the then-time playground of the most elite and wealthy movers and shakers in the world. And it was an Anglo-American establishment. It wasn't just some Americans with some ideas. It wasn't just some British people. They had continued to cohe like have cohesion despite it being 110 years past the American Revolution. This is continuity of a goal unfolding. So around 1886 in the Rothschild timeline on their archive, you see the Rothschild Frere, the French Rothschild brothers, they develop interests in Russian oil. So let me break this down for you. There is this uh, family, I think it was three brothers called the Nobel family. And they were the early uh, Rockefellers of their day in oil. They invented the oil tanker, the oil car. What most people don't know is that the Nobel, you know, enterprise, which, you know, created TNT and then also the Nobel Peace Prize, they were financed by the Rothschilds. So the Rothschilds started in banking, got into oil. The Rockefellers in America started in oil, got into banking. As you're going to see right around this time, those two families say, hey, we got similar things going on. How about world domination? It's going to unfold here in just a second. By 18, oh, also at this point in 1886, 1887, that's when Sir Edward Albert Sassoon of the Opium Dynasty formally marries into the Rothschild family. So now you've got interesting family connections that also tie into the East India Company connections. Now let's look at colonization of South Africa here in 1887. The Rothschilds financed the establishment of De Beers diamond mines. And by that, they have a protege in South Africa called Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes, under the leadership of Rothschild and financial backing of Rothschild, kind of amalgamates all these little mining operations down there to create De Beers consolidated mines, which until a couple of years ago was a cartel that could not trade in America. They're the same people that convince people that a diamond is forever, that a clear worthless stone at that time could be you know, equated to love, which is kind of ironic. Uh, they came up with the branding campaigns in the mid 1900s, like 1930, 1940. They got the British royal family instead of wearing jewels of like rubies and emeralds and sapphires. They're like wear diamonds and they put them in Hollywood movies and sophisticated campaigns to market a product that they used a lot of slave labor for down there. They fought the Boer War, which was Lord Milner's first war. We're going to learn about Lord Milner's second war in a couple of minutes. But this is just the setting up of the De Beers empire uh, orchestrated by Cecil Rhodes, financed by the Rothschild family in 1887. Now, there's Rhodes drawn as the Colossus who could straddle Africa and he was planning a Cape to Cairo railway that would be like the crown jewel in the British Empire. So he was an empire builder. He was educated at Oxford under the philosophy of John Ruskin. He wanted uh, to see an English speaking world and very much the same thing that Andrew Carnegie just elaborated upon. Um, he was a Freemason and he kind of brought together a plan that took a lot of agendas and put them together. And people said, that's good enough for us. And they have since his death, moved forward with that plan, aimed at an America, been highly successful, and are very instrumental in between uh, in creating the institutions we see today. So even though Rhodes never did the Cape to Cairo Railway, 
it was his secret society, his scholarships, his legacy that drove most of 20th, 20th century uh, political agendas as far as the West is concerned. Now, there's this quote from a book we're going to, uh, I'll show it to you in a couple minutes, but uh, when Oxford men say, adapting Kipling, Oxford makes us we. What they mean is that we owe to Oxford friendships and intellectual understanding that sprang up in their minds and spirits uh, because they met in a congenial society. So they're creating cultural imperialism. The Oxford in America, Yale, is supposed to groom uh, future empire builders, just like they do in, in the home country, in the motherland, in the mothership of the thousand year university, Oxford. Kipling, by the way, he's Rhodes's best buddy. They're both Freemasons and builders of empire. A lot of interesting things you could learn from Kipling that we don't have time. Oh, look, we do have time. Kipling wrote this poem, 1898, called The White Man's Burden. Take up the white man's burden, send forth uh, best ye breed, Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captive's need. He's encouraging in this poem, uh, Uncle Sam in America to get on board with his empire building, to leave the Monroe Doctrine behind and get into uh, international excursions uh, for the purposes of spreading freedom and liberty all over the world. The British Empire figured out it couldn't take over the world with its current brand, and they rebranded as, hey, let's spread liberty and democracy around the world. In the United States, you should do it with us. You see, but 100 years earlier, they couldn't fight us militarily. They came up with a philosophy that was palatable and trickled down to the American people, not knowing the whole story. They buy into it. Kipling's poem uh, is there to inspire U.S. imperialism. Kipling's, uh, you know, like I said, uh, very close with Rhodes and Kipling's early in the line of children's book writers, along with, uh, you know, the, among British spies, Ian Fleming, Roald Dahl were later spies that infiltrated America during World War II. Kipling was one of the earlier ones. By 1900, this is two years before Rhodes dies, the Rothschilds establish the Rhodes Scholarships. It reads, the Rothschilds first became associated with Rhodes in 1887 during his struggle with Barney Barnato for control of the diamond industry in South Africa. Cecil Rhodes died in 19, actually, no, he died in 1902. So there's a typo here. Nathaniel, first Lord Rothschild, was one of uh, Rhodes' executors and was primarily responsible for using the fortune Rhodes left to establish the Rhodes scholarships in his memory. So whether or not this is 1900 and 1902, Rhodes definitely died in 1902. This could be uh, a typo because there is a missing C in Cecil there. <laughs> Opportunity, the merger of motive and means to global power. This puts America in the crosshairs of the Anglo-American establishment. The Anglo-American establishment would be the Eastern establishment families whose money came from the opium, the British Empire, and their joint financiers who bail them out and uh, proliferate the financing for empire building for the purposes of world domination, or at least, as you'll see, to get World War One. Uh, to get America into World War I. 1902, the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes with elucidatory notes to which are added some chapters describing the political and religious ideas of the testator. That's Rhodes. Uh, this is edited by Rhodes's good buddy, William T. Stead. William T. Stead is the person who helped Rhodes come up with the idea of creating a secret society to bring America back into the empire. They talk about it in this book, 
We're not going to have time to read all the quotes. I want you to know, here's the pages from that book. You can read them when you have time. Um, this is talking about uh, the creation of a secret society based on the Jesuits, but instead of the Catholics, they would replace British Empire. So they have a structure. And then on page 73, what an awful thought it is that if we had not lost America or even now we could arrange with the present members, the United States Assembly and our House of Commons, the peace of the world is secured for all eternity. See how they want to use world peace and like, the, you know, by dominating the world and preventing anyone from rebelling, that's their brand of world peace. In order to do that, they need America. <clears throat> America hasn't wanted to play with them for like 100 years. They're trying to figure out how to get us back into the empire. So there's various quotes throughout the last will and testament. Um, British Empire being the goal, America being the target. 1902, same year, Rhodes died. This is the Evening Post. There's an article published talking very similarly. Mr. Cecil Rhodes advocated an imperial customs union. Lord Rothschild said, a customs union is possible for the English-speaking race. It is not possible for the British Empire. Whereas... If the empire and the republic were to form one customs union, the free trade area within the union would be sufficiently, sufficiently large enough to compensate for the economic loss occasioned by the imposition of duties upon territories which lay outside the union. Right. So they're mixing the ideas. They're putting them in front of people through the newspaper. Here's some more. Rhodes left money for the scholarships, which the Rothschilds administrated through Oxford. Then you see Rhodes scholars in the media that's controlled by that network. So this is just an example. This is 1951 Chicago Tribune left-hand column. Rhodes's ideas find fertile ground in the United Nations. Scholars advance British schemes. Also take note of the cartoon of the time in the middle. If we go to another example, same left column, scholars help British cash in on U.S. billions. Rhodes men hold key dull jobs. So during the time of McCarthyism, the Rhodes scholars, it, the British presence, the British infiltration of our society wasn't being questioned. It was being uh, clapped for. So right around the same time, you know, not as the newspaper articles, but at the same time as the Rhodes scholarships are kicking off, there are these lectures given at Columbia University in 1926 by someone who was on Cecil Rhodes's roundtable the secret society that was there to control the English speaking idea and bring America back into the empire. These lectures are published. You can read them. This is a couple of screen captures about bringing Oxford in and what role the Rhodes scholarships from Oxford play in anglicizing Americans, ameliorating them to the British Commonwealth's new ideas of world domination. And then you see, you know, currently council on foreign relations, Richard Haas, the guy who runs it, he's a Rhodes Scholar. And there's Hillary Clinton. She's married to a Rhodes Scholar, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's mentor, his teacher, was a guy named Carol Quigley from Georgetown University, professor of foreign service at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. And uh, we'll hear about his book upcoming in this presentation. This is one of my first memes. Uh, this is Cecil Rose here. I made my fortune on the back of slaves in South Africa and created apartheid. 1902, I left my fortune to create the Rhodes Scholarships and a secret society to undermine America and bring it back into the British Empire. 114 years later, my goals remain unopposed because Americans don't read and my acolytes own their mass media outlets. My name is Cecil Rhodes. He's a gangster. 
around that time of 1902 and his death, there's an Anglo-American formalized society that comes about. It's called the Pilgrim Society. See the American Eagle riding on the back with the British Empire there. What's the white horse? Are we supposed to behold that? or I don't know. But there's symbolism there. At the bottom, there's some Latin. It reads here, there, and everywhere. Huh. I wonder if they, what they're all about. Here's some of the characters. This is King Edward and his empire builders. But if you break down this picture, you see some very interesting things. For instance, if we zoom into the back of this picture, we see King Edward and his empire builders. The guy behind King Edward is General Lord Roberts. He's the first president of that Pilgrim Society, founded July 11th, 1902. And if we zoom back out, the, the teal color on the left, these are Pilgrim Society people. And on the right, you've got people that are inside of MI6, the intelligence, the intelligentsia, if you will. In the midst of that is Archibald uh, Lord Roseberry, who's Lord Rothschild's son-in-law. So when you break down who these people are, it's a small coterie of Fabian socialists. These are also the same kind of people that would later fund Hitler, the Fabian socialist English Ingsoc uh, element of, of British society, this elite part that wants world domination. They're very interesting characters. That's just the Pilgrim Society. Just wanted to point that out. We got to get to this Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Remember that guy from 1886 wrote that book, Triumphant Democracy? Look what his foundation's doing by 1908. This comes from a uh, testimony of Norman Dodd, who was the director, research director for the Rees Committee in the 1950s. We'll get to that. But this is what they were saying in 1908. The Carnegie trustees for the endowment for international peace, they ask. Is there any means known more effective than war, assuming that you wish to alter the life of an entire people? In 1909, the answer is, there is no more effective means than war that exists to humanity. So they say, how do we involve the United States in a war? Well, we must control the State Department. So they start out, set about working on that. That totally happens around that time. British insertions, Anglo-Americans take over the State Department. And from then on, all these other things you see, OSS, CIA, we'll get to it. They're British creations through this means of the world foundations inserting into our society. And then they ask, uh, you know, how do we do that? How do we get the uh, United States in a war? We got to take over their State Department. Okay. Um, we must take over the, and control their diplomatic machinery of the country. And then they resolve the plan to that end. And then they send this telegram to Wilson saying, be sure the war isn't over too quickly. And then in 1919, to prevent a reversion of pre-1914 mentality, pre-war mentality, we must control the education of the United States. Okay. Well, maybe these guys didn't control the education. Maybe they just figured out something better to do. But in 1919, this was their plan. Now, ironically, at the same time, you've got this roundtable movement, this group from Cecil Rhodes, Last Will and Testament, that is in the power driving seats of the British Empire. So it's the British Imperial Federation, instead of an empire, they're going to call it Imperial Federation, later a Commonwealth. And that's coupled with the Rothschild dynasty, dynasty financing of those operations. Together, they can get America. And implementing the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes to get America back into the empire, really, without firing a shot or us even knowing it. It's a brilliant plan. One of the first steps is to get us on a central bank and get us away from any type of Congress having say over coining of money. This can be read in uh, the 
Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins or The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin or this book, Anthony C. Sutton's The Federal Reserve Conspiracy. I have Sutton in here because I have several other of his books in this presentation. So why not use his book to represent The Federal Reserve Conspiracy, which started on that Jekyll Island place that we talked about a couple minutes ago. At this same time, the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations are changing, edu uh, changing education into schooling. So taking away this part where we ask questions and find answers and getting into how do we control the minds and indoctrinate interchangeable parts that won't ask too many questions and be good little automatons. The famous piece is the Flexner report. Abraham Flexner did this report for the Rockefeller Foundation. They bring in the scientific management principles and then they change our history to reflect an Anglo-Americanization of our history in like the 1920s. While that's going on, so notice there's many layers going on at once, right at the same time. You've got, according to uh, the Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Gatto, you got in his chapter nine, at the same time that we're talking about, this cult of scientific management, bringing in the, the you know, uh, measured and scientific application of labor juxtaposed to human beings of Frederick Winslow Taylor, coupling that with the English Fabian socialist, kill them with kindness, it, let's do what's good for them, pragmatic idea. And they formed what, what is called by H.G. Wells, the open conspiracy. Now, as Gatto is explaining it, part of that is bringing in Prussian schooling into America, changing it from, oh, you have an interest or you have a question, let's find out the answer to, Here's what you're supposed to know so you guys can all think, react, uh, and behave nearly identically. They're regulating people's lives like machinery. This is like early applications of cybernetics. Uh, the Rockefeller Report of 1916 is kind of what codifies this and, and kicks it off. And then we're gonna see decades of this unfold. Uh, but these are, uh, the, the last part of that chapter was the obstacles on the road to centralization. Their goal is central control and a track trace database of every living and non-living asset in this whole place. So it's like the entire slave enslavement of the entire society. So that's what he's pointing out just in chapter nine of that one book. But that's what's going on around this time. Now, there's facts to back it up. And Gatto provides quotes like this. New York Mayor Hyland was quoted vividly in the New York Times of March 27th, 1922. The real menace to our republic is this invisible government, which, like a giant octopus, sprawls its slimy length over the cities, state, and nation. It has seized in its tentacles our executive officers, our legislative bodies, our schools, our courts, our newspapers, and every agency created for the public protection. To depart from mere generalizations, let me say that at the head of this octopus are the Rockefeller Standard Oil Interests. I think that's an understatement. He's aiming a little too low, but he's on point. Here's another quote from Gatto's chapter nine, scientific uh, cult of scientific management. In the congressional record of January 26, 1917, for instance, Senator Chamberlain of Oregon entered these words. They are moving with military precision all along the line to get control of the education of the children of the land. All right, well, maybe those are just two quotes and they didn't add up to much. Oh, wait, there's more. Senator Poindexter of Washington followed saying, the cult of Rockefeller, the cult of Carnegie, as much to be guarded against in the education system of this country as a particular religious sect. And in the same issue, Senator Kenyon of Iowa related, there are certain colleges 
that have sought endowments. And the agent of the Rockefeller Foundation or the General Education Board, which Rockefeller created, had gone out and examined the curriculum of these colleges and compelled certain changes forced for certain changes. That's interesting. It seems to me one of the most dangerous things that can go on in a republic is to have an institution of this power apparently try to shape and mold the thought of the young people of this country. Senator Works of California added, these people are attempting to get control of the whole educational work of the country. Paris 1919 is where World War I ends. And World War One kicks off for us in 1917. Uh, for the rest of the world, I think it was 1914. It's called Lord Milner's Second War for a good reason. Lord Milner practiced. He's part of the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable. They have a plan for world domination. They practiced their games down in South Africa on the Boers and creating concentration camps. That was Lord Kitchener. Uh, and by the time they get to the Second War, that's World War One. We don't have time to go into the details, but the best documentary I know is the World War One Conspiracy by James Corbett. I do have a small role to play in that, presenting some evidence and artifacts. And uh, the story that's told in there fits perfectly on both sides of what I'm presenting today. So we'll just move past that. Walter Rothschild in the Balfour Declaration, the origin of the First World War. Now I'm going to read this section. It's on the Rothschild archive. So you guys can go read this for yourself in greater detail, but let's put it like this. Beginning in 1916, the British hoped that in exchange for their support of Zionism, quote, the Jews, end quote, would help to finance the growing expenses of the First World War, which was becoming increasingly burden, burdensome. Sorry, I'm reaching to see the monitor to read this small quote. Uh, more importantly, Policymakers in the Foreign Office believed that the Jews would be uh, prevailed upon to persuade the United States to join the war. At this time, there were very strong pro-Zionist feelings by many of the political elite and establishment. Many of Britain's leaders, including Prime Minister David Lloyd George and Balfour himself, felt for the Jews and their history. These men were deeply religious Christian Zionists. See, this is what they have in common. We'll talk about this in a second. They had grown up on the Bible. The Holy Land was their spiritual home. They believed that modern Zionism would fulfill a divine promise and resettle the Jews in the land of their, father, their ancient fathers. So this is the British-Israel World Federation angle. The British royal family draws their power from the Old Testament. Their financiers draw their power from the Old Testament. The, the right and initiation of divine right of kings, all these sort of things came together and the Christian Zionists who were around at that time saw fit to move forward and they have an exchange. Now there's an exchange that goes on and what we know popularly in, in history is the receipt. We just don't understand what it's a receipt for. In their own words, on this Rothschild archive site, the British wanted America to get into the war. Oh, look, if I had just clicked one more, I had done myself the favor and put it big on screen. Now, April 1917, the United States declares war on Germany and enters World War I. So it's April 6th, I believe, 1917. Later that year, the Balfour Declaration is made. Now, there's five drafts of this. I'm going to show you all five drafts. And essentially being issued on November 2nd, 1917, this is the final draft. That's a receipt for a transaction of America entering the war on the side of Great Britain, according to what we just learned 
right here, the origins of the First World War. So moving forward, let's look at this Balfour Declaration and in great detail. Now, recently, it was the 100th anniversary of it. There's a Balfour 100 website that's still up. This is the official website. And you can see here that the Balfour Declaration, oddly enough, because it ends as a statement from the British government giving the Zionists Palestine, but it begins with Lord Rothschild writing, here's what I want. And he sends it off. And Arthur Balfour makes a second draft here, 2nd August, 1917. And then Lord Milner, part of the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable, he makes draft four in August, 2017. There's also the Milner Amory. Leo Amory was another Cecil Rhodes Roundtable participant. So the people drafting these and, and making the upgrades for Lord Rothschild are all known. They're all in part of the, the Cecil Rhodes uh, Roundtable movement. Here's the final draft we get. Right here. Here's the final wording. Dear Lord, dear, dear Lord Rothschild, I have such pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of his majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist uh, uh, aspirations, which have been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. Of course, my unmute doesn't work there. Uh, incredible presentation by Richard, really a summation of so much of his work as a forensic historian, helping to uh, edify the public on the machinations, the the ideology, the political statecraft that was um, manifested itself in the 18th, especially in the late 19th century. We had to actually start even in the 18th or, or very late 18th century, we'll say, into the 19th century. And sort of the machinations, the uh, the political foundations for the modern globalist imperialistic agenda, also as well, some of the ideologies, some of the philosophies that were adopted in order to perpetuate and manifest that type of destiny. So uh, I want to just thank everyone that stuck with us tonight. I know the technical difficulties were uh disappointing and difficult but nonetheless we found a way to work through them uh rich is on the road and obviously we're trying to find a way to work through them uh, rich went to bed for the evening uh he had to break down his setup he had a bunch of work he had to do and they just got to their vacation destination so i want to go ahead and move to concluding this uh tonight's episode and ld who do we have to thank for this evening all right um Huge thanks to the Grand Theft World community supporters and uh, big thanks to tonight's Rockfin tippers. We had Nick the Sound Guy, $5, said good evening, everyone. Phoenix Aurora, $20, trying to start a donation train. Dave and Laura tipped $20, and Phoenix again threw in $5, said thanks, Rich and Tony cody and ld and everybody else involved in the production of the best damn time capsule on the internet don't forget to join autonomy and change your life maybe i'll see you in the sales class i teach in the university question authority and refuse obedience peace thank you phoenix and, thank you uh, phoenix thank you for both of those that's awesome he's an awesome dude we one of the original Jen guys who showed up to the when i first started the town hall oh yeah uh, Jen Jones threw in $5. Thank you once again for the erudite entertainment gentlemen. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you all so much. It's what keeps us going. Again, I apologize for any difficulties with the production tonight, but we'll make sure to fix those for next week. And just an update for anyone who actually made it through the entirety of this episode. This upcoming Tuesday will be the town hall. What is that? The Tuesday, the 25th. So uh, join us from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock East time town hall in order to do so become a grand theft world subscriber go to grandtheftworld.com the top right hand corner click join community and you can choose your donation tier from there and yeah this would be a lot of fun the last town hall was phenomenal i know some people have also reached out to me looking to get some of the replays for that so i'll make sure to uh, uh work on that as well and we'll make sure to get all those replays available i know there's been a lag with some of the older ones so we'll make sure to get those available uh, but yeah, I want to thank everyone tonight who stuck with us through the difficulties. It was still an incredible episode. Uh, we were able to get uh, the most important clips on, uh, preserved in the time capsule. That is the GTW time capsule. And we'll do this again next week. A little bit more prepared, a little bit more set up. It should be a lot of fun. And uh, I believe we have What's-Her-Face to play us out. So have a great evening, everyone. We'll see everyone next week. Thank you. A strange new trend takes over TikTok. A woman fakes her own disappearance, and a man buys his wife a congratulatory gift for appearing in her first pornographic movie. Welcome to the Weekly Roundup, where we cover the most diabolical yet hilarious news of the week. Our top story today, Jussie Smollett is making a comeback and apparently now identifies as a woman. That's right, a 25-year-old woman named Carly Russell is being accused of faking her own disappearance after going missing for 48 hours. All right, so here's a quick breakdown of the story. Carly left work on July 13th and after picking up dinner and snacks from Target, placed a call to 911 claiming she saw a toddler wandering around the side of the highway in his diaper. When police arrived three minutes later, they found Carly's car, her wig, and her phone, but no Carly. After a 48-hour nationwide search, the unexpected happened. Carly returned home on foot, completely unharmed. She later recounted her harrowing tale to investigators, where she claimed she was kidnapped by a white man with red hair and a bald spot. The next thing she remembers is being in the trailer of an 18-wheeler. She said there was also a female and a crying baby present. Russell told detectives that at one point she was able to escape the 18-wheeler, but was captured again and placed in a car. They then took her to a house, stripped her naked, and took pictures of her. She told police she then went to sleep, and when she woke up, the woman fed her cheese and crackers and played with her hair. Finally, she was put back into a vehicle where she once again escaped through the woods that just happened to lead her right back to her family home. Eh. If it was a movie, I'd give it 17% on the tomato meter. But this interview with her parents, on the other hand, deserves an Academy Award. What did you do when you saw her? We tried to hug her as best we could, but I had to stand back because she was not in a good state. So we had to stand back and let medical let professionals work with her. her. Um, but it's now here's where this saga gets real hilarious. In the days since her return, the police have been unable to corroborate the details of her story. Not only were there no other sightings reported of the missing child, but other details in her story are a little dodgy as well. Like the fact that Carly's wig and phone were found in her car when she went missing, 
but the snacks she purchased at Target went missing with her. Hey man, getting abducted is a long and arduous journey that requires a lot of energy. She also had $160 tucked into her sock when she went missing, and uh, just one other small detail. She was Googling abductions when she got abducted. That's right, when investigators searched Carly's phone, they found that shortly before she went missing, she was Googling the movie Taken, a classic abduction film. She also Googled how to pay for an Amber Alert and how to take money from a cash register without getting caught. Well, Carly, the first rule of stealing without getting caught is don't Google how to steal without getting caught. The second rule of stealing without getting caught is don't draw attention to yourself by causing a nationwide search for you and an imaginary toddler. I should teach a life lesson workshop. Carly isn't the only woman playing pretend for a little bit of recognition this week. A new trend called NPC streaming is taking TikTok by storm with an ex-stripper named Pinky Doll leading the charge. Mmm, ice cream's so good. Meow. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, strong woman. Yeah, strong woman. Yes, popcorn. Yes, yes, yes. Slay, huh? Oh, thank you, baby. You got me feeling like a queen. Slay, huh? Pinky Doll is what is known online as an NPC streamer. NPC stands for non-player character, a video game character that comes pre-programmed and typically cannot be manipulated by the person at the controls. As such, an NPC's phrases and movements are often formulaic and repetitive. Oh yeah, I remember these people. I met like a bunch of them during COVID. We're in this together. We're in this together. We're in this together. Flatten the curve. Flatten the, flatten the curve. Flatten the curve. Flatten the curve. What Miss Sinan is doing is considered by some to be fetish content. For certain viewers, there's something sexual about being able to control her every word and gesture by sending her this or that gift. For other viewers, she's just plain fascinating to watch. Something sexual about controlling her gestures? Honestly, men used to conquer entire countries to feel control. Now they send ice cream cone emojis to strangers on the internet. Mmm, soy milk ice cream's so good. Speaking of cockless cucks, a YouTuber bought his wife a Lamborghini to celebrate her filming a porno movie with another man. Adam Grand Mason, more commonly known as Adam22, bought his spouse Lena a $270,000 neon green Lamborghini for sleeping with fitness influencer Jason Love. After his wife did the deed, a little spat took place between the two men after Love claimed he's better in bed than Lena's husband. An insult Adam replied to with this. Jason Love, I trusted you to pork my wife. And it seems like that clout is getting to your head. You're talking real, real spicy and I ain't really feeling it. Number one, the angle of the dangle is more important than the cubic of the pubic. That's number one. Number two, my D game, when I'm serving it, man, it's just like your mom's home cooking because there's a special ingredient. It's called love. You ever heard of it? Wow. Very fitting retort for a man who has cum tattooed on his face. Obviously, I'm aware that this whole thing is fake. There's no actual row taking place between these two men. 
and that's because there's no actual threat to Adam's manhood. His self-worth is tied into social media likes, not his ability to satisfy or protect his wife, which is all part of yet another online trend. The one where evolved progressives further erode the meaning and purpose of marriage by having open relationships and sharing every detail of them online. Meet Danielle. She's a TikToker who documents her journey through an open marriage. My husband and I are in a hierarchical, non-monogamous relationship. And hierarchy at the end of the day is a structure. Think about a work environment. Would it function effectively if it didn't have hierarchy and structure? And just because a manager is ranked higher than someone else within the company, that doesn't make that ethical or unethical if everyone is treated appropriately. And so when I think about hierarchy in my relationship, it provides a system that we've discussed and that we discuss with our partners so that it's really clear how our relationship works and also how we can introduce other people into our dynamic also make sure that our relationship might work with their structures and that sounds a lot more organized than it is but you get the idea what really gets me about these people is they always flip their degenerate behavior on its head and paint it as some type of virtuous venture of the highly evolved I checked out the comments on this video and this was the first one that caught my eye non monogamy is advanced level relationshiping slash relating. Haters hate because they couldn't even fathom the idea of being able to handle the challenges and benefits that come from it. It made the regular issues in our relationship so easy to deal with. Anyway, they'll never understand. It's too hard. Oh yeah, it made the regular issues in your relationship easier to deal with, did it? Yeah, I'm sure it's real easy to ignore the dirty socks he leaves in the middle of the bedroom floor when lying right next to them is the he picked up next to the dumpster behind 7-Eleven. The concept of an open marriage is, of course, an oxymoron. A marriage is a union between two people, and to unite means to join. If there are other people involved in your relationship, you're not a wife in a marriage, you're the midsection of a human centipede. And at the head of the beast is this guy. Andrew Tate is back in the news once again this week after a Romanian court ruled to keep him under house arrest as his human trafficking case continues. I'm gonna be completely honest, since day one, I never really understood the appeal of this guy. He's a grown man with a speech impediment who says shit like this. So yeah, on corporatetape.com I have my PhD program and that is, uh, PhD is a uh, pimp and hose degree that I'm, um, Clever. That, Clever. That, that, that teaches basically how I got girls, how I met girls, how I got girls to like me, how I got girls to fall in love with me to work on webcam for me. Pimpin' hose? Really? This is the right's newest hero? Wasn't this an actual joke in a Friends episode? You might be interested to know that I have a PhD. Wow, you do? Yep, a uh, pretty huge... Right. But then it dawned on me. Andrew Tate was planted by the same people who claim masculinity is toxic. Now hear me out. All the stories we covered today have one thing in common. They all lack a masculine character. Girls with masculine fathers don't fake their own abductions. Wives with masculine husbands aren't rewarded for their infidelity, and little girls who grow up in a well-functioning patriarchal society don't grow up to air their dirty laundry on TikTok 
permanently staining their family's legacy. This behavior is all the result of weak male leadership. Now this is where many of you will say that blaming men for a woman's actions is feminism. That's exactly what popular right-wing pundit and self-proclaimed anti-feminist Pearl Davis said in response to Ali Stuckey, who condemned Tate's behavior. She said, Oh, come on, Ali. Sexually and emotionally manipulates women is feminist speak. We don't need this on the right. You know damn well there is nothing a man could say to women like you or me to get us to do this type of stuff. Those women made their own choices. Stop blaming the men. But then just four days later, she tweeted this. Great women can only be great under the authority and leadership of a man. It's the only way we can be better than men at anything. We cannot do it and are not made to do it on our own. So which one is it, Pearl? Are men our leaders or not? To say that not so great men like Andrew Tate can't lead a woman astray, but great men can lead women to greatness is a little bit confusing. You see, I think people have this whole thing backwards. As our friend Nolan says, if you expect women to lead us out of feminism, you're a feminist. Western society is so starved of male leadership that Nancy boys like Andrew Tate are swooping in and filling up the space where men are supposed to be. Tate is kind of like the MSG you find at a Chinese buffet. He fills you up temporarily, but in an hour, you're starving again, and 30 minutes after that, you're suffering from projectile diarrhea. That's your gut rejecting him because deep down you know he isn't an alpha male, but a beta bitch and drag. Traditional masculinity is not belittling and exploitative and predatory. It's not succumbing to your base level urges or worshiping material things and yourself. Jordan Peterson once put it perfectly. He said, being a man is being capable of cruelty but choosing not to be cruel. You know, it's strange that we're a whole generation of comic book nerds, but we all seem to have missed this very important life lesson from Uncle Ben. Just because you can beat him up, doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Honestly, boys, if you wanna learn how to be alpha, and turn even the hardest woman into soft feminine mush, ditch all these alpha movement grifters and take notes from this guy. Let me call him. Let me, let me call him. You have to act like they got like you got them. Like they got you. Go, go, let me call him. history is the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce they claim to take care of them through government which doesn't give you anything it doesn't take away first so it's not creating something out of nothing it's very real what they're doing they're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights if you haven't heard about our grand theft world community membership here are a few of the things you've been missing 
a mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there. Big props to Maria, broadcaster, that's where I'd hear And get hooked on the name of Richard Grove What he's saying is hypnotic Synchronicity came out like chronic All in full stride, compadres around all sides Seeking sources to provide solution The heavy-handed knowledge is Willie saying The peace revolution, never knowing I was missing the blessing The heaviest session recorded and revealed The ultimate history lesson in this quest And I'm a Midwestern who's rocking it dope Subscribe to media produced by tragedy and hope and if you didn't know the gift and here's what you've been missing and listening is where conviction is revealed in descriptions in a brain model don't come all hollow but full throttle and dive in the deep end so history doesn't repeat and make it complete catch grant that world every week with richard and tony chop it up with the homies and i ain't talking about that public school baloney and it's like you should know me quoting gotta win the flow that i'm growing and lb's bearded is showing the time capsule stack of stats is open so spread it around, the show is ready to pounce Audience that abounds, seeking out what's profound I know it is challenging, fallacies in the balance When a forensic story in it, boring men while exhorting in Examination, contemplation, meditation, revelation, celebration Destinations planned, targets arrived Autonomous crew of souls that survive Broke free from the 9 to 5 and we doing it live Hey, with hope in our flow, where consciousness grows As opposed to, you don't have to think about it dude Cause it's a comedy show that be bombing truth, whoa. Trying to make uncommon truths be more commonly known. That it's a grand theft world that I'm living in. Ain't no reptilian skin, just some normal humans who love to sin. From their banking powers, they aim to win. Deceive and betray all men. Make it, make it, everyone slaves at them. It's a grand theft world that I'm hearing at. The sky's like a pyramid. For those tuning in, they be feeling that. Revealing that things. 
things ain't what they seem, so I'm fighting back and digging jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts. Artifacts, artifacts, yeah, neglected aspect, that's what they lack. Yo, trivium course, it'll deal with that. Huh, be a rebel, bring the logic back. Cause it's a grand theft world that they rolling out. Got the growth model out, tracing Rockefeller dollars, straight to clouds. SEC connections are hard to doubt, but most go the common route. Walking with their head in the shroud, yo, it's a grand theft world that I'm peering at. Disguised like a pyramid, but those tuning in, they be feeling that. Revealing that things ain't what they seem, so I'm fighting back and digging jack. Obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts. No, it's not a video game. This isn't Grand Theft Auto, folks. This isn't a video game. This is Grand Theft World. All right, LD. It's a Grand Theft World that I'm peering at in the sky like a pyramid. For those tuning in, they'd be feeling it. Revealing that things ain't what they seem to invite back and digging jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts. If you need a single location to get cutting-edge information and keep up with the rapidly changing world around us, tune into Grand Theft World, where a forensic historian and a logic professor break down the week's news in depth and in context. There's a ton more there, so go check it out. And don't forget to get your Freedom Vault on the homepage.